Black Magic by Marjorie Bowen, Part One, The Nun, Chapter One, Sunshine. In the large room of a house in a certain quiet city in Flanders, a man was gilding a devil. The chamber looked on to the quadrangle round which the house was built, and the sun just overhead blazed on the vine leaves clinging to the brick and sent a reflected glow into the somber spaces of the room. The devil, rudely cut out of wood, rested by his three tails and his curled back horns against the wall, and the man sat before him on a low stool. On the table in front of the open window stood a row of knights in fantastic armor, roughly modeled in clay. Beside them was a pile of vellum sheets covered with drawings in brown and green. By the door, a figure of Saint Michael leant against a chair, and round his feet were painted glasses of every color and form. On the whitewashed wall hung a winged picture representing a martyrdom. Its vivid hues were the most brilliant thing in the room. The man was dressed in brown. He had a long, dark face and straight, dull hair. From the roll of gold leaf on his knee, he carefully and slowly gilded the devil. The place was utterly silent. The perfect stillness enhanced by the dazzle of the blinding sun without. Presently, the man rose and, crossing to the window, looked out. He could see the sparse plants bordering the neglected, grass-grown paths, the house opposite with its double row of empty windows. And the yellowing vine leaves climbing up the tiled roof that cut the polished blue of the August sky. The man at the window rested his elbows on the sill. It was so hot that he felt it burning through his sleeve. He had the air of one habitually alone, the unquestioning calm that comes of long silences. He was young, and in a quiet fashion, well-looking, wide in the brows and long in the jaw. With a smooth, pale skin and cloudy, dark eyes, his hair hung very straightly. His throat was full and beautiful. In expression, he was reserved and somber. His lips, well shaped but pale, were resolutely set, and there was a fine curve of strength to his prominent chin. After a time of expressionless gazing at the sun-filled garden, he turned back into the room. And stood in the center of the floor, with his teeth set in his forefinger, looking ponderingly at the half-gilded devil. Then he took a bunch of beautifully wrought keys from his belt and, swinging them softly in his hand, left the chamber. Many curious and gorgeous objects were in those deserted rooms: carved presses full of tarnished silver, paintings of holy subjects. Furniture covered with rich-hued tapestry, other pieces of arras on the walls, and in one chamber, purple silk hangings worked with ladies' hair in shades of brown and gold. One room was full of books piled up on the floor, and in the midst of them stood a table bearing strange goblets of shells set in silver and electrum. Passing these things without a glance. The young man mounted to the upper story and unlocked a door whose rusty lock took his utmost strength to turn. It was a storeroom he entered, lit by low, long windows looking on the street 
and carefully shrouded by linen drawn across them. The chamber was chokingly full of dust and a sickly, musty smell. About the floor lay bales of stuff, scarlet, blue and green painted tiles, old lanterns, clothes, priest's garments wonderfully worked, glasses and little rusty iron coffers. Before one of these, the young man went on his knees and unlocked it. It contained a number of bits of glass cut to represent gems. He selected two of an equal size and a clear green color. Then, with the same gravity and silence with which he had come, he returned to the workshop. When he saw the devil, half bright gold, half bald wood, he frowned, then set the green glass in the thing's hollow eye sockets. At the twinkling effect of the light and life produced by this, his frown relaxed. He stood for a while contemplating his handiwork, then washed his brushes and put away his paints and gold leaf. By now the sun had changed and was shining full into the room, casting hot shadows of the vine leaves over the little clay knights and dazzling St. Michael's wet red robe. For the second time the young man left the room, now to go into the hall and open the door that gave upon the street. He looked on to an empty marketplace surrounded by small houses falling into decay. Beyond them the double towers of the cathedral flying upwards across the golden blue. The young man shaded his eyes and gazed across the dazzling dreariness. The shadow of his slack, slim figure was cast into the square of sun thrown across the hall through the open door. Under the iron bell that hung against the lintel stood a basket of bread, a can of milk, and some meat wrapped in a linen cloth. The youth took these in and closed the door. He traversed a large dining room, finely furnished, a small antechamber, came out into the arcaded end of the courtyard, entered the house by a low door next the pump, and so into his workshop again. There he proceeded to prepare his food. On the wide tiled hearth stood a tripod and an iron pot. He lit a fire under this, filled the pot with water, and put the meat in. Then he took a great book down off a shelf and bent over it, huddled up on a stool in the corner where the shade still lingered. It was a book filled with drawings of strange and horrible things, and close writing embellished with blood-red capitals. As the young man read, his face grew hot and flushed where it rested on his hand, and the heavy volume fell cumbrous either side his knee. Not once did he look up or change his twisted position, but with parted lips and absorbed eyes pored over the black lettering. The sun sank the other side of the house, so that the garden and room were alike in shadow, and the air became cooler. Still the young man made no movement. The flames leapt on the hearth, and the meat seethed in the pot unheeded. Outside the vine leaves curled against the brick, and the stone faces looked down at the broken fountain, the struggling grass, and the tall white daisies. Still the young man, bending lower, his heated cheek pressed into his palm, his hair touching the page, bent over the great tomb on his knee. 
Not the devil with his green eyes staring before him. Not St. Michael in his red robe by the door. Not the martyr in the bright-winged picture were more still than he, crouched upon his wooden stool. Then, without prelude or warning, the heavy clang of a bell woke the silence into trembling echoes. The young man dropped the book and sprang to his feet. Red and white chased across his face. He stood panting, bewildered, with one hand on his heart and dazed eyes. Again the bell sounded. It could only be that which hung at the front door. Not for years had one rung it. He picked up the book, put it back on the shelf, and stood irresolute. For a third time the iron clang, insistent, impatient, rang through the quiet. The young man frowned, pushed back the hair from his hot forehead, and went with a light and cautious step across the courtyard, through the dark dining chamber into the hall. Here for a second he hesitated, then drew back the bolt and opened the door. Two men stood without. One was most gorgeously attired, the other wore a dark cloak and carried his hat in his hand. "'You cannot want me,' said the youth, surveying them, "'and there is no one else here.' The splendidly dressed stranger answered, "'If you are Master Dirk Renswode, "'we are most desirous to see and speak with you.' The young man opened the door a little wider. "'I am Dirk Renswode, but I know neither of you.' "'I did not think so,' the other answered. "'Still, we have a matter to ask you of. "'I am Balthasar, of Cotregue, "'and this is my friend, whom you may call Thierry, "'born of Dendermonde. "'Balthasar of Cotregue,' repeated the youth softly. "'He stood aside and motioned them to enter. "'Will you follow me?' he added, "'and went before them to his workroom. "'The sun had left chamber and garden now, but the air was golden warm with it, and a sense of great heat still lay over the grass and vines seen through the open window. Dirk Renswode moved St. Michael from the chair and tossed a pile of parchments off a stool. He offered these seats to his guests, who accepted them in silence. "'You must needs wait till the supper is prepared,' he said, and with that placed himself on the stool by the pot." and while he stirred it with an iron spoon, openly studied the two men. Balthasar of Cotregue was gorgeous. His age might be perhaps twenty-six or seven. He was of a large make, florid in face with a high red color and blunt features. His brows were straight and over-fair, his eyes deep blue and expressionless. His heavy yellow hair was cut low on his forehead and fell straightly on to his neck. He wore a flat orange hat, slashed and cut, fastened by purple cords to the shoulder of a gold doublet that opened on a shirt of fine lawn. His sleeves were enormous, fantastic, puffed and gathered. Round his waist was a linked belt into which were thrust numerous daggers and a short sword. His breeches of a most vivid blue were beruffled with knots and tassels. His riding boots that came to his knees, stained with the summer dust, showed a small foot decorated with gilt spurs. He sat with one hand on his hip, and in the other held his leather gloves. Such the picture, 
Master Dirk Renswold, considering him coldly, formed of Balthasar of Courtreg. His companion was younger, dressed somberly in black and violet, but as well-looking as a man may be. He was neither dark nor fair, but of a clear brown hue, and his eyes were hazel, swift and brilliant. His mouth was set smilingly, yet the whole face expressed reserve and some disdain. He had laid his hat on the floor beside him, and with an interested glance was observing the room. But Balthasar of Courtreg returned Master Dirk Renswold's steady gaze. "'You have heard of me?' he said suddenly. "'Yes,' was the instant answer. "'Then, belike, you know what I am here for.' "'No,' said Master Dirk, frowning. Balthasar glanced at his companion who gave no heed to either of them, but stared at the half-gilded devil with interest and some wonder. Seeing this, Balthasar answered for himself in a manner half-defiant and wholly arrogant. My father is Margrave of East Flanders, and the emperor knighted me when I was fifteen. Now I am tired of Courtreg, of the castle, of my father. I have taken the road. The road to where? Dirk asked. Balthasar made a large gesture with his right hand. To Cologne? Perhaps to Rome? To Constantinople? To Turkey? Or Hungary? Knight errant, said Master Dirk. Balthasar tossed his fine head. By the rood, no, I have ambitions. Master Dirk laughed. And your friend? he asked. A wandering scholar, smiled Balthasar, also weary of the town of Courtreg. He dreams of fame. Thierry looked round at this. I am going to the universities, he said quietly. To Paris, Baal, Padua. You have heard of them? The youth's cloudy eyes gleamed. Ah, I have heard of them, he replied upon a quick breath. Master Dirk was moving about, setting the supper. He placed the little clay knights on the windowsill, and flung without any ado drawings, paints, and brushes onto the floor. Silence fell on them. The young host's bearing did not encourage comment, and the atmosphere of the room was languid and remote, not conducive to talk. Master Dirk, composed and aloof, opened a press in the wall and took thence a fine cloth that he laid smoothly on the rough table. He then set on it earthenware dishes and plates, drinking glasses painted in bright colors, and forks with agate handles. They were well served for food, even though it might not be the princely fare the Margrave's son was used to. Honey in a silver jar, shining apples lying among their leaves, wheaten cakes in a plated basket, grapes on a gold salver, lettuces and radishes fragrantly wet. These Master Dirk brought from the press and set on the table. Then he helped his guests to meet, and Balthasar spoke. You live strangely here, so much alone. I have no desire for company. I work and take pleasure in it. They buy my work, pictures, carvings, sculptures for churches very readily you are a good craftsman said thierry who taught you 
old Master Lucas, born of Ghent, and taught in Italy. When he died, he left me this house and all it holds. Again their speech sank into silence. Balthasar ate heavily, but with elegance. Dirk, seated next the window, rested his chin on his palm and stared out at the bright yet fading blue of the sky, at the row of closed windows opposite, and the daisies waving round the broken fountain. He ate very little. Thierry, placed opposite, was of the same mind, and paying little heed to Balthasar, who seemed not to interest him in the least, kept curious eyes on Dirk's strange grave face. After a while, the Margrave's son asked shamelessly for wine, and the youth rose languidly and brought it. Tall bottles, white, red, and yellow in wicker cases, and an amber-hued beer such as the peasants drank. The placing of these before Balthasar seemed to rouse him from his apathy. "'Why have you come here?' he demanded. Balthasar laughed easily. "'I am married,' he said as a prelude and lifted his glass in a large, well-made hand. At that, Master Dirk frowned. So are many men. Balthasar surveyed the tilting wine through half-closed eyes. It is about my wife, Master, that I am here now. Dirk Renswode leant forward in his chair. I know of your wife. Tell me of her, said Balthasar of Courtraig. I have come here for that. Dirk slightly smiled. Should I know more than you? The Margrave's son flushed. What do you know? Tell me. Dirk's smile deepened. She was one Ursula, daughter of the Lord of Rousselary. She was sent to the convent of the White Sisters in this town. So you know it all, said Balthasar. Well, what else? What else? Must I tell you a familiar tale? Certes, more so to you than to me. Then, since you wish it, here is your story, sir. She was educated for a nun, and, I think, desired to become one of the Order of the White Sisters. But when she was fifteen, her brother died, and she became her father's heiress. So many entered the lists for her hand. They contracted her to you. Balthasar pulled at the orange tassels on his sleeve. Without my wish or consent, he said. The young man took no heed. They sent a guard to bring her back to Rousselary, but because they were fearful of the danger of journey, and that she might be captured by one of the pretenders to her fortunes, they married her fast and securely, by proxy, to you. At this, the maid, who wished most heartily, I take it, to become a nun, fell ill of grief, and in her despair she confided her misery to the abbess. I tell you a tale that I believe you know, but since you have come to hear me speak on that matter, I relate what has come to me of it. This Ursula was heiress to great wealth, and in her love to the sisters and her dislike to this marriage, she promised them all her worldly goods when she should come into possession of them, if they would connive at saving her from her father and her husband. So the nuns, tempted by greed, 
spread the report that she had died in her illness, and being clever women, they blinded all. There was a false funeral, and Ursula was kept secret in the convent among the novices. All this matter was put into writing, and attested by the nuns, that there might be no doubt of the truth of it when the maid came into her heritage, and the news went to her home that she was dead. And I was glad of it, said Balthasar, for then I loved another woman, and was in no need for money. Peace! Shameless! said Thierry, but Dirk Renswold laughed softly. She took the final irrevocable vows and lived for three years among the nuns, and the life became bitter and utterly unendurable to her, and she dared not make herself known to her father because of the deeds the nuns held, promising them her lands. So as the life became more and more horrible to her, she wrote in her extremity and found means to send a letter to her husband. I have it here, Balthasar touched his breast. She said she had sworn herself to me before she had vowed herself to God, told me of her deceit, he laughed, and asked me to come and rescue her. Dirk crossed his hands that were long and beautiful upon the table. You did not come, and you did not answer. The Margrave's son glanced at Thierry, as he had a habit of doing, as if he reluctantly desired his assistance or encouragement. But again he obtained nothing, and answered for himself, after the slightest pause, No, I did not come. Her father had taken another wife, and had a son to inherit, and I, he lowered his eyes moodily, I was thinking of another woman. She had lied, my wife, to God, I think. Well, let her take her punishment, I said. She did not wait beyond some months for your answer, said Master Dirk. Master Lucas, born of Ghent, was employed in the chapel of the convent, and she, who had to wait on him, told him her story. And when he had finished the chapel, she fled with him here to this house. And again she wrote to her husband, speaking of the old man who had befriended her, and telling him of her abode. And again he did not answer. That was five years ago. And the nuns made no search for her? asked Thierry. They knew now that the girl was no heiress, and they were afraid that the tale might get blown abroad. Then there was war. The convent was burnt, and the sisters fled, continued Dirk and the maid lived here, learning many crafts from Master Lucas. He had no apprentices but us. Balthasar leant back in his chair. That much I learnt, and that the old man dying left his place to you. And what more of this Ursula? The young man gave him a slow, full glance. Strangely late you inquire after her, Balthasar of Courtraig. The knight turned his head away, half sullenly. A man must know how he is encumbered. No one save I is aware of her existence, yet she is my wife. The young sculptor rested his smooth pale face on his palm. Cloudy eyes and cloudy hair were hardly discernible in the twilight, but the line of the resolute chin was clear-cut. 
She died four years ago, he said, and her grave is in the garden where those white daisies grow. End of section one. Part one. Chapter two. The students. Dead, repeated Balthasar. He pushed back his chair and then laughed. Why, so is my difficulty solved. I am free of that, Thierry. His companion frowned. Do you take it so? I think it is pitiful. The fool was so young. He turned to Dirk. Of what did she die? The sculptor sighed, as if weary of the subject. I know not. She was happy here, yet she died. Balthasar rose. Why did you bury her within the house? he asked, half uneasily. It was in time of war, answered Dirk. We did what we could, and she, I think, had wished it. The knight turned with a little start and crossed himself. God grant that she sleep in peace, he cried. Amen, said Thierry gravely. Dirk took a lantern from the wall and lit it from the coals still burning on the hearth. Now you know all I know of this matter, he remarked. I thought that some day you might come. I have kept for you her ring, your ring. Balthasar interrupted. I want none of it, he said hastily. Dirk lifted the lantern. Its fluttering flame flushed the twilight with gold. Will you please to sleep here tonight? he asked. The knight, with his back to the window, assented, in defiance of a secret dislike to the place. Follow me, commanded Dirk. Then, to the other, I shall be back anon. Good rest, nodded Balthasar. Tomorrow we will get horses in the town and start for Cologne. The knight went after his host through the silent rooms, up a twisting staircase into a low chamber looking on to the quadrangle. It contained a wooden bedstead covered with a scarlet quilt, a table, and some richly carved chairs. Dirk lit the candles standing on the table, bade his guest a curt good night, and returned to the workroom. He opened the door of this softly and looked in before he entered. By the window stood Thierry, striving to catch the last light on the pages of a little book he held. Dirk pushed the door wide and stepped in softly. You love reading, he said, and his eyes shone. Eh, and you? Thierry asked tentatively. Master Lucas left me his manuscripts among his other goods, Dirk answered. Being much alone, I have read them. In the lantern light that the air breathed from the garden fanned into a flickering glow, the two young men looked at each other. An extraordinary expression, like a guilty excitement, came into the eyes of each. "'Being much alone,' whispered Thierry, "'with a dead maid in the house, how have you spent your time?' Dirk crouched away against the wall. His hair hung lankly over his pallid face. "'You, you pitied her!' "'You would have come,' questioned Dirk, "'when she sent to you.' "'I should have seen no other thing to do,' answered Thierry. "'What manner of a maid was she?' "'I did think her fair,' said Dirk slowly. "'She had yellow hair. "'You may see her likeness in that picture on the wall, "'but now it is too dark.' "'Thierry came round the table. "'You also follow knowledge?' he inquired eagerly. 
Dirk caught up the lantern. You are not aware of the nature of my studies, he cried, and his eyes shone wrathfully. Come to bed. I am weary of talking. Thierry bent his head. This is a fair place for silences, he said. As if gloomily angry, yet disdaining the expression of it, Dirk conducted him to a chamber close to that where Balthasar lay, and left him without speech, nor did Thierry solicit any word of him. Dirk did not return to the workroom, but went into the garden, and paced to and fro under the stars that burnt fiercely, and seemed to hang very low over the dark line of the house. His walk was hasty, his steps uneven. He bit, with an air of absorbed distraction, his lip, his finger, the ends of his straight hair, and now and then he looked with tumultuous eyes up at the heavens, down at the ground, and wildly about him. It was well into the night when he at last returned into the house, and taking a candle in his hand, went stealthily up to Balthasar's chamber. With a delicate touch he unfastened the door, and very lightly entered. Shielding the candle flame with his hand, he went up to the bed. The young knight lay heavily asleep. His yellow hair was tumbled over his flushed face and about the pillow. His arms hung slackly outside the red coverlet. On the floor were his brilliant clothes, his sword, his belt, his purse. Where his shirt fell open at the throat, a narrow blue cord showed a charm attached. Dirk stood still, leaning forward a little, looking at the sleeper, and expressions of contempt, of startled anger, of confusion, of reflection, passed across his haggard features. Balthasar did not stir in his deep sleep. Neither the light held above him nor the intense gaze of the young man's dark eyes served to wake him, and after a while Dirk left him and passed to the chamber opposite. There lay Thierry fully dressed on his low couch. Dirk set the candle on the table and came on tiptoe to his side. The scholar's fair face was resting on his hand, his chin uptilted, his full lips a little apart. His lashes lay so lightly on his cheek it seemed he must be glancing from under them. His hair, dark yet shining, was heaped round his temples. Dirk, staring down at him, breathed furiously, and the color flooded his face, receded, and sprang up again. Then retreating to the table, he sank on to the rush-bottomed chair and put his hands over his eyes. The candle flame leapt in unison with his uneven breaths. Looking round after a while, with a wild glance, he gave a long, distraught sigh, and Thierry moved in his sleep. At this the watcher sat expectant. Thierry stirred again, turned, and rose on his elbow with a start. Seeing the light and the young man sitting by it, staring at him with brilliant eyes, he set his feet to the ground. Before he could speak, Dirk put his finger on his lips. Hush, he whispered, Balthasar is asleep. Thierry, startled, frowned. What do you want with me? For answer, the young sculptor moaned and dropped his head into the curve of his arm. 
You are strange, said Thierry. Dirk glanced up. Will you take me with you to Padua, to Bal? he said. I have money and some learning. You are free to go, as I, answered Thierry, but awakened interest shone in his eyes. I would go with you, insisted Dirk intensely. Will you take me? Thierry rose from the bed uneasily. I have had no companion all my life, he said. The man whom I would take into my confidence must be of rare quality. He came to the other side of the table and across the frail gleam of the candle looked at Dirk. Their eyes met and instantly sank as if each were afraid of what the other might reveal. I have studied somewhat, said Dirk hoarsely. You also, I think, in the same science. The silent awe of comprehension fell upon them. Then Thierry spoke. So few understand. Can it be possible that you? Dirk rose. I have done something. Thierry paled, but his hazel eyes were bright as flame. How much? Then he broke off. God help us. Ah, do you use that name? cried Dirk, and showed his teeth. The other, with cold fingers, clutched at the back of the rush bottom chair. So it is true. You deal with you. Ah, you! What was that book you were reading? asked Dirk sharply. There was a pause. Then Dirk crushed the candle out with his open palm and answered on a half sob of excitement. Black magic! Black magic! End of section two. Part one. Chapter three. The experiment. I guessed it, said Thierry under his breath. When I entered the house. And you? came Dirk's voice. I, I also. There was silence. Then Dirk groped his way to the door. Come after me, he whispered. There is a light downstairs. Thierry had no words to answer. His throat was hot, his lips dry with excitement. He felt his temples pulsating and his brow damp. Cautiously, they crept down the stairs and into the workroom, where the lantern cast long, pale rays of light across the hot dark. Dirk set the window as wide as it would go and crouched into the chair under it. His face was flushed, his hair tumbled, his brown clothes disheveled. Tell me about yourself, he said. What do you want to know? Thierry asked, half desperately. I can do very little. I have no chance to learn, Dirk whispered. Master Lucas had some books, not enough, but what one might do. I came upon old writings, said Thierry slowly. I thought one might be great that way. So I fled from Courtraig. Dirk rose and beckoned. I will work a spell tonight. You shall see. He took up the lantern and Thierry followed him. They traversed the chamber and entered another. In the center of that, Dirk stopped and gave the light into the cold hand of his companion. Here we shall be secret, he murmured, and raised with some difficulty a trap door in the floor. Thierry peered into the blackness revealed below. 
Have you done this before? he asked fearfully. This spell? No. Dirk was descending the stairs into the dark. God will never forgive, muttered Thierry, hanging back. Are you afraid? asked Dirk wildly. Thierry set his lips. No, no! He stepped onto the ladder, and holding the light above his head, followed. They found themselves in a large vault entirely below the surface of the ground, so that air was attained only from the trap-door that they had left open behind them. Floor and walls were paved with smooth stones. The air was thick and intolerably hot. The roof only a few inches above Thierry's head. In one corner stood a tall, dark mirror resting against the wall. Beside it were a pile of books and an iron brazier full of ashes. Dirk took the lantern from Thierry and hung it to a nail on the wall. I have been studying, he whispered, how to raise spirits and see into the future. I think I begin to feel my way. His great eyes suddenly unclosed and flashed over his companion. Have you the courage? Yes, Thierry said hoarsely. For what else have I left my home if not for this? It is strange we should have met, shuddered Dirk. Their guilty eyes glanced away from each other. Dirk took a piece of white chalk from his pocket and began drawing circles, one within the other on the center of the floor. He marked them with strange signs and figures that he drew carefully and exactly. Thierry stayed by the lantern, his handsome face drawn and pale, his eyes intent on the other's movements. The upper part of the vault was in darkness. Shadows, like a bat's wings, swept either side of the lantern that cast a sickly yellow light on the floor, and the slender figure of Dirk on one knee amid his chalk circles. When he had completed them he rose, took one of the books from the corner, and opened it. "'Do you know this?' With a delicate forefinger he beckoned Thierry, who came and read over his shoulder. I have tried it. It has never succeeded. Tonight it may, whispered Dirk. He shook the ashes out of the brazier and filled it with charcoal that he took from a pile near. This he lit and placed before the mirror. The future, we must know the future, he said, as if to himself. They will not come, said Thierry, wiping his damp forehead. I heard them once but they never came. Did you tempt them enough? breathed Dirk. If you have mandrake, they will do anything. I had none. Nor I. Still, one can force them against their will, though it is terrible. The thin blue smoke from the charcoal was filling the vault. They felt their heads throbbing, their nostrils dry. Dirk stepped into the chalk circles holding the book. In a slow, unsteady voice, he commenced to read. As Thierry caught the words of the blasphemous and horrible invocation, he shook and shuddered, biting his tongue to keep back the instinctive prayer that rose to his lips. But Dirk gained courage as he read. He drew himself erect. His eyes flashed. His cheeks burnt crimson. The smoke had cleared from the brazier. 
The charcoal glowed red and clear. The air grew hotter. It seemed as if a cloak of lead had been flung over their heads. At last Dirk stopped. Put out the lantern, he muttered. Thierry opened it and stifled the flame. There was now only the light of the burning charcoal that threw a ghastly hue over the dark surface of the mirror. Thierry drew a long, sighing breath. Dirk, swaying on his feet, began speaking again in a strange and heavy tongue. Then he was silent. Faint, muttering noises grew out of the darkness, indistinct sounds of howling, sobbing. They come, breathed Thierry. Dirk repeated the invocation. The air shuddered with moanings. Ah, ah, cried Dirk. Into the dim glow of the brazier, a creature was crawling, the size of a dog, the shape of a man, of a hideous color of mottled black. It made a wretched crying noise and moved slowly, as if in pain. Thierry gave a great sob and pressed his face against the wall. But Dirk snarled at it across the dark. So you have come. Show us the future. I have the power over you. You know that. The thin flames leapt suddenly high. A sound of broken wailings came through the air. Something ran round the brazier. The surface of the mirror was troubled as if dark water ran over it. Then suddenly was flashed on it a faint yet bright image of a woman, crowned and with yellow hair. As she faded, a semblance of one wearing a tiara appeared, but blurred and faint. More, cried Dirk passionately. Show us more. The mirror brightened, revealing depths of cloudy sky. Against them rose the dark blue of a gallows tree. Thierry stepped forward. With a sharp sound, the mirror cracked and fell asunder. A howl of terror arose, and dark shapes leapt into the air to be absorbed in it and disappear. Dirk staggered out of the circle and caught hold of Thierry. You have broken the spell, he gibbered. You have broken the spell. An icy stillness had suddenly fallen. The brazier flickered rapidly out, and even the coals were soon black and dead. The two stood in absolute darkness. "'They have gone,' whispered Thierry. He wrenched himself free from Dirk's clutch and fumbled his way to the ladder. Finding this by reason of the faint patch of light overhead, he climbed up through the trapdoor, his body heaving with long-drawn breaths. Dirk, light-footed and lithe, followed him and dropped the flag. The charm was not strong enough, he said through his teeth. And you, Thierry broke in. I could not help myself. I, I saw them. Dirk moved into the workshop and came back with the candle and a great green glass of wine. He held up the light so that he could see the scholar's beautiful, agonized face, and with his other hand gave him the goblet. Thierry looked up and drank silently. When he had finished, the color was back in his cheeks. 
Dirk took the glass from him and set it beside the candle on the window-sill. "'What did you see in the mirror?' he asked. "'I do not know,' answered Thierry wildly. "'A woman's face.' "'Eh?' broke in Dirk. "'Now what was she to us? "'And a figure like the Pope?' He smiled derisively. "'I saw that,' said Thierry. "'But what should they do with holy things? "'And then I saw—' "'Dirk swung round on him, each white despite the candlelight. "'Nay, there was no more after that.' "'There was,' insisted Thierry, "'a stormy sky and a gallows-tree. "'His voice fell hollowly. "'The foul little imps,' Dirk said passionately, "'they deceived us.' "'Will you continue these studies?' Thierry questioned. "'The other gave him a quick look over his shoulder. "'Do you think of turning aside?' "'Nay, nay,' answered Thierry. But one may keep knowledge this side of things blasphemous and unholy. Dirk laughed hoarsely. I have no fear of God, he said in a thick voice. But you, you are afraid of Satanas. Well, go your way, each man to his master. Mine will give me many things. Look to it, yours does the like by you. Listen to me, I am not afraid. Nay, why did I leave Courtreg? With resolute, starry eyes, Dirk gazed up at Thierry, who was near a head taller, and his proud mouth curled a little. I may not disregard the fate that sent me here, continued Thierry. Will you come with me? I can be loyal. Together might we do much, and it is ill work studying alone. The younger man put out his hand. If I come, will you swear a pact with me of friendship? We will be as brothers, said Thierry gravely, sharing good and ill. Keeping our secret, whispered Dirk, allowing none to come between us? Yes. You are attuned to me, said Dirk. So be it. I will come with you to bow. He raised his strange face, in the hollowed eyes, in the full colorless lips, were a resolution and a strength that held and commanded the other. We may be great, he said. Thierry took his hand. The red candlelight was being subdued and vanquished by a glimmering gray that overspread the stars. The dawn was peering in at the window. Can you sleep? asked Thierry. Dirk withdrew his hand. At least I can feign it. Balthasar must not guess. Get you to bed. Never forget tonight and what you swore. With a soft, gliding step, he gained the door, opened it noiselessly, and departed. Thierry stood for a while, listening to the slight sound of the retreating footfall. Then he pressed his hands to his forehead and turned to the window. A pale, pure flush of saffron stained the sky above the roofline. There were no clouds, and the breeze had dropped again. In the vast and awful stillness, Thierry, feeling marked, set apart, and defiled with blasphemy, yet elated also, in a wild and wicked manner, tiptoed up to his chamber. Each creaking board he stepped on, each shadow that seemed to change as he passed it, 
caused his blood to tingle guiltily. When he had gained his room, he bolted the door and flung himself along his tumbled couch, holding his fingers to his lips, and with strained eyes gazing at the window, so he lay through long hours of sunshine in a half-swoon of sleep. End of Section 3 Part 1 Chapter 4 The Departure he was at length fully aroused by the sound of loud and cheerful singing. My heart's a nun within my breast, so cold is she, so cloistered cold. Thierry sat up, conscious of a burning, aching head and a room flooded with sunshine. To her my sins are all confessed, so wise is she, so wise and old, so I blow off my loves like the thistle down. A burst of laughter interrupted the song. Thierry knew now that it was Balthasar's voice, and he rose from the couch with a sense of haste and discomfiture. What hour was it? The day was of a drowsing heat. The glare of the sun had taken all color out of the walls opposite the grass and vines. They all blazed together a shimmer of gold. So I blow off my loves like the thistle down, and ride from the gates of Courtrake town. Thierry descended. He found Balthasar in the workshop. There were the remains of a meal on the table, and the knight, red and fresh as a rose, was polishing up his sword-handle, singing the while, as if in pleased expression of his own thoughts. In the corner sat Dirk, drawn into himself and gilding the devil. Thierry was conscious of a great dislike to Balthasar. Ghosts, nor devils, nor the thought of them had troubled his repose. There was annoyance in the fact that he had slept well, eaten well, and was now singing in sheer careless gaiety of heart. Yet what other side of life should a mere animal like Balthasar know? Dirk looked up, then quickly looked down again. Thierry sank on a stool by the table. Balthasar turned to him. "'Are you sick?' he asked, wide-eyed. "'Something sick,' Thierry answered curtly. Balthasar glanced from him to Dirk's back, bending over his work. "'There is much companionship to be got from learned men, truly,' he remarked. His blue eyes and white teeth flashed in a half-amusement. He put one foot on a chair and balanced his glittering sword across his knee. Thierry averted a bitter gaze from his young splendor, but Balthasar laughed and broke into his song again. "'My heart's a nun within my breast, so proud is she, so hard and proud. Absolving me, she gives me rest.' "'We part ways here,' said Thierry. "'So soon?' asked the knight, then sang indifferently. "'So I blow off my loves like the thistle down "'and ride through the gates of Courtrake town.' Thierry glanced now at his bright face, smooth yellow hair and gorgeous vestments. "'Eh,' he said, "'I go to Baal, and I to Frankfurt. "'Still we might have kept company a little longer.' "'I have other plans,' said Thierry shortly. Balthasar smiled good-humouredly. "'You are not wont to be so evil-tempered,' he remarked. Then he looked from one to the other, silent both and unresponsive. 
I will even take my leave. He laid the great glittering sword across the table. Dirk turned on his stool with the roll of gilding in his hand. At this cold gaze that seemed to hold something of enmity and an unfriendly knowledge, Balthasar's dazzlingly fresh face flushed deeper in the cheeks. Since I have been so manifestly unwelcome, he said, I will pay for what I have had of you. Dirk rose. You mistake, he answered. I have been pleased to see you for many reasons, Balthasar of Courtraig. The young knight thrust his hands into his linked belt and eyed the speaker. You condemn me, he said defiantly. Well, Thierry is more to your mind. He opened his purse of curiously cut and colored leather, and taking from it four gold coins, laid them on the corner of the table. So you may buy masses for the soul of Ursula of Rousselary, he indicated the money with a swaggering gesture. Think you her soul is lost? queried Dirk. Acquired saint is glad of prayers, returned Balthasar. But you are in an ill mood, master, so good-bye to you, and God send you sweeter manners when next we meet. He moved to the door, vivid blue and gold and purple. Without looking back, he flung on his orange hat. Thierry roused himself and turned with a reluctant interest. You are going to Frankfurt? he asked. A. Balthasar nodded pleasantly. I shall see in the town to the hire of a horse and man, mine own beast being lamed, as you know, Thierry. The scholar rose. Why do you go to Frankfurt? he asked. All men go to Frankfurt, Balthasar answered. Is not the emperor there? Thierry lifted his shoulders. Tis no matter of mine. Nay, said Balthasar, who appeared to have been both disturbed and confused by the question. No more than it is my affair to ask you, why go you to Baal? The scholar's eyes gleamed behind his thick lashes. It is very clear why I go to Baal to study medicine and philosophy. They quitted the room, leaving Dirk looking covertly after them, and were proceeding through the dusty, neglected rooms. I do not like the place, said Balthasar, nor yet the youth, but he has served my purpose. And now they were in the hall. We shall meet again, said Thierry, opening the door. The knight turned his bright face. Like enough, he answered easily. Farewell. With that and a smile, he was swinging off across the cobbles, tightening his sword straps. Against the sun-dried, decayed houses, across the grass-grown square, his vivid garments flashed, and his voice came over his shoulder through the hot blue air. So I blew off my loves like the thistle down, and rode through the gates of Courtrec town. Thierry watched him disappear round the angle of the houses then bolted the door and returned to the workroom. Dirk was standing very much as he had left him, half resting against the table with the roll of gilding in his white fingers. What do you know of that man? he asked as Thierry entered. Where did you meet him? Balthasar? Yea. At his father's house. I taught his sister music. There was, in a manner, some friendship between us. We both wearied of Courtraig. So it came we were together. I never loved him. 
Dirk returned quietly to the now completely gilded devil. Know you anything of the woman he spoke of? he asked. Did he speak of one? Dirk looked over his shoulder. Yea, he said. Besides, I was thinking of another woman. They were his words. Thierry sat down. He felt faint and weak. I know not. There were so many. As we traveled together, he made his prayers to one Isabeau, but he was secret about her, never his way. Isabeau, repeated Dirk, a common name. Eh, said Thierry indifferently. What had he done if she had been living? Dirk asked. Then, without waiting for a reply, he began swiftly on another subject. I have finished my work. I wished to leave it complete. It was for the Church of St. Bavon, but I shall not give it them. Now we can start when you will. Thierry looked up. What of your house and goods? he asked. I have thought of that. There are some valuables, some money. These we can take. I shall lock up the house. It will fall into decay. I care not. With a clear flame of eagerness, a light in his eyes, he flashed a full glance at Thierry, and seeing the young scholar pale and drooping, disappointment clouded his face. Do you commence so slackly? he demanded. Are you not eager to be abroad? Eh, answered Thierry, but Dirk stamped his foot. We do not begin with buts, he cried passionately. If you have no heart for the enterprise, give me some food, I pray you, Thierry said. For I ate but little yesterday. Dirk glanced at him. I forgot, he answered, and set about rearranging the remains of the meal he and Balthasar had shared in silence. Thierry sat very still. The door into the next room was open as he had left it on his return, and he could see the line of the trap door. He felt a great desire to raise it, to descend into the vault and gaze at the cracked mirror. Brazier of dead coals and the mystic circles on the floor. Looking up, his eyes met Dirk's, and without words his thought was understood. Leave it alone now, said the sculptor softly. Let us not speak of it before we reach Baal. At these words, Thierry felt a great relief. The idea of discussing, even with the youth who so fascinated him, the horrible, alluring thing that was an intimate of his thoughts but a stranger to his lips had filled him with uneasiness and dread. While he ate the food put before him, Dirk picked up the four gold coins Balthasar had left and looked at them curiously. Masses for her soul, he cried. Did he think that I would enter a church and bargain with a priest for that? He laughed. And flung the money out of the window at the nodding daisies. Thierry gave him a startled glance. Why, till now, I had thought that you felt tenderly towards the maid. Dirk laughed. Not I. I have never cared for women. Nor I, said Thierry simply. He leant back in his chair and his dreamy eyes were grave. When young, they are ornaments, it is true, but pleasant only if you flatter them. When they are overlooked, they become dangerous, and a woman who is not young is absorbed in little concerns that are no matter to any but herself. The smile, still lingering on Dirk's face, deepened derisively, it seemed, 
Oh, my fine philosopher! He mocked. Are you well fed now and preaching again? He leant against the wall by the window, and the intense sunlight made his dull brown hair glitter here and there. He folded his arms and looked at Thierry narrowly. I warrant your mother was a fair woman, he said. I do not remember her. They say she had the loveliest face in Flanders, though she was only a clerk's wife, answered the young man. I can believe it, said Dirk. Thierry glanced at him, a little bewildered. The youth had such abrupt changes of manner, such voice and eyes unfathomable, such a pale, fragile appearance. Yet such a spirit of tempered courage. I marvel at you, he said. You will not always be unknown. No, answered Dirk, I have never meant that I should be soon forgotten. Then he was beside Thierry, with a strip of parchment in his hand. I have made a list of what we have in the place of value, but I care not to sell them here. Why? questioned Thierry. Dirk frowned. I want no one over the threshold. I have a reputation, not one for holiness. His strange face relaxed into a smile. Thierry glanced at the list. Certes, how might one carry that even to the next town? Without a horse, it were impossible. Silverware, glass, pictures, raiment were marked on the strip of parchment. Dirk bit his finger. We will not sell these things, Master Lucas left to me, he said suddenly. Only a few, such as the silver and the red copper wrought in Italy. Thierry lifted his grave eyes. I will carry those into the town if you give me a merchant's name. Dirk mentioned one instantly and where his house might be found. A Jew, but a secretive and wealthy man, he added. I carved a staircase in his mansion. Thierry rose. The ache in his head and the horror in his heart had ceased together. The sense of coming excitement crept through his veins. There is much here that is worthless, said Dirk, and many things dangerous to reveal. Yet a few of those that are neither might bring a fair sum. Come, and I will show you. Thierry followed him through the dusty, sunny chambers to the storerooms on the upper floor. Here, Dirk brought treasures from a press in the wall, candlesticks, girdles with enamel links, carved cups, crystal goblets. Selecting the finest of these, he put them in a coffer, locked it, and gave the key to Thierry. There should be the worth of some gulden there, he said, red in the face from stooping, and essayed to lift the coffer, but failed. Thierry, something amazed, raised it at once. "'Tis not heavy,' he said. "'Nay,' answered Dirk, "'but I am not strong,' and his eyes were angry. Thierry was brought by this to give him some closer personal scrutiny than as yet he had. "'How old are you?' he asked. Twenty-five, Dirk answered curtly. "'Certes!' Thierry's hazel eyes flew wide. "'I had said eighteen. Dirk swung on his heel. Oh, get you gone, he said roughly, and be not over long, for I would be away from this place at once. Do you hear? At once. They left the room together. You have endured this for years, said Thierry curiously, 
and suddenly you count the hours to your departure? Dirk ran lightly ahead down the stairs, and his laugh came low and pleasant. Untouched, the wood will lie forever, he answered, but set it alight, and it will flame to the end. End of section four. Part one, chapter five, Comrades. They had been a week on the road, and now were nearing the borders of Flanders. The company of the other had become precious to each, though Thierry was grave and undemonstrative, Dirk changeable and quick of temper. Today, however, the silence of mutual discontent was upon them. Open disagreement had happened once before, at the beginning of their enterprise, when the young sculptor resolutely refused, foolishly it seemed to Thierry, to sell his house and furniture, or even to deliver at the church of Saint-Bavon the figures of Saint Michael and the devil, though the piece was finished. Instead, he had turned the key on his possessions, leaving them the prey of dust, spiders, and rats, and often Thierry would think uneasily of the shut-up house in the deserted square, and how the merciless sunlight must be streaming over the empty workroom and the daisies growing upon the grave of Balthasar's wife. Nevertheless, he was enthralled to the attraction of Dirk Renswold. Never in his life had he been so at ease with anyone never before felt his aims and ambitions understood and shared by another. He knew nothing of his companion's history, nor did he care to question it. He fancied that Dirk was of noble birth. It seemed in his blood to live gently and softly. At the hostel where they rested, it was he who always insisted upon the best of accommodation, a chamber to himself, fine food, and humble service. This nicety of his it was that caused the coolness between them now. At the little town they had just left, a fair was in holding, and the few inns were full. Lodging had been offered them in a barn with some merchant's clerks, and this Thierry would have accepted gladly, but Dirk had refused peremptorily, to the accompaniment of much jeering from those who found this daintiness amusing in a poor traveller on foot. After an altercation between the landlord and Thierry, a haughty silence of flashing eyes and red cheeks from Dirk, they had turned away through the gay fair, wound across the town and out on to the high road. This led up a steep mountainous incline. They were carrying their possessions in bundles on their backs, and when they reached the top of the hill they turned off from the road on to the meadows that bordered it, and sank on the grass, exhausted. Thierry, though coldly angry with the whim that had brought them here to sleep under the trees, could not but admit it was an exquisite place. Dirk sat apart, resting his back against the foremost of the pine trees. The cause of the quarrel had ceased to be any matter to Thierry. Indeed, he could not but admit it preferable to lie here than to herd with noisy, beer-drinking clerks in a close barn, but recollection of the haughty spirit Dirk had discovered held him estranged still. Yet his companion occupied his thoughts. 
his wonderful skill in those matters he himself was most desirous of fathoming, the strange way in which they had met, and the pleasure of having a companion so different from Balthasar, of a kindred mind, however whimsical his manner. At this point in his reflections, Dirk turned his head. "'You are angry with me?' he said. Thierry answered calmly, "'You were foolish.' Dirk frowned and flushed. "'Certé, a fine comrade!' His voice was vehement. "'Did you not swear fellowship with me? How do you fulfill that compact by being wrathful the first time our wills clash?' "'I am not wrathful,' Thierry smiled. "'and you have had many whims. "'None of them have I opposed.' "'Dirk answered angrily, "'You make me out a fantastical fellow. "'It is not true.' "'It is true. "'You are as nice as a girl,' Thierry answered. "'Many a time I would have slept by the kitchen hearth. "'Eh, and have done. "'But you must always lie soft as a prince.' "'Dirk was scarlet from brow to chin.' "'Well, if I choose,' he said defiantly, "'if I choose, as long as I have money in my pocket, to live gently—' "'Have I interfered?' interrupted Thierry. "'You are of a lordly birth, belike.' "'Yea, I am of a great family,' flashed Dirk. "'Ill did they treat me. No more of them. Are you still angry with me?' He rose. The red cloak slipped from his shoulders to the ground. He stood with his hand on his hip, looking down at Thierry. "'Come,' he said gravely. "'We must not quarrel, my comrade, my one friend. When shall we find another with such aims as ours? We are bound to each other, are we not?' "'Certé, you swore it.' Thierry lifted his beautiful face. I do like you greatly, he answered, and in no wise blame you because you are weakly and used to luxury. Others have found me over-gentle. Then I am pardoned. Thierry smiled. Nay, I do regret my evil humor. The sun was fierce, and the bundles heavy to drag up the hill. Dirk sank down upon the grass beside him. Truly, I am wearied to death. Thierry considered him, panting a little. Dirk stretched himself his full length on the blowing grass. The young scholar, used and indifferent to his own great beauty, was deadened to the effect of it in others, and to any eye Dirk could be no more than well-looking. As Thierry studied him, he spoke. "'My heart, it is sweet here. Oh, sweet!' Faint airs wafted from the pine and the wildflowers hidden in the woods below them stole through the grass. A glowing purple haze began to obscure the valley, and where it melted into the sky the first stars shone, pale as the moon. Overhead the dome of heaven was still blue, and in the tops of the pines was a continuous whispering of the perfumed boughs, one to another. Now, "'Wish yourself back in the town among their drinking and swearing,' said Dirk. "'Nay,' smiled Thierry, "'I am content.' The faint purple colour slowly spread over everything. The towers of the town became dark, and little sharp lights twinkled in them. Dirk drew a great breath. 
What will you do with your life? he asked. Thierry started. In what manner? Why, if we succeed, in any way, if we obtain great power, what would you do with it? I would be great, Thierry whispered. Like Flacus Alcun, like Avliard, like Saint Bernard. And I would be greater than any of these, as great as the master we serve can make his followers. Thierry shuddered. These I speak of were great, serving God. Dirk looked up quickly. How know you that? Many of these holy men owe their position to strange means. I, at least, would not be content to live and die in woolens when I could command the means to clothe me in golden silks. The beautiful darkness now encompassed them. Below them the lights of the town, above them the stars, and here in the meadow land the night breeze in the long grass and in the deep boughs of pine. I am but a neophyte, said Thierry, after a pause. Very little have I practiced of these things. I had a book of necromancy and learned a little there. But— Why do you pause? demanded Dirk. One may not do these things, answered Thierry slowly, without great blasphemy. Dirk laughed. I care nothing for all the angels and all the saints. I desire vast wealth, huge power. I would see nations at my footstool. Ah, but I have a boundless ambition. He sat up suddenly and softly, and laid his hand on Thierry's arm. If they, the evil ones, offered you that, would you not take it? Thierry shuddered. You would! You would, cried Dirk, and pay your soul for it, gladly. The scholar made no answer, but reclined motionless, gazing over the human lights in the valley to the stars beyond them. Dirk continued, See what a liking I have for you, that I tell you this, that I give you the secret of my power to come? Tis my secret also, answered Thierry hastily. I have done enough to bring the everlasting wrath of the church upon me. Gradually, by ones and twos, the lights in the town were extinguished, and the valley was in darkness. Thierry folded up his cloak as a pillow for his head, and lay down in the scented grass. As he fell into a half-sleep, the great sweetness of the place was present to his mind, torturing him. He knew by the pictures he had seen that paradise was like this, remote and infinitely peaceful, meadows and valleys spreading beneath a tranquil sky. He knew it was desirable and that he longed for it, yet he must meddle with matters that repelled him, even as they drew him with their horror. He fell into heavy dreams, moaning in his sleep. Dirk rose from beside him and walked up and down in the dark. The dew was falling. His head uncovered. He stooped, felt for his mantle, found it, and wrapped it about him, pacing to and fro, with calm eyes defying the dark. Then finally he lay down under the pines and slept, 
to awake suddenly and find himself in a sitting posture. Like wine poured into a cup, light began to fill the valley and the hollows in the hills. Faint mystic clouds gathered and spread over the horizon. Dirk shudderingly drew his mantle closer. Thierry sighed and woke. Dirk gave him a distracted glance and turned away so rapidly and softly that Thierry, with the ugly shapes of dreams still riding his brain, cried out, "'Is that you, Dirk?' and sprang to his feet. Dirk stayed his steps halfway to the pines. "'What is the matter?' he asked in an awed voice. Thierry pushed the hair away from his forehead. "'I know no nothing!' The air seemed suddenly to become colder. The hills that on all sides bounded their vision rose up stark from grey mists, and indescribable tension made itself felt, like a pause in the stillness. Dirk stepped back to Thierry and caught his arm. They stood motionless, in an attitude of expectancy. A roll of thunder pealed from the brightening sky, and faded slowly into silence. They were looking along the hills with straining eyes. On the farthest peak appeared a gigantic black horseman outlined against the ghostly light. He carried a banner in his hand. It was the color of blood and the color of night. For a moment he sat his horse motionless, facing towards the east. Then the low thunder pealed again. He raised the banner, shook it above his head, and galloped down the hillside. Before he reached the valley, he had disappeared, and at that instant the sun rose above the horizon and sparkled across the country. Thierry hid his face in his sleeve and trembled terribly, but Dirk gazed over his bent head with undaunted eyes. End of Section 5 Part 1 Chapter 6 The Lady Through the blue-pointed arches that gave on to the sunny gardens, a thin stream of students issued from the lecture-room. Behind the castellated roof of the university, the mountains appeared, snow cold against the sunlit sky. At the bottom of the gently sloping garden lay the town of Baal with the broad blue Rhine flowing between the glittering houses. The students came in twos and threes and little groups, laughing together over the doctor who had been lecturing them, over some point in their studies that had roused their amusement, or merely because it was a relief after being confined for hours in the dark hall. The long straight robes, dark shades of purple, blue and violet, fluttered behind them in the summer wind as they gradually dispersed to right and left among the trees. Thierry, walking with two others, looked about him for Dirk, who had not attended the lecture. "'We are going up the river,' said one of his companions. "'We have a fair sailing-boat. It will be pleasant by Ovid.' "'Will you come?' asked the other. Thierry shook his head. "'Nay, I cannot.' They came to a pathway bordered with laurels and dark glossy plants, and from a seat amid them Dirk rose at their approach. 
He was distinguished from the others by the greater richness of his dress. His robe, very voluminous and heavy, was of brown silk. He wore a gold chain twisted round his flat black cap, and his shirt was a fine lawn, laced and embroidered. The two students doffed their hats in half-mocking recognition of the exquisite air of aloofness that was his habitual manner. He gave them a steady look out of half-closed eyes. "'Hast learnt much to-day?' he asked. "'Aristotle is not comprehended in an afternoon,' answered the student, smiling. "'And I was at the back.' Master Joris of Thuringia yawned and yawned and fell off his stool asleep. The doctor was bitter. It was amusing, said the other. Yet he was not asleep, but swooned from the heat. Mass, but it was hot. Where were you? Improving my Latin in the library. This afternoon I have put the story of Tiros and Philomena into the vulgar tongue. Give you good even, the two linked arms. We know a joyful inn up the river. As they disappeared, Dirk turned sharply to Thierry. Did they ask your company? Yea. Dirk frowned. You should have gone. I had no mind to it. They are foolish. Eh, but we are beginning to be remarked for closeness in our habits. It would not be pleasant should they suspect. "'Tis not possible,' said Thierry hastily. "'It must not be,' was the firm answer. "'But be not churlish or over-reserved.' "'I wish for no company but thine,' replied Thierry. "'What have I in common with these idlers?' Dirk gave him a bright, tender look. "'We need not stay here over long,' he answered. "'I do think we know all this school can teach us.' Thierry put back the laurel bough that swung between them. "'Where would you go?' he asked. It was noticeable how, in all things, he had begun to defer to the younger man. "'Paris! Padua!' flashed Dirk. "'Would you consider that?' "'One might attain a reputation, and then—or one might lecture in any large town—Cologne, Strasbourg.' "'Meanwhile?' Meanwhile, I progress, was the whispered answer. I have essayed some things. Will you come to my chamber tonight? Eh? Secretly? Dirk nodded. His grave young face under the student's flat hat was slightly flushed. He laid his hand on Thierry's arm. I have something to tell you. Here it is scarcely wise to speak. There is one who hates me. Joris of Thiringa. Now, good-bye. His great eyes lit with a look of strong affection that was flashed back in Thierry's glance. They clasped hands and parted. Thierry looked after the brown, silk-clad figure as it moved rapidly towards the university. Then he took his own way, out of the gardens, on to the hillside, away from the town, with his hands clasped behind his back, and his handsome head bent, he followed aimlessly a little path. And as he wound his way through the trees, wild daydreams stirred his blood. He was on the eve of putting himself in possession of immense power. 
these evil spirits whom he would force to serve him could give him anything in the world anything in the world presently a human sound forced itself on thierry's senses insistently even through his abstraction the sound of weeping sobbing he started gazed about him with dazed eyes like a blind man recovering sight and discerned a lady upon the other side of the stream seated on the grass her head bowed in her right hand thierry paused frowned and hesitated the lady warned of something glanced up and sprang to her feet he saw now that she held a dead bird in her left hand her face was flushed with weeping her long yellow hair disordered about her brow she gazed at him with wet gray eyes and thierry felt it imperative to speak you are troubled he asked then flushed thinking she might term it insolence but she answered simply and at once about him i am she held the little brown bird out on her palm he was on the small poplar tree and singing he held his head up so she lifted her long throat and i could see his heart beating behind the feathers i listened to him oh with pleasure fresh tears started to the eyes that she turned on thierry then my miserable cat that had followed me leapt on him and slew him oh i chased them but when i got him back he was dead thierry was extraordinarily moved by this homely tragedy it could not have occurred to him that there was matter for tears in such a common thing but as the lady told the story holding out as if secure of his sympathy the poor little ruffled body he felt that it was both pitiful and monstrous you may chastise the cat he said for he saw the elegant soft animal rubbing itself against the stem of the poplar i have beaten her she confessed you can hang her said thierry thinking to console still more but the lady flushed up she is an agreeable cat she answered she cannot help her nature oh it would be an odious cruelty to hang her see she does not understand thierry rebuked was at a loss he stood looking at the lady feeling helpless and useless she wiped her eyes with a silk handkerchief and stood in a piteous meek silence holding her dead bird in a trembling hand if you buried it suggested thierry desperately i do think it would have wished to be buried here to his joy she brightened a little you think so she asked wistfully certe he reassured her eagerly see i have a knife i will make a pleasant grave she stepped to the edge of the stream as near as she could to him and because she came unconsciously with no thought for anything save the bird in her hand thierry thrilled with a great pleasure as should a wild deer come fearlessly i cannot cross the water is too wide she said but will you take him and make his grave she went on one knee among the sorrel leaves and daisies 
Thierry had a swift picture of her as she leant forward, stretching her arm towards him over the stream that divided them. Her pale red dress rippled about her on the grass. Her curls and her veil were blown back from her face. Thierry knelt and held out his hand. Over midstream their fingers touched. He took the bird, and she drew back hastily. As he, still on his knees, looked at her, he saw that she was no longer unconscious. She stood erect, as if commanding herself not to fly. And, as she was very slender, he likened her to the pale crimson pistol of a lily, which has yellow on the head. Her hair, he told himself. I am vexed to trouble you, she spoke haltingly. There were so many things he wished to say in answer to this that he said nothing, but took his knife from his belt and cut a little square of turf. You are a clerk from the college? she asked. Ay, he answered, and wished fiercely he could have given himself a finer name. There are many learned men there, she said courteously. He would not have believed it possible to find in himself such care over a trivial thing as he now took over this little bird's grave, for he knew she watched him with judgment in her eyes. The unholy daydreams that had vexed and enthralled him were completely forgotten in this new feeling. The lines of a verse he had not noticed when he read it came back to him, beating in his head. Pleasant is she of a fair white favor, sweetly her caress as the ripe grape's flavor, and her lips are like the rose in their savor. Seeing her, my pulses quicken, I turn from common things and sicken, for the quiet woods where the may buds thicken. Hearing her, my breath is taken, my bold heart bowed and shaken, and I from sloth at last awaken. He dug into the soft brown earth with the point of his knife, lined the grave with leaves, and picked up the little bird. For a moment he held it in his hand as she had done, and he dared not look at her. Then he laid it in the ground and replaced the grass and daisies. When he raised his head, his face flushed from stooping, he saw that she was no longer watching him, but she had turned sideways and was gazing at the distant woods. Thierry rose from his knees. She turned. I thank you, she said. Then, on a quick breath, do you often come here? Nay, never before. I did not know the place. That is my home yonder, said the lady. Yours? And he pointed to the castle walls. Yea, I am an orphan, and the emperor's ward. She looked at the point of her shoe, showing beneath her pale crimson robe. What town do you come from? she asked. Courtraig. I know no town save Frankfurt. A silence fell between them. The wicked grey cat walked in a stately manner along the edge of the stream. I shall lose her, said the lady. Good even, gentle clerk. My name is Jacoba of Martzburg. Perhaps I shall see you again? 
He had never felt more desirous of speaking, never less capable. He murmured, I, I do hope it, and colored burningly at his awkwardness. She gave him a half look, a flash from grave gray eyes, instantly veiled, and with an unsmiling mouth bade him again, Good even. Then she was gone after the cat. He saw her hasten down the side of the stream, her dress bending the grasses and leaves. He saw her stoop and snatch up the creature, and, holding it in her arms, take the path towards those lordly gates. He hoped she might look back and see that he gazed after her, but she did not turn her head. And when the last flutter of pale red had disappeared, he moved reluctantly from the place. On the slopes that adjoined the garden of the college, Thierry came upon a little group of students lying on the grass. Just beyond them the others were standing. Dirk, noticeable by his rich dress and elegant bearing, and another youth whom Thierry knew for Joris of Feringa. A glance told him there were words between them. Even from where he stood he could see Dirk was white and taut. Joris hot and flushed. He crossed the grass swiftly. He knew that it was their policy to avoid quarrels in the college. "'Sirs, what is this?' he asked. The students looked at him. Some seemed amused, some excited. His heart gave a sick throb as he saw that their glances were both unfriendly and doubtful. One gave him half-scornful information. Thy friend was caught with an unholy forbidden book, though he denies it. He cast it into the river sooner than allow us a sight of it, and now he is bitter with Joris's commentary thereon. Dirk saw Thierry and turned his pale face toward him. This churl insulted me, he said. Yea, laid hands upon me. A burst of half-angry, half-good-humoured laughter came from Joris. I cannot get the little youth to fight by Christius, his mother. He is afraid because I could break his neck between my finger and thumb. Dirk flashed burning eyes over him. I am not afraid. Never could I fear such as thee. But neither my profession nor my degree permit me to brawl. Be silent and be gone. The tone could not fail to rouse the other. Who art thou, he shouted, to speak as if thou wert a noble son? I did but touch thy arm to get the book. The rest joined in. Certe, he did no more, and what was the book? Dirk held himself very proudly. I will no more be questioned than I will be touched. Fine words for a paltry Flemish knave, jeered one of the students. Words I can make good, flashed Dirk, and turned towards the college. Joris was springing after him when Thierry caught his arm. "'Tis but a peevish youth, he said. The other shook himself free and stared after the bright figure in silk. "'He called me a son of a Thiringa thief,' he muttered. A laugh rose from the group. "'How knew he that? From the unholy book?' Joris frowned heavily. His wrath flared in another direction. Yach! Silence! 
Son of a British swineherd, thou red face. The group seethed into fisticuffs. Thierry followed Dirk across the gardens. End of section six. Part one. Chapter seven. Spells. Thierry found Dirk as he was passing under the arched colonnade. Prudence, he quoted, where is your prudence now? Dirk turned quickly. I had to put on a bold front. Certes, I hate that knave. But let him go now. Come with me. Thierry followed him through the college, up the dark stairway, into his chamber. It was a low, arched room looking on to the garden, barely furnished, and containing only the bed, a chair, and some books on a shelf. Dirk opened the window on the sun-flushed twilight. "'The students are jealous of me because of my reputation with the doctors,' he said, smiling. "'One told me today I was the most learned youth in the college. "'And how long have we been here? But ten months.' "'Thierry was silent. "'The triumph in his companion's voice could find no echo in his heart, "'neither in his legitimate studies nor in his secret experiments.' had he been as successful as Dirk, who in ancient and modern lore, in languages, algebra, theology, oratory, had far outshone all competitors, and who had progressed dangerously in forbidden things. Thierry shook off the feeling of jealousy that possessed him, and spoke on another subject. "'Dirk, I saw a lady today, such a lady!' Eh, twas in the valley, a valley, I mean, which I had never seen before. Oh, Dirk! He was leaning against the end of the bed, gazing across the dusk. Twas a lady so sweet she had— Dirk interrupted him. Certes, he cried angrily. She had grey eyes, belike, and yellow hair. Have they not always yellow hair, and a mincing mouth, and a manner of glancing sideways, and cunning words? I'll warrant me. Why, she had all this, answered Thierry, bewildered. But she was pleasant, had you but seen her, Dirk. The youth sneered. Who is she, thy lady? Jacobia, of Martzburg. He took obvious pleasure in saying her name. She is a great lady, and gracious. Out on ye, exclaimed Dirk passionately. What is she to us? Have we not other matters to think of? I did not think ye so weak as to come chanting the praises of the first thing that smiles on ye. Thierry was angered. Tis not the first time. And what have I said of her? Oh, enough! Ye have lost your heart to her, I doubt not. And what use will ye be, a lovesick knave? Nay, answered Thierry hotly, you have no warrant for this speech. How should I love the lady, seeing her once? I did but say she was fair and gentle. "'Tis the first woman you have spoken of to me, in that voice. Did ye not say, such a lady?' Thierry felt the blood stinging his cheeks. "'Could you have seen her?' he repeated. "'Ay, had I seen her, I could tell you how much paint she wore, how tight her lace was.' Thierry interrupted. "'I'll hear no more. 
art a peevish youth, knowing nothing of women. She was one of God's roses, pink and white, and we not fit to kiss her little shoes. Eh, that's pure truth. Dirk struggled for a moment with a heaving breast and closed his teeth over a rebellious lip. Then he crossed the room and opened the door of an inner chamber. He had obtained permission to use this apartment for his studies. The key of it he carried always with him, and only he and Thierry had ever entered it. In silence, lighting a lamp and placing it on the window sill, he beckoned Thierry to follow him. It was a dismal room. Piled against the walls were the books Dirk had brought with him, and on the open hearth some dead, charred sticks lay scattered. See, said Dirk. He drew from a dark corner a roughly carved wooden figure, some inches high. I wrought this today, and if I know the spells aright, there is one will pay for his insolence. Thierry took the figure in his hand. Tis yours of Thuringa. Dirk nodded somberly. The room was thick with unhealthy odors, and a close, stagnant smoke seemed to hang round the roof. The lamp cast a pulsating yellow light over the dreariness, and threw strange shaped shadows from the jars and bottles standing about the floor. What is this Yoris to you? asked Thierry curiously. Dirk was unrolling a manuscript inscribed in Persian. Nothing. I would see what skill I have. The old evil excitement seized Thierry. They had tried spells before, on cattle and dogs, but without success. His blood tingled at the thought of an enchantment potent to confound enemies. Light the fire, commanded Dirk. Thierry set the image by the lamp and poured a thick yellow fluid from one of the bottles over the dead sticks. Then he flung on a handful of grey powder. A close, dun-coloured vapour rose, and a sickly smell filled the room. Then the sticks burst suddenly into a tall and beautiful flame that sprang noiselessly up the chimney and cast a clear and unnatural glow round the chamber. Thierry drew three circles round the fire, and marked the outer one with characters taken from the manuscripts Dirk held. Dirk was looking at him as he knelt in the splendid glow of the flames, and his own heavy brows were frowning. "'Was she beautiful?' he asked abruptly. Thierry took this as an atonement for the late ill-temper, and answered pleasantly, "'Why, she was beautiful, Dirk.' And fair? Certes, yellow hair. No more of her, said the youth, in a kind of fierce mournfulness. The legend is finished? Yea. Thierry rose from his knees. And now? Dirk was anointing the little image of the student on the breast, the eyes, and mouth, with a liquid poured from a purple vial. Then he set it within the circle round the flame. "'Tis carved of ash plucked from a churchyard,' he said, "'and the ingredients of the fire are correct. "'Now, if this fails, Zerdusht lies.' "'He stepped up to the fire and addressed an invocation in Persian to the soaring flame, "'then retreated to Thierry's side. 
The whole room was glowing in the clear red light cast by the unholy fire. The cobweb-hung rafters, the gaunt walls, the books and jars on the bare floor were all distinctly visible, and the two could see each other, red from head to foot. "'Look,' said Dirk, with a slow smile. The image lying in the magic circle, and almost touching the flames, though not burnt or even scorched, was beginning to writhe and twist on its back like a creature in pain. "'Ah!' Dirk showed his teeth. "'The Magian spell has worked!' A sensation of giddiness seized Thierry. He heard something beating loud and fast in his ear, it seemed, but he knew it was his heart that thumped so up and down. The figure, horribly like Yoris, with its flat hat and student's robe, was struggling to its feet and emitting little moans of agony. "'It cannot get out!' breathed Thierry. "'Nay,' whispered Dirk, "'wherefore did ye draw the circle?' The flame was a column of pure fire, and it cast a glow of gold on the thing imprisoned in the ring Thierry had made. Dirk watched in an eager way, with neither fear nor compunction, but Thierry felt a wave of sickness mount to his brain. The creature was making useless endeavors to escape from the fiery glare. It groaned and fell on its face, twisted on its back, and made frantic attempts to cross the line that imprisoned it. "'Let it out,' whispered Thierry faintly. But Dirk was elate with success. "'Ye are mad,' he retorted. "'The spell works bravely.' On the end of his words came a sound that caused both to wince. Even in the lurid light Dirk saw his companion pale. It was the bell of the college chapel ringing the students to the vespers. "'I had forgotten,' muttered Dirk. "'We must go. It would be noticed.' "'We cannot put the fire out,' cried Thierry. "'Nay, we must leave it. It must burn out,' answered Dirk hurriedly. The creature, after rushing round the circle in an attempt to escape, had fallen, as if exhausted with its agony, and lay quivering. "'We will leave him, too,' said Dirk unpleasantly. But Thierry had a tearing memory of a lady kneeling among green grasses, and bending towards him with a dead bird in her hand, tears for it on her cheeks. A dead bird, and this— he stooped and snatched up the creature. It shrieked dismally as he touched it, and he felt the quick flame burn his fingers. Instantly the fire had sunk into ashes, and he held in his hand a mere morsel of charred wood. With a sound of disgust he flung this on the ground. "'Should have let it burn,' said Dirk, with the lamp held aloft to show him the way across the now dark chamber." Perchance we cannot relight it, and I have not finished with the ugly knave. They stepped into the outer chamber, and Dirk locked the door. Thierry gasped to feel the fresher air in his nostrils, and a sense of terror clouded his brain. But Dirk was in high spirits. His eyes narrowed with excitement, 
his pale lips set in a hard fashion. They descended into the hall. Without a word to each other, but side by side, the two students passed into the antechamber that led into the chapel, and there they stopped. The pale rays of a candle dispersed the gathering dark and revealed a group of men standing together and conversing in whispers. "'Why do they not enter the church?' breathed Thierry with a curious sensation at his heart. "'Something has happened.' Some of the students turned and saw them. They were forced to come forward. Dirk was silent and smiling. "'Have you heard?' asked one. All were sober and subdued. "'A horrible thing,' said another. "'Joris of Thuringia is struck with a strange illness. Certes, he fell down amongst us, as if in the grip of hellfire.' The speaker crossed himself. Thierry could not answer. He felt that they were all looking at him, suspiciously, accusingly, and he trembled. "'We carried him up to his chamber,' said another. He shrieked and tore at his flesh, imploring us to keep the flames off. The priest is with him now. God guard us from unholy things.' "'Why do you say that?' demanded Thierry fiercely. "'Belike his disease was but natural.' A look passed round the students. "'I know not,' one muttered. "'It was strange.' Dirk, still smiling and silent, turned into the chapel. Thierry and the others, hushing their surmises, followed. There were candles on the altar, six feet high, and a confusion of the senses overcame Thierry in which he saw them as white angels with flaming halos coming grievingly for his destruction. A wave of fear and sorrow rushed over him. He sank on his knees on the stone floor, and fixed his eyes on the priest, whose chasuble was gleaming gold through the dimness of the incense-filled chapel. The blasphemy and mortal sin of what he had done sickened and frightened him. Was not his being here the most horrible blasphemy of all? He had no right. He had made false confessions to the priest. He had received absolution on lies. Daily he had come here, worshipping God with his lips and Satan with his heart. A groan broke from him. He bowed his beautiful face in his hands, and his shoulders shook. He thought of Joris of Thuringia, writhing in the agony caused by their unhallowed spells, of the eager devils crowding to their service, and far away, in a blinding white mist, he seemed to see the ark of the saints and angels looking down on him while he fell away, farther, farther, into unfathomable depths of darkness. With an uncontrollable movement of agony, he looked up, and his starting eyes fell on the figure of Dirk, kneeling in front of him. The youth's calm both horrified and soothed him. There he knelt, who had but a little while before been playing with devils, with a face as unmoved as a sculptured saint, with a placid brow, quiet eyes, and hands folded on his breviary. 
he seemed to feel Thierry's intense gaze, for he looked swiftly round, and a look of caution, of warning, shot under his white lids. Thierry's glance fell. His companions were singing, with uplifted faces, but he could not join them. The pillars with their foliated capitals oppressed him by their shadow. The saints glowing in mosaic on the drums of the arches frightened him with the unforgiving look in their long eyes. Laudate puri dominum, laudate nomen domini, sit nomen domini benedictum, ex hoc nuc eus in saculum, a solicitusque ad ocasum, laudable nomen domini. The fresh young voices rose lustily. The church was full of incense and music. Thierry rose with the hymn singing in his head, and left the chapel. The singers cast curious glances at him as he passed, and when he reached the door, he heard a patter of feet behind him, and turned to see Dirk at his elbow. "'I have done with it,' he said hoarsely. Dirk's eyes were flaming. "'Do you want to make public confession?' he demanded, breathing hard. "'Remember, it is our lives to pay if they discover.' Thierry shuddered. "'I cannot pray. I cannot stay in the church. For days I have felt the blessing scorch me.' "'Come upstairs,' said Dirk. "'As they went down the long hall, "'they met one who was a friend of Joris of Thuringa. "'Dirk stopped. "'Hast come from the sick man?' "'Yea. "'Is he mending?' "'Thierry stared with wild eyes, waiting the answer. "'I know not,' said the youth. "'He lies in a swoon and pants for breath. "'He passed on, something abruptly. "'Art afraid?' "'asked Dirk quietly. "'Yea, I am afraid.' "'So am not I,' answered Dirk composedly. "'I cannot stay here,' breathed Thierry with agonized brows. "'Dirk bit his forefinger. "'Nay, for we have but little money, "'and know all these pendants can teach us. "'Tis time we began to lay the cornerstones of our fortune.' "'Talk not to me of fortunes,' I have set my soul in deadly peril. I cannot pray. I cannot take the names of holy things upon my lips, said Thierry. Is this your courage? said Dirk softly. Is this your ambition, your loyalty to me? Would you run whining to a priest with a secret that is mine as well as yours? Is this, O oh noble youth, what all your dreams have faded to? Thierry groaned. I know not. I know not. Dirk came slowly nearer. Is this to be the end of comradeship, our league? He took the other's slack hand in his, and as he seldom offered or suffered a touch, Thierry thrilled at it as a great mark of affection, and at the feel of the smooth, cool fingers, the fascination, the temptation, that this youth stood for stirred his pulses. Still, he could not forget the stern angel he thought he had seen upon the altar, and the way his tongue had refused to move when he had striven to pray. Belike, 
I have gone too far to turn back, he panted with questioning eyes. Dirk dropped his hand. Be of me or not with me, he said coldly. Surely I can't stand alone. Nay, answered Thierry. Certes, I love thee. Dirk, as I have never cared for any, do I care for thee. Dirk stepped back and looked at him out of half-closed eyes. Well, do not stop to palter with talk of priests. Certainly I will be faithful to you unto death and damnation, and be you true to me. Thierry made a movement to answer, but a sudden and violent knock on the door checked him. They looked at each other, and the same swift thoughts came to each. The students had suspected, had come to take them by surprise, and the consequences. For a second, Dirk shook with suppressed wrath. "'Curse the Magian spell!' he muttered. "'Curse Zerdusht and his foul bruise, for we are trapped and undone!' Thierry sprang up and tried the inner door. "'Tis secure,' he said. He was now quite calm. "'I have the key,' Dirk laid his hand on his breast, then snatched a couple of volumes from the shelves and flung them on the table. The knock was repeated. "'Unbolt the door,' said Thierry. He seated himself at the table and opened one of the volumes. Dirk slipped the bolt. The door sprang back, and a number of students, headed by a monk bearing a crucifix, surged into the room. "'What do you want?' demanded Dirk, fronting them quietly. "'You interrupt our studies.' The priest answered sternly. There are strange and horrible accusations against you, my son, that you must disprove. What accusations? asked Dirk. His demeanor appeared to have changed as completely as Thierry's had done. He had lost his assured calm. His defiant bearing was maintained by an obvious effort, and his lips twitched with agitation. The students murmured and forced further into the room. The monk answered, Ye are suspected of procuring the dire illness of Joris of Thuringa by spells. It is a lie, said Dirk faintly, and without conviction. But Thierry replied boldly, Upon what do you base this charge, father? The monk was ready. Upon your strange and close behavior, the two of you, upon our ignorance of whence you came, upon the suddenness of the youth's illness after words passed between him and Master Dirk. A put in one of the students eagerly, and he lapped water like a dog. I have seen a light here well into the night, said another. And why left they before the vespers were finished, demanded a third. Thierry smiled. He felt that they were discovered, but fear was far from him. These are childish accusations, he answered. Get you gone to find a better. Dirk, who had retreated behind the table, spoke now. Ye smirch us with wanton words, he said pantingly. It is a lie. Will you swear to that? asked the monk quickly. Thierry interposed. Search the chamber, my father. I warrant you have already been peering through mine. Yea, and you found? Nothing. Then you are not content, cried Dirk. The murmur of the students swelled into an angry cry. Nay, K 
Can ye not spirit away your implements if ye be wizards? Great skill do you credit us with, smiled Thierry, but on nothing you can prove nothing. Although he knew that he could never allay their suspicions, it occurred to him that it might be possible to prevent the discovery of what the locked room held, and in that case, though they might have to leave the college, their lives would be safe. He snatched up the lantern and held it aloft. See you anything here? They stared round the bare walls with eager, straining eyes. One came to the table and turned over the volumes there. Seneca! He flung them down with disappointment. The priest advanced and gazed about him. Dirk stood silent and scornful. Thierry was bold to defy them all. I see no holy thing, said the monk, neither virgin, nor saint, nor prie nor holy water. Dirk's eyes flashed fiercely. Here is my breviary, he pointed to it on the table. One of the students cried, Where is the key? To the inner chamber. There were three or four of them about the door. Dirk, turning to see them striving with the handle, went ghastly pale and could not speak. But Thierry broke out into great wrath. The room is disused. No affair of mine or Dirk. We know nothing of it. Will you swear? asked the priest. Certes, I will swear. But the student, struggling with the door, cried out, Dirk Renswode asked for this room for his studies. I do know it, and he had the key. Dirk gave a great start. Nay, nay, he said hurriedly, I have no key. Search, my sons, said the priest. Their blood was up. Some ten or twelve had crowded into the chamber. They hurled the books off the shelves, scattered the garments out of the coffer, pulled the quilt off the bed, and turned up the mattress. Finding nothing, they turned on Dirk. He has the key about him. All eyes were now fixed on the youth, who stood a little in front of Thierry, he continuing to hold the lamp scornfully aloft to aid them in their search. The light rested on Dirk's shoulders, causing the bright silk to glitter, and flickered in his short, waving hair. There was no trace of color in his face. His brows were raised and gathered into a hard frown. "'Have you the key of that chamber?' demanded the priest. Dirk tried to speak, but could not find his voice. He moved his head stiffly in denial. "'But answer,' insisted the monk. "'What should it avail me if I swore?' The words seemed wrenched from him. "'Would ye believe me?' His eyes were bright with hate of all of them. "'Swear on this,' the monk proffered the crucifix. Dirk did not touch it. "'I have no key.' he said. There is your answer, flashed Thierry, and set the lamp on the table. The foremost student laughed. Search him, he cried. His garments, belike he has the key in his breast. Again Dirk gave a great start. The table was between him and his enemies. It was the only protection he had. Thierry, knowing that he must have the key upon him, saw the end and was prepared to fight it finally. "'What are ye going to do now?' he challenged. For answer, one of them leant across the table 
and seized Dirk by the arm, swinging him easily into the center of the room. Another caught his mantle. A yell of, Search him! arose from the others. Dirk bent his head in a curious manner, snatched the key from inside his shirt, and flung it on the floor. Instantly they let go of him to pick it up, and he staggered back beside Thierry. "'Do not let them touch me,' he said. "'Do not let them touch me.' "'Art a coward?' answered Thierry angrily. "'Now we are utterly lost.' He thrust Dirk away as if he would abandon him, but that youth caught hold of him in desperation. "'Do not leave me. They will tear me to pieces.' The students were rushing through the unlocked door, shouting for lights. The priest caught up the lamp and followed them. The two were left in darkness. "'Ye are a fool,' said Thierry. "'With some cunning the key might have been saved.' A horrid shout arose from those in the inner chamber, as they discovered the remains of the incantations. Thierry sprang to the window, Dirk after him. "'Thierry! Gentle Thierry!' Take me also. Can see I am helpless? Ah! I am small and pitiful. Thierry! Thierry had one leg over the window-sill. Come then, in the fiend's name, he answered. A hoarse shout told them the students had found the little image of Joris. Those still on the stairway saw them at the window. Thierry helped Dirk on to the window-ledge. The night air blew hot on their faces, and they felt warm rain falling on them. There was no light anywhere. The students were yelling in a thick fury as they discovered the unholy ungents and implements. They turned suddenly and dashed to the window. Thierry swung himself by his hands, then let go. With a shock that jarred every nerve in his body, he landed on the balcony of the room beneath. "'Jump!' he called up to Dirk, who still crouched on the window-sill. "'Ah! Soul of mine! Ah! I cannot!' Dirk stared through the darkness in a wild endeavour to discern Thierry. "'I am holding out my arms! Jump!' The students had knocked over the lamp, and it had checked them for the moment. But Dirk, looking back, saw the room flaring with fresh lights and seething figures pushing up to the window. He closed his eyes and leapt in the darkness. The distance was not great. Thierry half caught him. He half staggered against the balcony. A torch was thrust out of the window above them. Frenzied faces looked down. Thierry pushed Dirk roughly through the window before them, which opened onto the library, and followed. "'Now, for our lives!' he said." They ran down the dark length of the chamber and gained the stairs. The students, having guessed their design, were after them. They could hear the clatter of feet on the upper landing. How many stairs? How many before they reached the hall? Dirk tripped and fell. Thierry dragged him up. A breathless youth overtook them. Thierry, panting, turned and struck him backwards, sprawling. So they reached the hall fled along it and out into the dark garden. A minute after, the pursuers, bearing lights and half delirious with wrath and terror, surged out of the college doors. Thierry caught Dirk's arm and they ran, across the thick grass, crashing through the bushes, 
trampling down the roses, blindly through the dark till the shouts and the lights grew fainter behind them, and they could feel the trunks of trees impeding them, and so knew that they must have reached the forest. Then Thierry let go of Dirk, who sank down by his side and lay sobbing in the grass. End of Section 7 Part 1 Chapter 8 The Castle Thierry spoke angrily through the dark. Little fool, we are safe enough. They think the devil has carried us off. Be silent. Dirk gasped from where he lay. I'm not afraid, but spent. They have gone? Eh, said Thierry, peering about him. There was no trace of light anywhere in the murky dark, nor any sound. He put his hand out and touched the wet trunk of a tree, resting his shoulder against this, for he also was exhausted. He considered angrily the situation. "'Have you any money?' he asked. "'Not one white piece.' Thierry felt in his own pockets. Nothing. Their plight was pitiable. Their belongings were in the college, probably by now being burnt with a sprinkling of holy water. They were still close to those who would kill them upon sight, with no means of escape. Daylight must discover them if they lingered, and how to be gone before daylight. If they tried to wander in this dark, likely enough they would, but find themselves at the college gates. Thierry cursed softly. Little avail our enchantments now, he commented bitterly. It was raining heavily, drumming on the leaves above them, splashing from the boughs and dripping on the grass. Dirk raised himself feebly. "'Cannot we get shelter?' he asked peevishly. "'I am all bruised, shaken, and wet. Wet!' "'Likely enough,' responded Thierry grimly. "'But unless the charms you know, Zerdusht's incantations and Magian spells, can avail to spirit us away, we must even stay where we are.' "'Ah! My manuscripts! My vials and bottles!' cried Dirk. "'I left them all!' They will burn them, said Thierry. Plague, blast, and blight the thieving, spying knaves, answered Dirk fiercely. He got on to his feet and supported himself the other side of the tree. Certes, curse them all, said Thierry, if it anything helps. He felt anger and hate towards the priest and his followers, who had hounded him from the college. No remorse stung him now. Their action had swung him violently back into his old mood of defiance and hard-heartedness. His one thought was neither repentance nor shame, but a hot desire to triumph over his enemies and outwit their pursuit. "'My ankle!' moaned Dirk. "'Oh, I cannot stand!' Thierry turned to where the voice came out of the blackness. "'Deafen me not with thy complaints, weakling,' he said fiercely. "'hast behaved in a cowardly fashion to-night.' "'Dirk was silent before a new phase of Thierry's character. "'He saw that his hold on his companion "'had been weakened by his display of fear, "'his easy surrender of the key. "'He put out his hand round the tree "'and touched the wet silk mantle. "'Despite the heat, Dirk was shivering. 
What shall we do? he asked, and strove to keep his teeth from chattering. If we might journey to Frankfurt. Why Frankfurt? Certes, I know an old witch there who was friendly to Master Lucas, and she would receive us, surely. We cannot reach Frankfurt or any place without money. How dark it is! Ugh! How it rains! I am wet to the skin, and my ankle! Thierry set his teeth. We will get there in spite of them. Are we so easily daunted? Thierry stared about him, and saw in one part of the universal darkness a small light with a misty halo about it, slowly coming nearer. A traveller, said Thierry. Now shall he see us or no? Belike, he would show us on our way, whispered Dirk, if he be not from the college. Nay, he rides. They could hear now through the monotonous noise of the rain the sound of a horse, slowly, cautiously advancing. The light swung and flickered in a changing oval that revealed faintly a man holding it and a horseman whose bridle he caught with the other hand. They came at a walking pace, for the path was unequal and slippery, and the illumination afforded by the lantern feeble at best. The horseman and his attendant were now quite close. The light showed the overgrown path they came upon, the wet foliage either side, and the slanting silver rain. Thierry stepped out before them. Sir, he said, know you of any habitation other than the town of Baal? The rider was wrapped in a mantle to his chin and wore a pointed felt hat. He looked sharply under this at his questioner. My own, he said, and halted his horse, a third of a league from here. At first he had seemed fearful of robbers, for his hand had sought the knife in his belt. But now he took it away and stared curiously, attracted by the student's dress and the obvious beauty of the young man who was looking straight at him with dark, challenging eyes. We should be indebted for your hospitality, even the shelter of your barns, said Thierry. The horseman's glance travelled to Dirk, shivering in his silk. Clerks from the college? he questioned. Yea, answered Thierry. We were. But I sorely wounded one in a fight, and fled. My comrade chose to follow me. The stranger touched up his horse. Certes, you may come with me. I wot there is room enow. The light held by the servant showed a muddy, twisting path, the shining wet trunks, the glistening leaves either side, the great brown horse steaming and passive with his bright scarlet trappings and his rider muffled in a mantle to the chin. Dirk looked at man and horse quickly in silence. Thierry spoke. It is an ill night to be abroad. I have been in town, answered the stranger, buying silks for my lady. And you? So you killed a man? He is not dead, answered Thierry but we shall never return to the college. The horseman had a soft and curiously pleasing voice. He spoke as if he cared nothing what he said or how he was answered. Where will you go? he asked. To Frankfurt, said Thierry. 
The emperor is there now, though he leaves for Rome within the year, they say, remarked the horseman. And the empress. Have you seen the empress? Thierry put back the boughs that trailed across the path. No, he said. Of what town are you? Cotregue. The empress was there a year ago, and did you not see her? One of the wonders of the world, they say, the empress. I have heard of her, said Dirk, speaking for the first time. But, sir, we go not to Frankfurt to see the empress. Likely ye do not, answered the horseman, and was silent. They cleared the wood and were crossing a sloping space of grass, the rain full in their faces. Then they again struck a well-worn path, now leading upwards among scattered rocks. As they must wait for the horse to get a foothold on the slippery stones, for the servant to go ahead and cast the lantern light across the blackness, their progress was slow. But neither of the three spoke until they halted before a gate in a high wall that appeared to rise up suddenly before them out of the night. The servant handed the lantern to his master and clanged the bell that hung beside the gate. Thierry could see by the massive size of the buttress that flanked the entrance that it was a large castle the knight concealed from him, the dwelling, certainly, of some great noble. The gates were opened by two men carrying lights. The horseman rode through, the two students at his heels. "'Tell my lady,' he said to one of the men, "'that I bring two who desire her hospitality.' He turned and spoke over his shoulder to Thierry. I am the steward here. My lady is very gentle-hearted. They crossed a courtyard and found themselves before the square door of the donjon. Dirk looked at Thierry, but he kept his eyes lowered and was markedly silent. Their guide dismounted, gave the reins to one of the valets who hung about the door, and commanded them to follow him. The door opened straight on to a large chamber the entire size of the donjon. It was lit by torches stuck into the wall and fastened by iron clamps. A number of men stood or sat about, some in livery of bright golden-colored and blue cloth, others in armor or hunting attire. One or two were pilgrims with the cockle shells round their hats. The steward passed through this company, who saluted him, with but little attention to his companions, and ascended a flight of stairs set in the wall at the far end. These were steep, damp, and gloomy, ill-lit by a lamp placed in the niche of the one narrow, deep-set window. Dirk shuddered in his soaked clothes. The steward was unfastening his mantle. It left trails of wet on the stone steps. Thierry marked it. He knew not why. At the top of the stairs, they paused on a small stone landing. "'Who is your lady?' asked Thierry. "'Jacobia of Martzburg, the Emperor's ward,' answered the steward. He had taken off his mantle and his hat, and showed himself to be young and dark, plainly dressed in a suit of deep rose colour, with high boots, spurred, and a short sword in his belt. As he opened the door, Dirk whispered to Thierry, "'It is the lady ye met to-day?' "'To-day,' breathed Thierry. "'Yea, it is the lady.' 
they entered by a little door and stepped into an immense chamber. The great size of the place was emphasized by the bareness of it, and the dim, shifting light that fell from the circles of candles hanging from the roof. Facing them in the opposite wall was a high arched window, faintly seen in the shadows. To the left, a huge fireplace with a domed top meeting the wooden supports of the lofty beamed roof. Beside this, a small door stood open on a flight of steps, and beyond were two windows, deep set and furnished with stone seats. The brick walls were hung with tapestries of a dull purple and gold color, the beams of the ceiling painted. At the far end was a table, and in the center of the hearth lay a slender white boarhound asleep. So vast was the chamber, and so filled with shadows, that it seemed as if empty save for the dog. But Thierry, after a second, discerned the figures of two ladies in the farthest window seat. The steward crossed to them, and the students followed. One lady sat back in the niche seat, her feet on the stone ledge, her arm along the window sill. She wore a brown dress shot with gold thread, and behind her and along the seat hung and lay draperies of blue and purple. On her lap rested a small gray cat, asleep. The other lady sat along the floor on cushions of crimson and yellow. Her green dress was twisted tight about her feet, and she stitched a scarlet lily on a piece of red samite. This is the chatelaine, said the steward. The lady in the window seat turned her head. It was Jacobia of Martzburg, as Thierry had known since his eyes first rested on her. And this is my wife, Sibylla. Both women looked at the strangers. These are your guests until tomorrow, my lady, said the steward. Jacobia leant forward. Oh, she exclaimed and flushed faintly. Why, you are welcome. Thierry found it hard to speak. He cursed the chance that had made him beholden to her hospitality. We are leaving the college, he answered, not looking at her, and for tonight could find no shelter. Meeting them, I brought them here, added the steward. You did well, Sebastian, surely, answered Jacobia. Will it please you to sit, sirs? It seemed that she would leave it at that, with neither question nor comment. But Sibylla, the steward's wife, looked up smiling from her embroidery. Now wherefore left you the college, on foot, on a wet night? she said. I killed a man, or nearly, answered Thierry curtly. Jacobia looked at her steward. Are they not wet, Sebastian? I am well enough, said Thierry quickly. He unclasped his mantle. Certes, under this I am dry. That am not I, cried Dirk. At the sound of his voice, both women looked at him. He stood apart from the others, and his great eyes were fixed on Jacobia. The rain has cut me to the skin, he said, and Thierry crimsoned for shame at his complaining tone. It is true, answered Jacobia courteously. Sebastian, will you not take the gentle clerk to a chamber? We have enough empty, I wot. "'and give him another habit?' 
"'Mine are too large,' said the steward, in his indifferent voice. "'The youth will fall with an ague,' remarked his wife. "'Give him something, Sebastian. "'I warrant he will not quarrel about the fit.' "'Sebastian turned to the open door beside the fireplace. "'Follow him, fair sir,' said Jacobia gently. "'Dirk bent his head and ascended the stairs after the steward.' The chatelaine pulled a red bell rope that hung close to her, and a page in gold and blue livery came after a while. She gave him instructions in a low voice. He picked up Thierry's wet mantle, set him a carved chair, and left. Thierry seated himself. He was alone with the two women, and they were silent, not looking at him. A sense of distraction, of uneasiness, was over him. He wished that he was anywhere but here, sitting a dumb suppliant in this woman's presence. Furtively he observed her, her clinging gown, her little velvet shoes beneath the hem of it, her long white hands resting on the soft grey fur of the cat on her knee, her yellow hair knotted on her neck, and her lovely, meek face. Then he noticed the steward's wife, Sibylla. She was pale, of a type not greatly admired or belauded, but gorgeous, perhaps to the taste of some. Her russet red hair was splendid in its gleam through the gold net that confined it. Her mouth was a beautiful shape and color, but her brows were too thick, her skin too pale, and her blue eyes overbright and hard. Thierry's glance came back to Jacobia. His pride rose that she did not speak to him, but sat there idle as if she had forgotten him. Words rose to his lips, but he checked them and was mute, flushing now and then as she moved in her place, and still did not speak. Presently the steward returned and took his place on a chair between Thierry and his wife, for no reason save that it happened to be there, it seemed. He played with the tagged laces on his sleeves and said nothing. The mysterious atmosphere of the place stole over Thierry with a sense of the portentous. He felt that something was brooding over these quiet people who did not speak to each other, something intangible yet horrible. He clasped his hands together and stared at Jacobia. Sebastian spoke at last. You go to Frankfurt? Yea, answered Thierry. We also soon, do we not, Sebastian? said Jacobia. You will go to the court? said Thierry. I am the emperor's ward, she answered. Again there was silence. Only the sound of the silk drawn through the Samite as Sibylla stitched the red lily. Her husband was watching her. Thierry, glancing at him, saw his face fully for the first time, and was half startled. It was a passionate face, in marked contrast with his voice, a dark face with a high arched nose and long black eyes, a strange face. "'How quiet the castle is tonight,' said Jacobia. Her voice seemed to faint beneath the weight of the stillness. "'There is noise enough below,' answered Sebastian, "'but we cannot hear it.' The page returned, 
carrying a salver bearing tall glasses of wine, which he offered to Thierry, then to the steward. Thierry felt the green glass cold to his fingers, and shuddered. Was that sense of something awful impending, only matter of his own mind, stored of late with terrible images? What was the matter with these people? Jacobia had seemed so different this afternoon. He tasted the wine. It burnt and stung his lips, his tongue, and sent the blood to his face. It still rains, said Jacobia. She put her hand out of the open window and brought it back wet. But it is hot, said Sibylla. Once more the heavy silence. The page took back the glasses and left the room. Then the place beside the fireplace was pushed open, and Dirk entered softly into the mute company. End of section 8 Part 1 Chapter 9 Sebastian He wore a flame-colored mantle that hung about him in heavy folds, and under that a tight yellow doublet. His hair drooped smoothly. There was a bright color in his face, and his eyes sparkled. "'Ye are merry,' he mocked, glancing round him. "'Will you that I play or sing?' He looked, in his direct burning way, at Jacobia, and she answered hastily, "'Certes, with all my heart, the air is hot and thick tonight.' Dirk laughed, and Thierry stared at him, bewildered. So utterly had his demeanor changed. He was gay now, radiant. He leant against the wall in the center of them, and glanced from one silent face to another. I can play rarely, he smiled. Jacobia took an instrument from among the cushions in the window seat. It was red, with a heart-shaped body, a long neck, and three strings. You can play this? she asked in a half-frightened manner. Eh? Dirk came forward and took it. I will sing you a fine tune, surely. I will sing you the tune of a foolish lady, he smiled. His shadow was heavy on the wall behind him. The dark purple hues of the tapestry threw into brilliant relief the flame hues of his robe and the clear pale color of his strange face. He held the instrument across his knees and commenced playing on it with the long bow Jacobia had given him. An irregular quick melody arose, harsh and jeering. After he had played a while, he began to sing, but in a chant under his breath, so that the quality of his voice was not heard. He sang strange, meaningless words at first. The four listening sat very still. Only Sibylla had picked up her sewing, and her fingers rose and fell steadily as the bodkin glittered over the red lily. Thierry hid his face in his hands, he hated the place, the woman quietly sewing, the dark-faced man beside him. He even hated the image of Jacobia, that he saw, as clearly as if he looked at her brightly before him. Dirk broke into a little doggerel rhythm, every word of which was hard and clear. The Turkess in my fine-spun hair was brought to me from Barbarere. My pointed shield is rouge and ver, where mullets three shine royally. 
Now if he guessed he need not wait in poor estate, But on his breast wear all my state and be my maid. For sick for very love am I, My heart is weak to kiss his cheek, But he is low and I am high, I cannot speak for I am weak. Jacobia put the cat among the cushions and rose. She had a curious set smile on her lips. Do you call that the rhyme of a foolish lady? she asked. Ay, for if she had offered her love, surely it had not been refused, answered Dirk, dragging the bow across the strings. You think so? said Jacobia in a shrinking tone. Mark you. She was a rich lady, smiled Dirk, and fair enough, and young, and gentle, and he was poor, so I think. If she had not been so foolish, she might have been his second wife. At these words, Thierry looked up. He saw Jacobia standing in a bewildered fashion, as if she knew not whether to go or stay, and in her eyes an unmistakable look of amazement and horror. The rhyme said nothing of the first wife, remarked Sibylla, without looking up from the red lily. The rhyme says very little, answered Dirk. It is an old story. The squire had a wife, but if the lady had told her love belike, he had found himself a widower. Jacobia touched the steward's wife on the shoulder. Dear heart, she said, I am weary, very weary, with doing naught, and it is late, and the place strange to-night, at least. She gave a trembling smile. I feel it, strange, so good even. Sibylla rose. Jacobia's lips touched her on the forehead. The steward watched them. Jacobia, the taller of the two, stooping to kiss his wife. Thierry got to his feet. The chatelaine raised her head and looked toward him. Tomorrow I will bid you Godspeed, sire. Her blue eyes glazed aside at Dirk, who had moved to the door by the fireplace and held it open for her. She looked back at Thierry, then round in silence and colored swiftly. Sibylla glanced at the sand clock against the wall. Yea, it is near midnight. I will come with you. She put her arm around Jacobia's waist and smiled backwards over her shoulder at Thierry. So they went, the sound of their garments on the stairs making a faint, soft noise. The little cat rose from her cushions stretched herself, and followed them. Sebastian picked up the red silk lily that his wife had flung down on the cushions. The candles were guttering to the iron sockets, making the light in the chamber still dimmer, the corners still more deeply obscured with waving shadows. "'You know your chamber,' said the steward to Dirk. "'You will find me here in the morning. Good night.' "'Good night,' said Thierry heavily. Dirk smiled, and threw himself into the vacated window-seat. The steward crossed the room to the door by which they had entered. He did not look back, though both were watching him. The door closed after him violently, and they were alone in the vast, darkening hall. "'This is fine hospitality,' sneered Dirk. "'Is there none to light us to our chamber?' Thierry walked to and fro, with an irregular, agitated step. "'What was that song of yours?' he asked. "'What did you mean? 
What ails this place and these people? She never looked at me. Dirk pulled at the strings of the instrument he still held. They emitted little wailing sounds. She is pretty, your Chatelaine, he said. I did not think to see her so soon. You love her, or you might love her. Ye mock and sneer at me, answered Thierry hotly, because she is a great dame. I do not love her. And yet— And yet, goaded Dirk, if our arts can do anything for us, could they not, if I wished it, some day get this lady for me? You shall never have her, said Dirk, biting his under lip. Thierry turned on him violently. You cannot tell. Of what use to serve evil for naught? Ye have done with remorse, belike, mocked Dirk. Ye have ceased to long for priests and holy water. Eh, said Thierry recklessly, I shall not falter again. I will take these means, any means. To attain her, Dirk got up from the window seat and rose to his full height. Thierry gave him a sick look. I will not bandy taunts with you. I must sleep a little. They have given us the first chamber ye come to, ascending those stairs, answered Dirk quietly. There is a lamp, and the door is set open. Good night. You will not come? asked Thierry sullenly. Nay, I will sleep here. Why? You are strange tonight. Dirk smiled unpleasantly. There is a reason, a good reason. Get to bed. Thierry left him without an answer, and closed the door upon him. When he had gone, a great change swept over Dirk's face. A look of agony, of distraction, contorted his proud features. He paced softly here and there, twisting his hands together and lifting his eyes blindly to the painted ceiling. Half the candles had flickered out. The others smoked and flared in the sockets. The rain dripping on the windowsill without made an insistent sound. Dirk paused before the vast, bare hearth. He shall never have her, he said in a low, steady voice, as if he saw and argued with some personage facing him. No, you will prevent it. Have I not served you well? Ever since I left the convent? Did you not promise me great power, as the black letters of the forbidden books swam before my eyes? Did I not hear you whispering, whispering? He turned about, as though following a movement in the person he spoke to, and shivered. I will keep my comrade. Do you hear me? Did you send me here to prevent it? They seem to know you were at my elbow tonight. Hush! One comes! The door at the far end of the chamber was slowly opened. A man stepped in and cautiously closed it. A little cry of triumph rose to Dirk's lips, but he repressed it and gave a glance into the pulsating shadows as if he communicated with some mysterious companion. It was Sebastian who had entered. He looked swiftly round and, seeing Dirk, came towards him. In the steward's hand was a little cresset lamp. The clear heart-shaped flame illuminated his dark face and his pink habit. His eyes looked over this light in a burning way at Dirk. So, you are not abed, 
he said. There was more than the aimless comment in his tone, an expectation and excitement. You came to find me, answered Dirk. Why? Sebastian set the lamp on the little bracket by the window. He put his hand to his neck, loosening his doublet, and looked away. It is very hot, he said in a low voice. I cannot rest. I feel to-night as I have never felt. I think the cause is with you. What you said has distracted me. He turned his head. Who are you? What did you mean? You know, answered Dirk, what I am, a poor student from Bow College, and in your heart you know what I meant. Sebastian stared at him a moment. God! But how could you discern, even if it be true, you, a stranger? But now I think of it, belike there is reason in it. Certes, she has shown me favor. Dirk smiled. "'Tis a rich lady. Her husband would be a noble. Think of it. "'What ye put into me,' cried Sebastian, in a distracted voice, "'that I should talk thus to a prating boy. "'But the thought clings and burns, and surely ye are wise.' Dirk, still leaning against the wall, smoothed the arras with delicate fingers. "'Surely I am wise. "'Well skilled in difficult sciences am I.' and quick to see and understand. Take this for your hospitality, Sir Steward. Watch your mistress. Sebastian put his hand to his head. I have a wife. Dirk laughed. Will she live forever? Sebastian looked at him and stammered, as if some sudden sight of terror seared his eyes. There, there is witchcraft in this, your meaning. Think of it, flashed Dirk. "'Remember it. Ye get no more from me.' The steward stood quite still, gazing at him. "'I think that I have lost my wits to-night,' he said in a low voice. "'I do not know what I came down to you for, nor whence come these strange thoughts.' Dirk nodded his head. A small, slow smile trembled on the corners of his lips. "'Perchance I shall see you in Frankfurt?' Sir Steward. Sebastian caught at the words with eagerness. Yea, I go there with my lady. He stopped blankly. As yet, said Dirk, I know neither my dwelling there nor the name I shall assume. But you, if I need to, I shall find you at the Emperor's court? Yea, answered Sebastian. Then reluctantly, what should you want with me? Will it not be you who may need me? smiled Dirk. I, who have to-night put thoughts into your brain that you will not forget? Sebastian turned about quickly and caught up the crescent lamp. I will see you before you go, he whispered, horror in his face. Yea, on the morrow I shall desire more speech with you. Like a man afraid, in terror of himself, filled with a dread of his companion, Sebastian, the pure flame of the lamp quivering with the shaking of his hand, crossed the long chamber, and left by the door through which he had entered. Dirk gave a half-suppressed shiver of excitement. 
The candles had mostly burnt out. The hall seemed monstrous in the gusty, straggling light. He crept to the window. The rain had ceased, and he looked out on a hot, starless darkness, disturbed by no sound. He shivered again, closed the window, and flung himself along the cushions in the niched seat. Lying there where Jacobia had sat, he thought of her. She was more present to his mind than all the crowded incidents of the past day. There were her trembling, passionate emotions, her modest secrets that she guarded delicately. It was his intention to tear open this tabernacle, to wrench from her her treasures and scatter them among blood and ruin. He meant to bring her to utter destruction. Not her body, perhaps, but her soul. And this, because she had interfered with the one being on earth he cared about, Thierry, not because he hated her for herself. How beautiful she is, he said aloud, almost tenderly. The last candle fluttered up and sank out. Dirk, lying luxuriously among the cushions, looked into the complete blackness with half-closed eyes. How beautiful! he repeated. He felt he could have loved her himself. He thought of her now, lying in her white bed, her hair unbound. He wished himself kneeling beside her, caressing those yellow locks. A desire possessed him to touch her curls, her soft cheek, to have her hand in his and hear her laugh. Surely she was a sweet thing, made to be loved." Yet the power that had brought him here tonight had made plain that if he did not take the chance of her destruction set in his way, she would win Thierry from him forever. He had made the first move. In the dark face of Sebastian, the steward, he had seen the beginning of the end. But thinking of her, he felt the tears come to his eyes. Suddenly he fell into weary weeping thinking of her, and sobbed sadly, face downwards on the cushion. Presently he laughed at himself for his tears, and drying them fell asleep, and woke from blank dreamlessness to hear his name ringing in his ears. He sat up in the window seat. His eyes were hot with his late tears. The misty blue light of dawn that he found about him hurt them. He shrank from this light that came in a clear shaft through the arched window, and crouching away from it saw Thierry standing close to him. Dirk, we must go now. I cannot stay any longer in this place. Dirk, leaning his head against the cushions, said nothing, impressed anew with his friend's beauty. How fine and fair a thing Thierry's face was in the colorless early light! in hue and line splendid, in expression wild and pained. I could not sleep much, continued Thierry. I do not want to see them, her, again, not like this. Get up, Dirk. Why did you not come to bed? I wanted your company. Things were haunting me. Mostly her face, breathed Dirk. Eh, said Thierry somberly, mostly her face. Dirk considered. He reflected that he had no desire to meet Sebastian again. 
He had said all he wished to. Let us go, he assented. His one regret was that he should not see again the delicate face crowned with the yellow hair. He rose from the seat and shook out his borrowed flame-colored mantle. Then he closed his tired eyes as he stood, for a very exquisite sensation rushed over him. Nothing had come between him and his friend. Thierry, of his own choice, had roused him, wanting him. They were to go forth together alone. End of Section 9 Part 1 Chapter 10 The Saint They were wandering through the forest in an endeavor to find the high road. The sun, nearly at its full strength, dazzled through the pines and traced figures of gold on the path they followed. Thierry was silent. They were hungry, without money or any hope of procuring any, fatigued with the rough walking through the heat, and also, it seemed, lost. These facts were ever-present to his mind. Also, every step was taking him farther away from Jacobia of Martzburg and he longed to see her again, to make her notice him, speak to him. Yet, of his own desire, he had left her castle ungraciously. These things held him bitterly silent. But Dirk, though he was pale and weary, kept a light, joyous heart. He had trust in the master he was serving. The forest grew up the base of the mountain chain, and after a while, walking steadily, they came out upon a gorge some landslip had torn, uprooting trees and hurling rocks aside over this bare space harshly cleared, water rippled and dripped, finding its way through fern-grown rocks and boulders until it fell into a little stream that ran across the open space of grass and was lost in the shadow of the trees. By the side of it, on the pleasant stretch of grass, a small white horse was browsing, and a man sat near, on one of the uprooted pines. The two students paused and contemplated him. He was a monk in a blue-gray habit. His face was infinitely sweet, with his hands clasped in his lap and his head a little raised as he gazed with large, peaceful eyes through the shifting fir boughs to the blue sky beyond them. Of what use is he? said Thierry bitterly. Since the church had hurled him out, the devil was gaining such sure possession of his soul that he loathed all things holy. Nay, said Dirk with a little smile, we will speak to him. The monk, hearing their voices, looked round and fixed on them a calm, smiling gaze. Dominus de ad nobis suam pacem, he said. Dirk replied instantly, et vitam aeternam, amen. The monk rose and stood in a courteous, humble position. "'Can you put us on the high road, my father?' asked Dirk. "'Surely.' The monk glanced at the weary face of his questioner. "'I am myself travelling from town to town, my son, and know this country well. Will you not rest a while?' "'Eh!' Dirk came down the slope and flung himself along the grass. Thierry, half sullen, followed. "'Ye are both weary and in lack of food,' said the monk gently. "'Praise be to the angels that I have wherewithal to aid ye.' He opened one of the leather bags resting against the fallen tree, took out a loaf, a knife, and a cup, cut the bread, and gave them a portion each. He then filled the cup from the clear, dripping water. 
They disdained thanks for such miserable fare, and ate in silence. Thierry, when he had finished, asked for the remainder of the loaf, and devoured that. Dirk was satisfied with his allowance, but he drank greedily of the beautiful water. "'You have come from Baal?' asked the monk. Dirk nodded. "'And we go to Frankfurt.' "'A long way,' said the monk cheerfully, "'and on foot, but a pleasant journey, certes.' "'Who are you, my father?' asked Thierry abruptly. "'I saw you in Courtreg, surely.' "'I am Ambrose of Menthon,' answered the monk, "'and I have preached in Courtreg to the glory of God.' Both students knew the name of St. Ambrose. Thierry flushed uneasily. "'What do you hear, father?' he asked. "'I thought you were in Rome.' "'I have returned,' replied the saint humbly. "'It came to me that I could serve Christus.' He crossed himself. "'Better here. "'If God his angel will it, "'I desire to build a monastery up yonder, above the snow.' He pointed through the trees towards the mountains, his eyes that were blue-gray, the color of his habit, sparkled softly. A house to God his glory, he murmured, in the whiteness of the snows. That is my intent. How will you attain it, holy sir? questioned Thierry. St. Ambrose did not seem to notice the mocking tone. I have, he said, already considerable monies. I beg in the great castles, and they are generous to God, his poor servant. We, my brethren and I, have sold some land. I return to them now with much gold. Dio gratias. As he spoke, there was such a pure sweetness in his fair face that Thierry turned away, abashed. But Dirk, lying on his side and pulling up the grass, answered, Are you not afraid of robbers, my father? The saint smiled. Nay, God, his money, is sacred even unto the evildoer. "'Surely I fear nothing.' "'There is much wickedness in the heart of man,' said Dirk, and he also smiled. "'Judge with charity,' answered Ambrose of Menthon. "'There is also much goodness. "'You speak, my son, with seeming bitterness, which showeth a soul not yet at peace. "'The wages of the world are worthless, but God giveth immortality.' "'He rose and began fastening the saddlebags on the pony.' As his back was turned, Thierry and Dirk exchanged a quick look. The little procession started through the pine forest, Ambrose of Menthon, erect, spare, walking lightly with untroubled face, and leading the white pony burdened with the saddlebags containing the gold, Thierry, somber, silent, striding beside him, and Dirk a little behind in his flame-colored mantle, his eyes bright in a weary face. And so they came towards evening, onto the road, and saw in a valley beneath them a little town. All three halted. The Angelus was ringing. The sound came sweetly up the valley. St. Ambrose sank on his knees and bowed his head. The other two fell back among the trees. Well, whispered Dirk, it is our chance, frowned Thierry in the same tone. I have been thinking of it all day. I also. There is much money. We could get it without blood? Surely, but if need be, even that. Their eyes met. In the pleasant green shade they saw each other's excited faces. It is God his money, murmured Thierry, 
What matter for that, if the devil be stronger? Hush, the Angelus ends. Now we join him. They sank on their knees, to rise as the saint got to his feet and glanced about him. At the edge of the wood they joined him and looked down at the town below. Now we can find our way, said Dirk in a firm, suddenly changed voice. Ambrose of Menthon considered him over the little white pony. Will you not bear me company into the town? he asked wistfully. He did not notice that Thierry had slipped behind him. Dirk's eyes flashed in a signal to his companion. We will into the town, he said, but without thy company, Sir Saint. Now! Thierry flung his mantle from behind and twisted it tightly over the monk's head and face, causing him to stagger backwards. Dirk rushed, seized his thin hands, and strapped them together with the leather belt he had just loosened from his waist, and between them they dragged him into the trees. "'My ears are weary of thy tedious talk,' said Thierry viciously, "'my eyes of thy sickly face.' They took the straps from the pony and bound their victim to a tree. It was an easy matter, for he made no resistance, and no sound came from under the mantle twisted over his face." Having seen to it that he was securely fastened, the two returned to the pony, and examined their plunder. In one bag there were parchments, books, and a knotted rope. In the other, numerous little linen sacks of varying sizes. These they turned out upon the grass, and swiftly unfastened the strings. Gold! Each one filled with gold! Fine, shining coins with the head of the emperor glittering on them! Dirk retied the sacks and replaced them in the saddlebags. Neither of them had seen so much gold together before. Because of it, they were silent and a little trembling. Thierry, as he heard the good yellow money chink together, felt his last qualms go. For the first time since he had entered into league with the spirits of evil, he had plain evidence it was a fine thing to have the devil on his side. A stupefying pleasure and exultation came over him. He did not doubt that Satan had sent this saintly man their way, and he was grateful. To find himself possessed of this amount of money was a greater delight than any he had known, even a more delightful thing than seeing Jacobia of Martzburg lean across the stream towards him. As they reloaded the pony, managing as best they might without the straps, Dirk fell to laughing. I will get my mantle, said Thierry. He went up to Ambrose of Menthon, telling himself he was not afraid of meeting the saint's eyes, and unwound the heavy mantle from his head. The saint sank together like the dead. Dirk still laughed, mounted on the white pony, flourishing a stick. The fellow has swooned, said Thierry, bewildered. Well, answered Dirk over his shoulder, you can bring the straps, which we need, surely. Thierry unfastened the monk and laid his slack body on the grass. As he did so, he saw that the grey habit was stained with blood. There was wet blood, too, on the straps. "'Now what is this?' he cried, and bent over the unconscious man to see where he was wounded. His searching hand came upon cold iron under the rough robe. Ambrose of Menthon wore a girdle lined with sharp points, that at every movement must have been torture.' and that, at their brutal binding of him, had entered his flesh with an agony unbearable. 
Be quick, urged Dirk. Thierry joined him. What shall we do with that man? He said awkwardly. His blood was burning, leaping. Tis a case for the angels, not for us, answered Dirk. But if ye feel tenderly, and certainly he was pleasant to us, we can tell in the town that we found him. Dio gratias, he mocked the saintly, low, calm voice. But Thierry did not laugh. A splendid yellow sunset was shimmering in their eyes as they came slowly down into the valley and passed through the white street of the little town. They visited the hostel, fed the white pony there, and recounted how they had seen a monk in the wood they had just traversed. Whether unconscious in prayer or for want of breath, they had not the leisure to examine. Then they went on their way, eschewing, by common consent this time, the accommodation of the homely inn, and taking with them a basket of the best food the town afforded. Clearing the scattered cottages, they gained the heights again and paused on the grassy borders of a mighty wood that spread either side of the high road. There they spread a banquet very different from the saints' poor repast. They had yellow wine, red wine, baked meats, cakes, jellies, a heron, and a basket of grapes, all bought with the gold Ambrose of Menthon, had toiled to collect to build God's house amid the snows. Arranging these things on the soft grass, they sat in the pleasant shade, luxuriously, and laughed at each other over their food. Their master had proved worth serving. They toasted him in the wine bought with God his money, and made merry over it. They did not mention Ambrose of Menthon. A troop of white mountain goats driven by a shepherd boy went past. They were the only living things they saw. Dirk watched them going towards the town. Then he said, The Chatelaine, Jacobia of Martsburg, he broke off. Do you remember the first night we met? What we say in the mirror? A woman, was it not? Her face. Have you forgotten it? Nay, answered Thierry, suddenly somber. Dirk turned to look at him closely. It was not Jacobia, was it? It was utterly different, said Thierry. No, she was not Jacobia. He propped a musing face on his hand and stared down at the grass. Dirk did not speak again, and after a while of silence Thierry slept. With a start he woke, but lay without moving, his eyes closed. Someone was singing, and it was so beautiful that he feared to move lest it should be in his dreams only that he heard it. A woman's voice, and she sang loudly and clearly, in a passion of joyous gaiety. Her notes mounted like birds flying up a mountain, then sank like snowflakes softly descending. After a while, the wordless song died away, and Thierry sat up, quivering in a maze of joy. Who is that? he called his eager eyes searching the twilight. No one, nothing but the insignificant figure of Dirk, who sat at the edge of the wood gazing at the stars. I dreamt it, said Thierry bitterly, and cursed his waking. End of section 10 Part 1, Chapter 11, The Witch In a back street of the city of Frankfurt stood an old one-storied house, placed a little apart from the others, 
and surrounded by a beautiful garden. Here lived Natalie, a woman more than suspected of being a witch, but of such outward, quiet, and secretive ways that there never had been the slightest excuse for even those most convinced of her real character to interfere with her. She was from the East, Syria, Egypt, or Persia. No one could remember her first coming to Frankfurt, nor how she had become possessed of the house where she dwelt. Her means of livelihood were also a mystery. It was guessed that she made complexion washes and dyes supplied secretly to the great court ladies. It was believed that she sold love potions, perhaps worse. It was known that in some way she made money, for though generally clothed in rags, she had been seen wearing very splendid garments and rich jewels. Also, it was rumored by those living near that strange sounds of revelry had on occasion arisen from her high-walled garden, as if a great banquet were given, and dark-robed guests had been seen to enter her narrow door. That garden was empty now, and a great stillness lay over the witch's house. The hot midsummer sun glowed in the rose-bushes that surrounded it. Red roses, all of them, and large and beautiful. The windows of the great room at the back of the house had their shutters closed so that only a few squares of light fell through the latticework, and the room was in shadow. It was a barely furnished chamber with an open-tiled hearth on which stood a number of bronze and copper bowls and drinking vessels. In the low window seats were cushions of rich eastern embroidery. Hanging on the walls, hideous distorted masks made of wood and painted fantastically, some short curved swords and a parchment calendar. Before this stood Dirk, marking with a red pencil a day in the row of dates. This done, he stepped back, stared at the calendar, and frowned, sucking the red pencil. He was attired in a grave suit of black and wearing a sober cap that almost concealed his hair. He held himself very erect, and the firm set of his mouth emphasized the prominent jaw and chin. As he stood there, deep in thought, Thierry entered, nodded at him, and crossed to the window. He also was dressed in dull, straight garments, but they could not obscure the glowing brown beauty of his face. Dirk looked at him with eyes that sparkled affection. "'I am making a name in Frankfurt,' he said." "'Eh,' answered Thierry, not returning his glance. "'I have heard you spoken of by those who have attended your lectures. "'They said your doctrines touched infidelity.' "'Nevertheless, they come,' smiled Dirk. "'I do not play for a safe reputation. "'Otherwise, should I be here, living in a place of evil name?' "'I do not think,' replied Thierry, "'that any go so far as to guess the real nature of your studies.' nor what it is you pursue. And he also smiled, but grimly. Every man in Frankfurt is not priest beridden, said Dirk quickly. They would not meddle with me just because I do not preach the laws of the church. I teach my scholars rhetoric, logic, and philosophy. They are well pleased. Today I disclosed to them Procopius, he continued, 
and propounded a hundred propositions out of Priscianus, should improve their Latin. There were some nobles from court. One submitted that my teaching was heretical, asked if I was a Gnostic or an Arian, said I should be condemned by the council of Saragossa, as Avila was, and for as good reasons. Meanwhile, Dirk interrupted, Meanwhile, we know almost all the wise woman can teach us, and are on the eve of great power. Thierry pushed wider the shutters, so that the strong sunlight fell over the knee of his dark gown. You, perhaps, he said heavily, not I. The spirits will not listen to me. Only with great difficulty can I compel them. Well, I wot that I am bound to evil, but I wot also that it doth little for me. At this complaint a look of apprehension came into Dirk's eyes. My fortune is your fortune, he said. Nay, answered Thierry, half fiercely, it is not. You have been successful, so have not I. Old Natalie loves you, she cares nothing for me. You have already a name in Frankfurt, I have none, nor money either. St. Ambrose's gold is gone, and I live on your charity. No, no, spoke Dirk in protest, but his distress was too deep and too genuine to allow of much speech. I am going away from here, said Thierry firmly. Dirk gasped as if he had been wounded. From Frankfurt, he ejaculated. Nay, from this place. There was a little silence while the last traces of light and color seemed to be drained from Dirk's face. You do not mean that, he said at length. After we have been, oh, after all of it, you cannot mean. Thierry turned and faced the room. You need not fear that I shall break the bond that unites us, he cried. I have gone too far. Yea, and still I hope to attain by the devil's aid my desires. But I will not stay here. Where will you go? Thierry's hazel eyes again sought the crimson roses in the witch's garden. Today, as I wandered outside the walls, I met a hawking party. Jacobia of Martzburg was among them. They had been in Frankfurt many weeks, and so had she, yet this was the first time he had mentioned her name. She knew me, continued Thierry, and spoke to me. She asked, out of her graciousness, if I had aught to do in Frankfurt, thinking, I wot, I looked not like it. He blushed and smiled. Then she offered me a post at court. Her cousin is Chamberlain to the Queen, nay, Empress, I should say, and he will take me as his secretary. I shall accept. Are you not glad? asked Thierry with a swell in his voice. I shall be near her. Is that a vast consideration, said Dirk faintly, that you should be near her? Did you think that I had forgotten her because I spoke not? answered Thierry. Also, there are chances that by your arts I may strengthen. I shall lose you, he said. Thierry was half startled by the note in his voice. Nay, shall I not come here, often? Are you not my comrade? So you speak, answered Dirk, his brow drawn, his lips pale even for one of his pallor. But you leave me, 
you choose another path from mine. It need not grieve you that I go, answered Thierry, half sullen, half wondering. I wot I am pledged deeply enough to thy master. His eyes flashed wildly. Is there not sin on my soul? Have I not awakened in the night to see St. Ambrose smile at me? Am I not outside the church and in league with hell? Dirk braced himself. Do not go, he said. There is everything before us if we stay together. If you... His words choked him, and he was silent. All your reasoning cannot stay me, answered Thierry, his hand on the door. She smiled at me, and I saw her yellow hair, and I am stifled here and useless. He opened the door and went out. Dirk sank on the brilliant gold cushions and twisted his fingers together, and after a while he heard Thierry sing as he moved about in an upper chamber. Dirk had not known him sing before, and now, as the little wordless song fell on his ears, he winced and writhed. He sings because he is going away. He sprang up and crossed to the calendar. A year ago today, he and Thierry had first met. He had marked the day with red. And now, presently, Thierry entered again. He was no longer singing, and he had his things in a bundle on his back. I will come tomorrow and take leave of Natalie, he said, or perhaps this evening, but I must see the Chamberlain now. For the second time Thierry passed out. Oh, oh, whispered Dirk, he is gone, 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 gone. Then he crept to the window and pushed the shutter wide. He leant from the window and flung out his arms with sudden passion. Satan! Satan! he shrieked. Give him back to me. Everything else you have promised me for that. Do you hear me? Satan! Satan! His voice died away in a great sob. He sank back into the window seat and heard someone speak his name. Lifting his sick gaze, he saw the witch standing in the center of the floor looking at him. Dirk gave a great sigh, hunched up his shoulders, and smoothed his cuffs. Then he said, very quietly, looking sideways at the witch, Thierry has gone. I knew he would go, she answered, in a small voice. With scant farewell, with little excuse, with small preparation, with no regret. He has gone, said Dirk, to the court at the bidding of a lady. You know her, for I have spoken of our meeting with her when we were driven forth from Baal. He closed his eyes as if he made a great effort at control. I think he is on the verge of loving her. He unclosed his eyes, full, blazing. This must be prevented. The witch shook her head. If you are wise, let him go. She fixed her glimmering glance on Dirk's smooth, pale face. He is neither good nor evil. His heart saith one thing, his passions another. Let him go. His courage is not equal to his desires. He would be great by any means, yet he is afraid. Let him go. He thinks to serve the devil while it lurks still in his heart. 
At last I will repent. In time I will repent. Let him go. All this I know, answered Dirk, his fingers clutching the gold cushions, but I want him back. He will come. He has gone too far to stay away. I want him to return forever, cried Dirk. He is my comrade. He must be with me always. He must have none in his thoughts save me. Natalie frowned. This is folly. The day you came here to me with the words of Master Lucas, I saw that you were to be everything, he nothing. I saw that the world would ring with your name and that he would die unknown. She rose vehemently. I say, let him go. He will be but a clog, a drag on your progress. He is jealous of you. He is not over-skillful. What can you say for him save that he is pleasant to gaze upon? Dirk slipped from the cushions and walked slowly up and down the room. What can I say for him? Tis said in three words. I love him. How little you know of me, Natalie. Though you have taught me all your wisdom, what do you know of me save that I was Master Lucas's apprentice boy? Ye came from mystery, as you should come, smiled the witch. And now Dirk seemed to smile through agony. It is a mystery. Methinks to tell it would be to be blasted as I stand. It seems so long ago, so strange, so horrible. Well, well, he put his hand to his forehead and took a turn about the room. As I sat in Master Lucas's empty house, painting, carving, reading forbidden books, I was not afraid. It seemed to me I had no soul, so why fear for that which was lost before I was born? The devil has put me here, said I, and I will serve him. He shall make me his archetype on earth." and I waited for his signal to bid me forth. Men talk of Antichrist. What if I am he? So I thought. And so you shall be, breathed the witch. Dirk's great eyes glowed above his smiling lips. Could any but a demon have such thoughts? Then Thierry came, and I saw in his face that he did what I did, knew what I knew, and... and... His voice faltered. I mind me how I went and watched him as he slept, and then I thought, after all, I was no demon, for I was aware that I loved him. I had terrible thoughts. If I love, I have a soul, and if I have a soul, it is damned. But he shall go with me. If I came from hell, I shall return to hell, and he shall go with me. If I am damned, he shall be damned, and go hand in hand with me into the pit. The smile faded from his face, and an intense, ardent expression took its place. He seemed almost in an ecstasy. She may make fight with me for his soul. If he love her, she might draw him to heaven with her yellow hair. Did I not long for yellow locks when I saw my bridal? I have not forgotten what I spoke of. I would say that she does not love him. Yet she may, said the witch, for he is gay and beautiful. Dirk slowly turned his darkening eyes on Natalie. 
She must not. The witch fondled her fingers. We can control many things, not love nor hate. Dirk pressed a swelling bosom. Her heart is in the hand of another man, and that man is her steward, ambitious, poor, and married. He came up to the witch, and, slight as he was, beside the withered eastern woman, he appeared marvelously fresh, glowing, and even splendid. Do you understand me? he said. The witch blinked her shining eyes. I understand that there is little need of witchcraft or of black magic here. No, said Dirk. Her own love shall be her poison. She herself shall give him back to me. Dirk, Dirk, why do you make such a point of this man's return? she said, between reproach and yearning. She fondled the cold, passive, and smiling youth with her tiny hands. You are going to be great. She mouthed the words greedily. I may never have done much, but you have the key to many things. You will have the world for your footstool yet. Let him go. Dirk still smiled. No, he answered quietly. The witch shrugged her shoulders and turned away. After all, she said in a half whine, I am only the servant now. You know the words that can compel me and all my kind to obey you. So let it be. Bring your Thierry back. There is another will seek to detain him at the court, said Dirk reflectively. His old-time friend, the Margrave's son, Balthasar of Courtraig, who shines about the emperor. I saw him not long ago. He also is my enemy. Well, the devil will play them all into thy hands, smiled the witch. Dirk turned an absent look on her, and she crept away. It grew to the hour of sunset. The red light of it trembled marvelously in the red roses, and filled the low, dark chamber with a somber crimson glow. Dirk stood by the window, biting his forefinger, revolving schemes in which Jacobia, her steward, Sibylla, and Thierry were to be entangled as flies in a web. Desperate devilry and despairing human love mingled grotesquely, giving rise to thoughts dark and hideous. The clear peal of a bell roused him, and he started with remembrances of when last this sound through an empty house had broken on his thoughts, of how he had gone and found Thierry without his door. Then he left the room and sought the witch. She had disappeared. He did not doubt that the summons was for her. Not infrequently did she have hasty and secret visitors. But as she came not, he crossed the dark passage and himself opened the door onto the slip of garden that divided the house from the cobbled street, opened it on a woman in a green hood and mantle who stood well within the shadow of the porch. Whom would you see? he asked cautiously. The stranger answered in a low voice, You, are you not the young doctor who lectures publicly on many things? Constantine, they call you? Yea, said Dirk, I am he. I heard you today. I would speak to you. 
She wore a mask that as completely concealed her face as her cloak concealed her figure. Dirk's eyes could discover nothing of her person. He held the door wide and she stepped into the passage, breathing quickly. Follow after me, smiled Dirk. He decided that the lady was Jacobia of Martzburg. End of section 11. Part 1. Chapter 12. Isabel. Dirk and the lady entered the room he had just quitted. He set a chair for her near the window and waited for her to speak, but kept his eyes the while on her shrouded figure. "'You are well disguised,' said Dirk at last, as she made no sign of speaking. "'What is your business with me?' He began to think that she could not be Jacobia, since she gave no indication of revealing herself. Also, he fancied that she was too short." "'Is there any one to overhear us or interrupt?' the lady spoke at last, her voice muffled a little by the mask. "'None,' answered Dirk impatiently. "'I beg that you tell me who you are.' "'Certes, that can wait.' Her eyes sparkled through their holes, in contrast with the ghastly painted wood that made her face immovable. "'But I will tell you who you are, sir.' "'You know?' said Dirk coldly. The student named Dirk Renswode, who was driven forth from Baal University for practicing the black arts. For the first time in his life Dirk was taken aback, and hopelessly disconcerted. He had not believed it possible for any to discover the past life of the learned Dr. Constantine. He went red and white, and could say nothing in either defense or denial. It was only about three months ago, continued the lady, and both students and many other in the town of Baal would still know you, Sir Taze. A rush of anger against his unknown accuser nerved Dirk. By what means have you discovered this? he demanded. Baal is far enough from Frankfurt, I wot. And how many know? And what is the price of your silence, dame? The lady lifted her head. I like you, she said quietly. You take it well. No one knows save I. I have made cautious inquiries about you and pieced together your story with my own wit. My story, flashed Dirk. Certes, ye know naught of me beyond ball. No, she assented, but it is enough. Joris of Thuringa died. Ah, ejaculated Dirk. The lady sat very still, observing him. "'So I hold your life, sir,' she said. Dirk, goaded, turned on her impetuously. "'Ye are Jacobia of Martzburg.' "'No,' she started at the name, "'but I know her. "'She told you this tale?' Again the lady answered, "'No.' "'She is from Ball,' cried Dirk. "'Believe me,' replied the stranger earnestly. She knows nothing of you. I alone in Frankfurt hold your secret, and I can help you to keep it. It were easy to spread a report of Dirk Renswood's death. Dirk bit his finger, his lip, glared out at the profusion of roses, at the darkening sky, then at the quiet figure in the hideous speckled mask. If she chose to speak, he would have, at the best of it, 
to fly Frankfurt, and that did not suit his schemes. Another youth lives here, said the lady. I think he also fled from Baal. Dirk's face grew pale and cunning. He was quick to see that she did not know Thierry was compromised. He was here. Now he has gone to court. He was at Baal, but innocent. He came with me out of friendship. He is silly and fond. I have to do with you, answered the lady. Ye have a great and terrible skill. Evil spirits league with you. Your spells killed a man. She stopped. Poor fool, said Dirk somberly. The stranger rose. Her calm and self-possession had suddenly given way to fierce, only half-repressed passion. She clasped her hands and trembled as she stood. Well, she cried thickly, you could do that again. A softer, more subtle way? For you? he whispered. For me, she answered, and sank into the window-seat, pulling at her gloves mechanically. I cannot help you if you tell me nothing, said Dirk at length in a grim manner. I will tell you this, answered she passionately. There is a man I hate, a man in my way. I do not talk wildly. That man must go, and if you will be the means, you will be in my power, as I am now in yours, thought Dirk, completing the broken sentence. The lady looked out at the roses. I cannot convey to you what nights of horror and days of bitterness, what resolutions formed and resolutions broken, what hate and what love have gone to form the impulse that brought me here to-day. Nor does it concern ye. Certes, enough, I am resolved, and if your spells can aid me, she turned her head sharply, I will pay you very well. You have told me nothing, repeated Dirk, and though I can discover what you are and who is your enemy, it were better that you told me with your own lips. She seemed now in an ill-concealed agitation. Not today will I speak. I will come again. I know this place. While, certes, your secret is safe with me, think over what I have said. She rose as if to take a hasty departure, but Dirk was in her way. Nay, he said firmly, at least show your face. How shall I know you again? And what confidence have you in me if you will not take off your mask? I say you shall. She trembled between a sigh and a laugh. Perhaps my face is not worth gazing at, she answered on a breath. I wot ye are a fair woman, replied Dirk, who heard the consciousness of it in her alluring voice. Still she hesitated. Know ye many about the court? she asked. Nay, I have not concerned myself with the court. Well, then, and since I must trust you, and like you, her voice rose and fell, look at me and remember me. She loosened her cloak, flung back the hood, and quickly unfastened the mask, snatched it off. The disguise flung aside, she was revealed to the shoulders, clearly in the warm twilight. Dirk's first impression was that this was beauty that swept from his mind all other beauty he had ever beheld. 
his second, that it was the same face he and Thierry had seen in the mirror. "'You do not know me?' she asked. "'No,' answered Dirk. He could not tell her that he had seen her before in his devil's mirror. "'But you will recognize me again.' Dirk laughed quietly. "'You were not made to be forgotten. Strange, with such a face, ye should have need of witchcraft.' The lady replaced the mottled mask, and looked the more horrible after that glimpse of gleaming beauty, and drew her mantle over her shoulders. Dirk proffered no question, made no comment, but preceded her down the dark passage and opened the door. She passed out. Her footstep was light on the path. Dirk watched her walk rapidly down the street, then closed the door and bolted it. After a pause of breathless confusion and heart-heating excitement, he ran to the back of the house and out into the garden. It was just light enough for the huge, dusky roses to be visible as they nodded on their trailing bushes. Dirk ran between them until he reached a gaunt stone statue half-concealed by laurels. In front of this were flags irregularly placed. In the center of one was an iron ring. Dirk, pulling at this, disclosed a trap-door that opened at his effort, and revealed a flight of steps. He descended from the soft, pure evening air and the red roses into the witch's kitchen, closing the stone above him. The underground chamber was large and lit by lamps hanging from the roof, revealing smooth stone walls and damp floor. In one side a gaping blackness showed where a passage twisted to the outer air. On another was a huge alchemist's fireplace. Before this sat the witch. About her a quantity of glass vessels, retorts, and pots of various shapes. Either side of this fireplace hung a human body, black and withered, "'swinging from rusted ropes and crowned with wreaths of green and purple-blotched leaves. "'On a table set against the wall was a brass head that glimmered in the feeble light. "'Dirk crossed the floor with his youthful step and touched Natalie on the shoulder. "'One came to see me,' he said breathlessly. "'A marvellous lady.' "'I know,' murmured the witch." "'And was it to play into thy hands?' "'She threatened me,' he said. "'And for a moment I was afraid, "'for certes, I do not wish to leave Frankfurt. "'But she wished me to serve her, "'which I will do for a price.' "'Who is she?' blinked the witch. "'That I am come to discover,' frowned Dirk. "'And who is it she spoke of, "'also somewhat of Jacobia of Martzburg?' He coughed, for the foul atmosphere had entered his nostrils. "'Give me the globe!' The witch handed him a ball of a dark, muddy color, which he placed on the floor, flinging himself beside it. Natalie drew a pentagon round the globe and pronounced some words in a low tone. A slight tremor shook the ground, though it was solid earth they stood on, and the globe turned a pale, luminous blue tint." Dirk pushed back the damp hair from his eyes, and resting his face in his hands, his elbows on the ground, stared into the depths of the crystal.
the color of which brightened until it glowed a ball of azure fire. "'Show me something of the lady who came here today,' commanded Dirk. They waited. "'Do you see anything?' breathed the witch. "'Yea, very faintly.' He gazed for a while in silence. "'I see a man,' he said at last. "'The spells are wrong. I see nothing of the lady.' "'Watch, though,' cried the witch. "'What is he like?' "'I cannot see distinctly. "'He is on horseback. "'He wears armor. "'Now I can see his face. "'He is young, dark. "'He has black hair. "'Do ye know him?' "'Nay, I have never seen him before.' "'Dirk did not lift his eyes from the globe. "'He is evidently a knight.' He is magnificent, but cold. Ah! His exclamation was at the change in the ball. Slowly it faded into a faint blue, then became again dark and muddy. He flung it angrily out of the Pentagon. What has that told me? he cried. What is this man? Question Zerdouche, said the witch, pointing to the brass head. Maybe he will speak tonight. She flung a handful of spices on to the slow-burning fire, and a faint smoke rose, filling the chamber. Dirk crossed to the brass head and surveyed it with eager, hollow eyes. "'The dead men dance,' smiled the witch. "'Certes, he will speak to-night.' Dirk turned his wild gaze to where the corpses hung. Their shriveled limbs twisted and jerked at the end of their chain." and the horrid, lurid color of their poisonous wreaths gleamed through the smoke and shook with the nodding of their faceless heads. Zerdouche, Zerdouche, murmured Dirk. In the name of Satan, his legions, speak to thy servant. Show or tell him something of the woman who came here today on an evil errand. A heavy stillness fell with the ending of the words. The smoke became thick and dense, then suddenly cleared. At that instant the lamps were extinguished, and the fire fell into ashes. "'Something comes,' whispered the witch. Through the dark could be heard the dance of the dead men, and the grind of their bones against the ropes. Dirk stood motionless, his straining eyes fixed before him. Presently a pale light spread over the end of the chamber, and in it appeared the figure of a young knight. His black hair fell from under his helmet. His face was composed and somewhat haughty, his dark eyes fearless and cold. "'Tis he I saw in the crystal!' cried Dirk, and as he spoke the light and the figure disappeared. Dirk beat his breast. "'Sir Douche, ye mock me!' I asked ye of this woman, I know not the man. The brass head suddenly glowed out of the darkness, as if a light shone behind it. The lids twitched, opened, and a glittering red eyeballs stared at Dirk, who shouted in triumph. He fell on his knees. A year ago today I saw a woman in the mirror. Today she came to me. Who is she? Sherdouche, her name. The brass lips moved and spoke. Isabeau. Who was the knight ye have shown me? He cried. Her husband, 
answered the head. Who is the man she seeks my aid to, to, who is it of whom she spoke to me? The flaming eyeballs rolled. Her husband. Who is she? The Empress of the West, said the brass head. A cry broke from Dirk and the witch. Dirk shrieked another question. She wishes to put another in the Emperor's place. Yea. The light was growing fainter. The eyelids flickered over the red eyes. Whom? cried Dirk. Faint yet distinct came the answer. The Lord of Ursula of Rousselary, Balthasar of Courtraig. The lids fell and the jaws clicked. The light sank into nothingness, and the lamps sprang again into dismal flame that disclosed the black bodies of the dead men, hanging slackly with their wreaths touching their chests, the witch crouching by the hearth. And in the center of the floor stood Dirk, smiling horribly. End of section 12 Part 1 Chapter 13 The Snaring of Jacobia the great forest was so silent, so lonely. The aisles of a vast church could have been no more sanctified by holy stillness. Even the summer wind that trembled in the upper boughs of the huge trees had not penetrated their thick branches and intertwined leaves, so that the grass and flowers were standing erect, untroubled by a breath of air, and the sun that dazzled without on the town of Frankfurt, did not touch the glowing green gloom of the forest. Seated low on the grass by a wayside shrine that held a little figure of the Madonna, Natalie the witch, hunched together in a brown cloak, looked keenly into the depths of cool shade between the tree trunks. She was watching the distant figure of a lady tremble into sight among the leaves of the undergrowth a lady who walked hesitatingly and fearfully. As she drew near, the witch could see that the long yellow dress she held up was torn and soiled, and that her hair hung disarranged on her shoulders. Breathing in a quick, fatigued manner, she came towards the shrine. But seeing the witch, she stopped abruptly, and her grey eyes darkened with apprehension. "'What is amiss with Jacobia of Martzburg?' asked the witch, in her expressionless way, that she walks the forest disarrayed and alone. "'I am lost,' answered Jacobia, shrinking. "'How do you know me?' "'By your face,' said Natalie. "'How is it you are lost?' "'Will you tell me the way to Frankfurt?' asked Jacobia wearily. "'I have walked since noon. I was accompanying the Empress from the tournament, and my horse broke away with me.' I slipped from the saddle. Now I have lost him. Natalie smiled faintly. Let me tell your fortune, said the witch, slowly rising. You have a curious fortune, and I will reveal it without gold or silver. No, Jacobia's voice was agitated. I have no credence in those things. I will pay you to show me the way out of the forest. But the witch had crossed softly to her side, and to her manifest shrinking terror caught hold of her hand. "'What do you imagine you hold in your palm?' she smiled. 
Jacobia endeavored to draw her hand away. The near presence of the woman quickened her unnamed terror. Lands and castles, said the witch, while her fingers tightened on the striving wrist. Gold and loneliness. You know me, answered Jacobia in anger. There is no magic in this. Let me go. The witch dropped the lady's hand and smoothed her own together. I do not need the lines in your palm to tell me your fortune, she said sharply. I know more of you than you would care to hear, Jacobia of Martzburg. The lady turned away and stepped quickly but aimlessly down the shaded glade. Natalie, dragging her brown cloak, came lightly after. You cannot escape, she said. You may walk in and out of the trees until you die of weariness, yet never find your way to Frankfurt. Who are you? cried the lady, with a touch of desperation in her faint voice. And what do you want with me? The witch licked her pale lips. Come with me, and I will show you. To what end should I go with you? exclaimed Jacobia. I know you not, and God help me, I mistrust you. The witch shot a scornful glance over the lady's tall figure, supple with the strength of youth. What evil could I do you? she asked. Jacobia considered her intently. Indeed, she was small, seemed frail also. Jacobia's white fingers could have crushed the life out of her lean throat. Still, she was reluctant. To what end? she repeated. Natalie did not answer, but turned into a grass-grown path that twisted through the trees, and Jacobia, afraid of the loneliness, followed her slowly. As they went through the forest, the green, still forest, with no flower to vary the clinging creepers and great blossomless plants, with no sound of bird or insect to mingle with their light tread and the sweep of their garments on the ground, Jacobia was aware that her senses were being dulled and drugged with the silence and the strangeness. She felt no longer afraid or curious. After a while they came upon a pool lying in a hollow and grown about with thick, dark ferns. The sunless waters were black and dull. On the surface of them floated some dead leaves and the vivid, unwholesome green of a tangled weed. A young man in plain dark dress was seated on the opposite bank. On his knees was an open book, and his long straight hair hung either side of his face and brushed the yellow page. Behind him stood the shattered trunk of a blasted tree, grown with fan-shaped fungi of brilliant scarlet and blotched purple and orange that glowed gorgeously in the universal cold, soft greenness. Oh, me, murmured Jacobia. The young man lifted his eyes from the book and looked at her across the black water. Jacobia would have fled, would have flung herself into the forest with no thought but that of escape from those eyes gazing at her over the pages of that ancient volume. But the witch's loathsome little hands closed on hers with a marvelous strength and drew her, shuddering, round the edge of the pond. The youth shut the book, stretched his slender limbs, and half turning on his side lay and watched. Jacobia's noble and lovely figure 
clothed in a thick, soft velvet of a luminous yellow hue, her blonde hair straying on her shoulders and mingling with the glowing tint of her gown, her grave and sweet face, lit and guarded by gray eyes, soft and frightened, made a fair picture against the somber background of the dark wood. A picture marred only by the insignificant and drab-colored figure of the little witch who held her hand and dragged her through the dank grass. "'Do you remember me?' asked the youth. Jacobia turned her head away. "'Let go of her, Natalie,' continued the youth impatiently. He rested his elbow on the closed book and propped his chin on his hand. His eyes rested eagerly and admiringly on the lady's shuddering fairness. "'She will run,' said Natalie, but she loosened her hold. Jacobia did not stir. She shook the hand that Natalie had held and caressed it with the other. The young man put back his heavy hair. "'Do you know me?' She slowly turned her face, pearl pale above the glowing color of her dress. "'Yes,' You came to my castle for shelter once. Dirk did not lower his intense, ardent gaze. Well, how did I reward your courtesy? I told you something. She would not answer. I told you something, repeated Dirk, and you have not forgotten it. Let me go, she said. I do not know who you are, nor what you mean. Let me go. She turned as if to move away, but sank instead onto one of the moss-covered boulders that edged the pond, and clasped her fingers over the shining locks straying across her bosom. "'You have never been the same since that time you sheltered me,' said Dirk. She stiffened with dread and pride. "'Ye are some evil thing,' she said. Her glance was fierce for the passive witch. "'Why was I brought here?' "'Because it was my wish,' answered Dirk gravely. "'Your horse does not often carry you away, Jacobia of Martzburg, "'and leave you in a trackless forest.' "'The lady started at his knowledge. "'That also was my will,' said Dirk. "'Your will?' she echoed. "'Dirk smiled, with an ugly show of his teeth. "'Belike the horse was bewitched. "'Have ye not heard such a thing?' "'Santa Maria!' she cried. "'You have given a youth I know a post at court,' he said. "'Why?' Jacobia shivered and could not move. She looked drearily at the black water and the damp masses of fern. Then, with a slow horror at the figure of the young man seated under the blasted tree. "'I do not know,' she answered weakly. "'I never disliked him.' "'As ye did me,' added Dirk. "'Maybe I had no cause to love you,' she returned, goaded. "'Why did you ever come to my castle? "'Why did I ever see you?' "'She put her cold hand over her eyes. "'No matter for that,' mocked Dirk. "'So ye liked my comrade Thierry?' "'She answered, as if forced against her will. "'Well enough I liked him.' Was he not pleasured to encounter me again? And since he was doing not, I... But why do you question me? Can it be that you are jealous? The young man pulled his heavy brows together. 
Am I a silly maid to be jealous? Meddle not with things ye cannot measure. It had been better for you had you never seen my comrade's fair face. Ay, and for me also. And he frowned. Surely he is free to do as he may list, returned Jacobia. If he choose to come to court. If ye choose to tempt him, answered Dirk. But enough of that. He rose and leant against the tree. Above his slender shoulder rose the jagged tongue of grey wood and the smooth colour of the clustering fungi, and beyond that the forest sank into immense depths of still gloom. Jacobia strove desperately with her dull dread and terror, but it seemed to her as if a sickly vapour was rising from the black pool that chilled her to horror. She could not escape. Dirk's steady eyes that were like bright stones in his smooth face. Come here, he said. Jacobia made no movement to obey until the witch clutched her arm. Then she shook off the clinging fingers and approached the spot where Dirk waited. I think you have bewitched me, she said drearily. Not I. Another has done that, he answered. Certes, ye are slow in mating, Jacobia of Martzburg. A little shuddering breath stirred her parted lips. She looked to right and left, saw nothing but the enclosing forest, and turned her frightened eyes on Dirk. I know some little magic, he continued. Shall I show you the man you wish to make Lord of Martzburg? There is no one, she said feebly. You lie, he answered, as I could prove. As you cannot prove, she returned, clasping her hands together. Why did your steward come with ye to Frankfurt, answered Dirk, and his wife stay as Chatelaine of Martzburg? It had been more fitting had he remained. What reward will he receive for his service as your henchman at court? "'What reward do you imagine I should offer?' she answered very slowly. "'I cannot tell,' said Dirk, with a hot force behind every word, "'for I do not know if you are a fool or no. "'But this I know. The man waits a word from you.' "'Stop,' said Jacobia. But Dirk continued ruthlessly. "'He waits, I tell you.' "'Oh, God, for what?' she cried. "'For you to say.' You think me fair, Sebastian. You know me rich, and all my life shall prove me loving, and only a red-browed woman in Martzburg Castle prevents you coming from my footstool to my side. Said you that he would take horse to-morrow for Martzburg and return a free man. The handkerchief fell from Jacobia's fingers and fluttered on the dark ferns. You are a fiend, she said in a sick voice. You cannot be human, to so touch my heart, and you are wrong. I dare tell you in the name of God that you are wrong. Those evil thoughts have never come to me. In the name of the devil, I am right, smiled Dirk. The devil? Ye are one of his agents, she cried in a trembling defiance. Or how could you guess what I scarcely knew until ye came that baleful night? what he never knew till then. Ah, I swear it, he never dreamt that I— 
never dreamt what my favor meant, but now, his eyes, I cannot mistake them. He is a dutiful servant, said Dirk. He waits for his mistress to speak. Jacobia sank to her knees on the grass. I entreat you to forbear, she whispered. Whoever you are, whatever your object, I ask your mercy. I am very unhappy. Do not goad me. Drive me further. Dirk stepped forward and caught her drooping shoulders in his firm hands. Pious fool, he cried. How long do you think you can endure this? How long do you think he will remain the servant when he knows he might be the master? She averted her agonized face. Then it was from you he learnt it. You! Dirk interrupted hotly. He knows, remember that. He knows, and he waits. Already he hates the woman who keeps him dumb. It were very easily done. One look, some few words. Ye would not find him slow of understanding. He loosened his grasp on her, and Jacobia fell forward and clasped his feet. I implore you, take back this wickedness. I am weak. Since my first sight of you, I have been striving against your influence that is killing me. Man or demon, I beseech you, let me be. She raised her face. The slow, bitter tears forced out of her sweet, worn eyes. Her hair fell like golden embroidery over the yellow gown, and her fingers fluttered on her unhappy bosom. Dirk considered her curiously and coldly. I am neither man nor demon, he said, but this I tell you. As surely as he is more to you than your own soul, so surely you are lost. Lost, lost, she repeated, and half raised herself. Certes, therefore get the price of your soul, he mocked. What is the woman to you? A cold-hearted jade, as good dead now as fifty years hence? What is one sin the more? I tell you, while you set that man's image up in your heart before that of God, ye are lost already. He stepped back and clapped his hands. I promised you a sight of your lover, he said. Now let him speak for himself. Jacobia turned her head sharply. A few feet away from her stood Sebastian, holding back the heavy boughs and looking at her. She gave a shriek and rose swiftly. Dirk and the witch had disappeared. If they had slipped into the undergrowth and were yet near, they gave no answer when she wildly called to them. The vast forest seemed utterly empty, save for the silent figure of Sebastian. Not doubting now that Dirk was some evil being whom her own wicked thoughts had evoked, believing that the appearance of her steward was some phantom sent for her undoing, she, unfortunate, distracted with misery and terror, turned with a shuddering relief to the oblivion of the still pool. Hastening with trembling feet through the clinging weeds and ferns, she climbed down the damp bank and would have cast herself into the dull water when she heard his voice calling her, a human voice. She paused, lending a fearful ear to the sound 
while the water rippled from her foot. It is I, he called. My lady, it is I. This was Sebastian himself. No delusion, nor ghost, but her living steward. As she had seen him this morning in his brown riding habit, wearing her gold and blue colors round his hat, she mastered her terror and confusion. Indeed, you frightened me. A lie rose to save her. I thought it some robber. I did not know you. I have been searching for you, said Sebastian. We came upon your horse on the high road, and then upon your gloves in the grass. So, as no rider could come among these trees on foot, I sought for you. I am glad that you are safe. This calm and carefully ordered speech gave her time to gather courage. She fumbled at her bosom, drew forth a crucifix, and clutched it to her lips with a murmur of passionate prayers. He could not but notice this. He must perceive her soiled, torn dress, her wild face, her white exhaustion, but he gave no sign of it. "'It was a fortunate chance that sent me here,' he said gravely. "'The wood is so vast.' "'Eh, so vast,' she answered. "'Know you the way out, Sebastian?' "'Have you met no one?' he asked. She hesitated. If he had encountered neither the woman nor the young man, then they were indeed wizards or of some unearthly race. She could not bring herself to speak of them. No, she answered at length. She gathered up her long skirt and shook off the withered leaves that clung to it. Will you lead the way? she said. He turned and moved ahead of her down the narrow path by which he had come. As she followed him, she heard his foot fall soft on the thick grass, and the swishing sound of the straying boughs as he held them back for her to pass, till she found the silence so unendurable that she nerved herself to break it. But several times she gathered her strength in vain for the effort, and when at last some foolish words had come to her lips, he suddenly looked back over his shoulder and checked her speech. "'Tis strange that your horse should have gone mad in such a manner,' he said. "'But he found him?' she faltered. "'Ay, a man found him, exhausted and trembling like a thing bewitched.' Her heart gave a great leap. Had he used that word by chance? "'Ye were not hurt, my lady, when ye were thrown?' said the steward. "'No,' said Jacobia, "'no.' Silence again. No bird nor butterfly disturbed the somber stillness of the wood. No breeze stirred the thick leaves that surrounded them. Gradually the path widened until it brought them into a great space grown with ferns and overarched with trees. Then Sebastian paused. Ye must rest, certes, it is folly to persist, he added with some authority. She seated herself, lifting the hand that held the crucifix to her bosom. Gazing down into the clusters of ferns at his feet, he spoke. I think I must return to Martzburg, he said. She braced herself, making a gesture with her hand, as if she would ward off his words. 
"'You know that you are free to do what you will, Sebastian.' "'Is it not better that I should go?' he challenged her with a full sideways glance. "'I do not know,' she said desperately, "'why you put this to me, here and now. "'I do not often see you alone.' She opened her hand to stare down at the crucifix in her palm. "'You can leave Frankfurt when you wish. Why not?' she said. He faced her quickly. "'But I may come back?' It seemed to Jacobia that he echoed Dirk's words. The crucifix slipped through her trembling fingers on to the grass. "'What do you mean? Oh, Sebastian, what do you mean?' The words were forced from her but uttered under her breath, she added instantly in a more courageous voice, Go and come as you list. Are you not free? He saw the crucifix at her feet and picked it up, but she drew back as he came near and held out her hand. He put the crucifix into it, frowning, his eyes dark and bright with excitement. Do you recall the two students who were housed that night in Martzburg? he asked. "'Yes,' she said. "'Is not one now at court?' "'I would mean the other, the boy,' answered Sebastian. She averted her face and drooped until the ends of her hair touched her knees. "'I met him again to-day,' continued the steward, with a curious lift in his voice. "'Here, in this forest, while searching for you. He spoke to me.' Certainly the devil was enmeshing her. Surely he had brought her to this pass, sent Sebastian of all men to find her in her weariness and loneliness. And Sebastian knew, knew also that she knew. Outspoken words between them could be hardly more intolerable shame than this. He is cunning beyond most, said the steward. Jacobia lifted her head. He is an enchanter, a wizard. Do not listen to him. Do not speak to him. As you value your soul, Sebastian, do not think of him. As I value some other things, he answered grimly, I must both listen to him and consider what he says. She rose. We will go our way. I cannot talk with you now, Sebastian. But he stood in her path. Let me journey to Martzburg, he said thickly. One word. I shall understand you. She glanced and saw him extraordinarily keen and moved. He was Lord of Martzburg. Could he but get her to pledge herself? In his eagerness, however, he forgot advice. Tell her, said Dirk, you have adored her for years in secret. This escaped his keenness, for though his wife was nothing to him compared with his ambition, he had no tenderness for Jacobia. Had he remembered to feign it, he might have triumphed, and now, but though her gentle heart believed he held her dear, that he did not say so, made firmness possible for her. You shall stay in Frankfurt, she said, with sudden strength. Sibylla asks my return, he said, gazing at her passionately. Do we not understand each other without words? "'The fiend has bewitched you also,' she answered fearfully. "'You know too much. You guess too much. "'And yet I tell you nothing, and I—' 
I also am bewitched, for I cannot reply to you as I should. I have been silent long, he said, but I have dared to think, had I been free, as I can be free. The crucifix was forgotten in her hand. We do evil to talk like this, she said, half fainting. You will bid me go to Martzburg, he insisted, and took her long, cold fingers. She raised her eyes to the boughs above her. No, no. Then, God, have compassion on me, she said. The thick foliage stirred. Jacobia felt as if the bars of a cage were being broken about her. She turned her head, and a little color flushed her cheek. Through the silvery stems of the larches came some knights and a page-boy. Members of the party left to search for her. She moved towards them. She hailed them almost gaily. None, save Sebastian, saw her as they turned towards Frankfurt, raised the crucifix, and pressed her lips to it. End of Section 13 Part 1 Chapter 14 The Snaring of Thierry Dirk and the witch kept company until they reached the gates of Frankfurt. There the young man took his own way through the busy town, and Natalie slipped aside into the more retired streets. Many of the passers-by saluted Dirk. Some halted to speak with him, the brilliant young doctor of rhetoric, with a reputation made fascinating by an air of mystery, was a desired acquaintance among the people of Frankfurt. He returned their greetings pleasantly, yet absently. He was thinking of Jacobia of Martzburg, whom he had left behind in the great forest, and considering what chances there might be, either for Thierry or Sibylla, the steward's wife. He passed the tall red front of the college, where the quiet trees tapped their leaves against the arched windows, turned over the narrow curved bridge that spanned the steadily flowing water of the main, and came to the thick walls surrounding the emperor's castle. There, for a moment, he paused, and looked thoughtfully up at the imperial flag that fluttered softly against the evening sky. When he passed on, it was with a cheerful step and a whistling little tune under his breath. A few moments brought him to the long street where the witch lived, a few more to her gate, and then his face lit and changed wonderfully, for ahead of him was Thierry. Flushed and panting, he ran to his friend's side and touched him on the arm. Thierry turned, his hand on the latch, his greeting was hurried, half shamefaced. "'My master and most of the court were at the tourney today,' he said. I thought it safe to come. Dirk withdrew his hand, and his eyes narrowed. Ah, ye are beginning to be circumspect how ye visit here. You word it unkindly, answered Thierry hastily. Let us enter the house where we can talk at ease. They passed into the witch's dwelling, and to the room at the back that looked into the garden of red roses. The windows were set wide, and the scented softness of the evening filled the half-darkened chamber. Dirk lit a little lamp that had a green glass, and by the faint flame of it gazed long and lingeringly at Thierry. He found his friend richly dressed in black and crimson, 
wearing an enamel chain round his bonnet, and a laced shirt showing at his bosom. He found the glowing bright charm of his face disturbed by some embarrassment or confusion, the beautiful mouth uneasily set, the level brows slightly frowning. Oh, Thierry, he cried in a half-mournful yearning, come back to me, come back. I am very well at court, was the quick answer. My master is gentle, and my task's easy. Very clearly can I see ye are well, and very well at court. Seldom do you leave it. I find it difficult to get here often, said Thierry. Ye find it difficult, said Dirk, because your desires chain you to the court. I think ye are a faithless friend. That am not I. Ye know more of me than any man. I care more for ye than for any man. Or woman, added Dirk dryly. An impatient color came into Thierry's cheeks. He looked resolutely at the red roses. That is unworthy in you, Dirk. Is it disloyal to you to know a lady? To, to admire a lady? To strive to serve and please a lady? He turned his charming face, and in his effort to conciliate, his voice was gentle and winning. Truly, she is the sweetest of her kind, Dirk. If you knew her, evil is abashed before her. Then it is as well I do not know her, Dirk retorted grimly. Strangely ye talk. You and I know we are not saints, but belike ye would reform. Belike a second time ye have repented. Thierry seemed in some agitation. No, no, have I gone too far? Do I not still hope to gain something, perhaps everything? He paused, then added in a low voice, But I wish I had never laid hands on the monk. I wish I had not touched God his money. And when I see her, I cannot prevent my heart from smarting at the thought of what I am. How often do you see her? asked Dirk quietly. But seldom, answered Thierry sadly. And it is better. What could I ever be to her? Dirk smiled somberly. That is true. Yet you would waste your life dallying round the places where you may sometimes see her face. Thierry bit his lip. Oh, you think me a fool, to falter, to regret. But what have my sins ever done for me? There are many honest men better placed than I, and without the prospect of hell to blast their souls. Dirk looked at him with lowering eyes. You had been content had you not met this lady. Enough of her, answered Thierry wearily. You make too much of it. I do not think I love her, but one who is fallen must view such sweetness, such gentle purity with sorrow, yea, with yearning. Maybe she is neither so pure nor so gentle as you think. Certes, she is as but other women as one day ye may see. Thierry turned from the window half in protest, half in excuse. Cannot you understand how one may hold a fair thing dear? How one might worship, even love? Yes, answered Dirk, and his great eyes were bright and misty. 
But if I loved, he spoke the word beautifully and rose as he uttered it, I would so grapple his, her soul to mine, that we should be together to all eternity. Nor devil, nor angel should divide us. But, but there is no need to talk of that. There are other matters to deal with. Would I had never seen the evil books, or never seen her face, said Thierry restlessly. So at least I had been undivided in my thoughts. He came to the table and looked at Dirk across the sickly, struggling flame of the lamp. In his hazel eyes was an expression of appeal, the call of the weak to the strong, and the other held out his hands impulsively. Ah, I am a fool to trouble with ye, my friend, he said, and his voice broke with tenderness. For ye are headstrong and unstable, and care not for me one jot. I warrant me, yet, yet you may do what you will with this silly heart of mine. There was a grace, a wistful affection in his face, in his words, in his gesture of outstretched hands, that instantly moved Thierry, ever quick to respond. He took the young doctor's slender fingers in a warm clasp. They were very quickly withdrawn. Dirk had a notable dislike to a touch, but his deep eyes smiled. I have somewhat to tell you, he said, at which your impatience will be pleased. He went lightly to a press in the wall and brought forth a mighty candlestick of red copper, branched and engraved. Three half-burnt candles remained in the sockets. He lit these, and the room was filled with a brighter and pleasanter light. Setting the candlestick on the table where it glowed over Thierry's splendid presence, he returned to the cupboard and took out a tall bottle of yellow wine and two glasses with milk-white lines round the rims. Thierry seated himself at the table, pulled off his gloves, and smoothed his hair back from his face. "'Have you seen the Empress?' asked Dirk, pouring out the wine." Yea, answered Thierry, without interest. She is very beautiful? Certes, but of a cloying sweetness. There is no touch of nobility in her. Dirk held the wine out across the table and seated himself. I have heard she is ambitious, he said. Eh, she gives the emperor no rest, forever urging him to Rome, to be crowned by the pope as emperor of the West. But he better loves the North, and has no spirit to rule in Italy. "'The nobles chafe at his inaction?' asked Dirk. "'Tis not idle questioning.' "'Mostly, I think. Do we not all have golden dreams of Rome? Balthasar, ye mind him. He is Margrave of East Flanders now, since his father was killed at the boar-hunt. And powerful, he is mad to cross the Alps.' He has great influence with the emperor. Indeed, I think he loves him. Dirk set down the untasted wine. Balthasar loves the emperor, he cried. Certes, yes, why not? The margrave was always affectionate, and the emperor is lovable. A second time Dirk raised the glass, and now drained it. Here is good matter for plots, he said. 
elegantly wiping his lips. Here is occasion for you and me to make our profit. Said ye the devil was a bad master? Listen to this. Thierry moved the candlestick. The gold light dazzled in his eyes. What can emperor or empress be to us? he asked, a half-bewildered fear darkening his brows. She has been here, said Dirk. The lady Isabel. Thierry stared intently. A quick breath stirred his parted lips. His cheeks glowed with excited color. She knows, continued Dirk, that I, Dr. Constantine of Frankfurt College, and you, meek secretary to her chamberlain, are the two students chased from Baal University. Thierry gave a little sound of pain and drew back in the huge carved chair. So, said Dirk slowly, she has it in her power to ruin us, at least in Frankfurt. How can I hold up my head at court again? exclaimed Thierry bitterly. There is more in it than that, he answered quietly. Did she choose, he might have us burnt in the marketplace. Joris of Thuringa died of his illness that night. Oh, cried Thierry, blenching. But she will not choose, said Dirk calmly. She needs me, us. That threat is but her means of forcing obedience. She came secretly to my lectures. She had heard somewhat. She discovered more. Thierry filled his glass. She needs us, he repeated falteringly. Cannot ye guess in what way? Thierry drank, set down the half-emptied glass, and looked at the floor with troubled eyes that evaded the other's bright eyes. How can I tell, he asked, as if reluctant to speak at all. Dirk repressed a movement of impatience. Come, you know. Shall I speak plainly? Certes, yes, answered Thierry, still with averted face. There is a man in her way. Thierry looked up now. His eyes showed pale in his flushed face. Who must die as Joris of Thuringa died? he asked. Yes. Thierry moistened his lips. Am I to help you? Are we not one, inseparable? The reward will be magnificent. Thierry put his hand to a damp brow. Who is the man? Hush, whispered Dirk, peering through the halo of the candle flame. It is the emperor. Her husband? I will not do it, Dirk. I do not think ye have a choice, was the cold answer. Ye gave yourself unto the devil, and unto me, and you shall serve us both. I will not do it, repeated Thierry in a shuddering voice. Dirk's eyes glimmered wrathfully. Take care how you say that. There are two already. What of the monk? I do not think you can turn back. Thierry showed a desperate face. Why have ye drawn me into this? Ye are deeper in devil's arts than I. That is a strange thing to say, answered Dirk, very pale, his lips quivering. You swore comradeship with me. 
Together, we were to pursue success, fame, power. You knew the means. A. You knew by whose aid we were to rise. You shared with me the labors, the disgrace that fell on both of us. Together, we worked the spells that slew Joris of Thuringia. Together, we stole God, his gold, from the monk. Now, A. And now, when I tell you our chance has come, this is your manner of thanking me. A chance to help a woman in a secret murder. Thierry spoke sullenly. Ye never thought our way would be the way of saintship. Ye were not so nice that time ye bound Ambrose of Menthon to the tree. How often must you remind me of that? cried Thierry fiercely. I had not done it but for you. Well, Say the same of this. If you be weak, I am strong enough for two. Thierry pulled at the crimson tassels on his slashed sleeves. It is not that I am afraid, he said, flushing. Certes, you are afraid, mocked Dirk. Afraid of God, of justice, maybe of man. But I tell you that these things are not to us. He paused. "'lifted his eyes and lowered them again. "'Our destiny is not of our shaping. "'We take the weapons laid to our hands "'and use them as we are bid. "'Life and death shall both serve us to our appointed end.' "'Thierry came to the other side of the table "'and gazed fearfully across at him. "'Who are you?' he questioned softly. Dirk did not answer. An expression of dread and despair withered all the life in his features. The extraordinary look in his suddenly dimmed eyes sent a chill to Thierry's heart. Ah! he cried, stepping back with manifest loathing. Dirk put his hand over his eyes and moaned. Do you hate me, Thierry? Do you hate me? I... I do not know. He could not explain his own sudden revulsion as he saw the change in Dirk's face. He paced to and fro in a tumult. Dark had closed in upon them, and now blackness lay beyond the window and the half-opened door. Shadows obscured the corners of the long chamber. All the light, the red gleam of the candles— the green glow of the lamp shone over the table and the slight figure of Dirk. As Thierry stopped to gaze at him anew, Dirk suddenly lowered his white hand, and his eyes, blinking above his long fingers, held Thierry in a keen glance. This will make us more powerful than the Empress or the Emperor, he said. Leave your thoughts of me and ponder on that. He withdrew his hand and revealed lips as pale as his cheeks. "'What does that mean?' cried Thierry. "'I am distracted.' "'We shall go to Rome,' replied Dirk. There was a lulling quality of temptation in his tone. "'And you shall have your desires.' "'My desires?' echoed Thierry wildly. "'I have trod an unholy path.' "'pursuing the phantom of my desires. "'Do you still promise me I shall one day grasp it? "'Surely money and power and pleasure, 
These things wait you in Rome when Isabeau shall have placed the imperial diadem on Balthasar's brow. These things, and it seemed as if Dirk's voice broke. Even Jacobia of Martzburg, he added slowly. Can one win a saint by means of devilry? cried Thierry. She is only a woman, said Dirk wearily. But since you hesitate and falter, I will absolve you from this league with me. Go your way, serve your saint, renounce your sins, and see what God will give you. No, I cannot. I will not forego even the hope of what you offer me. His great eyes glittered with excitement. The hot blood darkened his cheek. And I pledged myself to you and your master. Do not think me cowardly because I paused. Who is the emperor? He spoke hoarsely. Nothing to you or to me. As you say, Joris of Thuringa died. Now you speak like my comrade at Baal, cried Dirk joyfully. Now I see again the spirit that roused me to swear friendship with you the night we first met. Now I... Ah, Thierry, we will be very faithful to one another, will we not? I have no choice. Swear it, cried Dirk. I swear it, said Thierry. Dirk clasped and unclasped his hands on the table, murmuring, I have won him back, won him back. Thierry spoke without turning his head. What do you mean to do next? I shall see the Empress again, answered Dirk. At present, be very secret, that is all. There is no need to speak of it. Your absence may be noticed at the palace, he said softly. You must return. How you can help me, I will let you know. Where have you been today? asked Thierry. Did you see the court returning from the tourney? The candle flames, flaring with the movement, cast a rich glow over Dirk's pallid face. No, why do you ask? he said. I know not. Thierry's crimson doublet sparkled in its silk threads as his breast rose with the irregular breaths. He walked heavily to the door, gathering up his black mantle over his arm. When may I come again? he asked. When you will, answered Dirk. He entered the passage and held up the heavy candlestick, so that a great circle of light was cast on the darkness. Ye are pledged to me whether ye come or no, are ye not? Certes, I do think so, said Thierry. He hesitated. Thierry went down the passage. He found the door and unlatched it. A soft but powerful breath of air fluttered the candle flames almost onto Dirk's face. He turned back into the room and shut himself in, leaving darkness behind him. Thierry stepped into the street and drew the latch. A few stars were out, but the night was cloudy. He leant against the side of the house. He felt excited, confused, impatient. Dirk's abrupt dismissal rankled. He was half ashamed of the power exercised over him by his frail comrade, half bewildered by the allurement of the reward that promised to be so near now. Rome, splendor, 
power, Jacobia of Martzburg, and only one stranger between him and this consummation. He wondered why he had ever hesitated, ever been horrified. His anticipations became so brilliant that they mounted like winged spirits to the clouds, catching him up with them. He could scarcely breathe in the close atmosphere of excitement. A thousand questions to which he might have demanded answer of Dirk occurred to him, and stung with impatience his elated heart. On a quick impulse he turned to the door and tried the handle. To his surprise he found it bolted from within. He wondered, both at Dirk's caution and his softness of tread, for he had heard no sound. It was not yet late, but he did not desire to attract attention by knocking. Full of his resolution to speak further with Dirk, he passed round the house and entered the garden with the object of gaining admittance by the low windows of the room where they had been conversing. But the light had gone from the chamber, and the windows were closed. With an exclamation of impatience, Thierry stepped back among the rose-bushes and looked up. Dirk's bedchamber was also in darkness. Black and silent, the witch's dwelling showed against the still but stormy sky. Thierry felt a chill run to his heart. Where had the youth gone so instantly, so silently? Who had noiselessly bolted door and windows? Then suddenly a light flashed across his vision. It appeared in the window of a room built out from the house at the side, a room that Thierry had always imagined was used as a store-place for Natalie's drugs and herbs. He did not remember that he had ever entered it or ever seen a light there before. His curiosity was stirred. Dirk had spoken of weariness. Perhaps this was the witch herself. He waited for the light to disappear, but it continued to glow, like a steady star across the darkness of the rose-garden. The heavy scent of the half-seen blooms filled the gusty wind that began to arise. Great fragments of cloud sped above the dark roof-line of the house. Thierry crept nearer the light. It had crossed his mind many times that Dirk and Natalie held secrets they kept from him, and the doubt had often set him raging inwardly. As well he knew the witch despised him as a useless novice in the black arts. Old suspicions returned to him, as, advancing warily, he drew near the light and crouched against the wall of the house. A light curtain was pulled across the window, but carelessly, and drawn slightly awry to avoid the light set in the window-seat. Thierry, holding his breath, looked in. He saw an oval room hung with Syrian tapestries of scarlet and yellow, and paved with black and white marble. The air was thick with the blue vapor of some perfume burning in a copper brazier, and lit by lamps suspended from the wall, their light glowing from behind screens of a pure pink silk. The end of the apartment was hidden by a violet velvet curtain embroidered with grapes and swans. Near this a low couch covered with scarlet draperies and purple cushions was placed. 
and close to this a table set with a white cloth bearing moons and stars worked in blue. Thierry almost betrayed himself by a cry of surprise. A long, slender woman's hand and arm slipped between the folds of the velvet. A delicate foot appeared. The curtain trembled. The aperture widened, and the figure of a girl was revealed in dusky shadow. She was tall, and wore a long robe of yellow sendal that she held up over her bosom with her left hand. She might have just come forth from the bath, for her shoulders, arms, and feet were bare, and the lines of her limbs noticeable through the thin silk. Her head and face were wrapped in a silver gauze. She stood quite still, half withdrawn behind the curtain, only the finely shaped white arm that held it back fully revealed. Her appearance impressed Thierry with unnameable dread and terror. He remained rigid at the window, gazing at her, not able, if he would, to fly. Through the veil that concealed her face, he could see restless dark eyes and the line of dark hair. He thought that she must see him, that she looked at him even as he looked at her, but he could not stir. Slowly she came forward into the room. Her feet were noiseless on the stone floor. But as she moved, Thierry heard a curious dragging sound he could not explain. She was drawing nearer the window. As she approached, she half turned, and Thierry saw flat, green, and dull wings of wrinkled skin folded on her back. The tips of them touched the floor. These had made the dragging sound he had heard. With a tortured cry wrung from him, he flung up his hands to shut out the dreadful thing. She heard him, stopped, and gave a shriek of dread and anguish. The lights were instantly extinguished. The room was in absolute darkness. Thierry turned and rushed across the garden. He thought the rosebushes catching on his garments were hands seeking to detain him. He thought that he heard a window open and a flapping of wings in the air above him. He cried out to the god on whom he had turned his back, Christus, have mercy! And so he stumbled to the gate and out into the quiet street of Frankfurt. End of section 14 Part 1, Chapter 15, Melchor of Brabant The last chant of the monks died away. The Sabbath service was ended, and the court rose from its place in the emperor's chapel. But Jacobia remained on her knees and tried to pray. The empress, very fair and childishly sweet, drooping under the weight of her jeweled garments, even with three pages to lift her train, raised her brows to see her lady remaining, and gave her a little smile as she passed. The emperor, dark, reserved, devout, and plainly habited, followed, with his eyes still on his breviary. He was leaning on the arm of Balthasar of Courtrai. The sun, falling slantwise through the high-colored windows, made the fair locks and golden clothes of the Margrave one glitter in a dazzling brightness. Jacobia could not bring her thoughts to dwell on holy things. Her hands were clasped on her prie-dieu. 
Her open book was before her, but her eyes wandered from the altar to the crowd passing down the aisle. Among the faces that went by, she could not but mark the beautiful countenance of Thierry, the secretary to the Queen's Chamberlain. She noticed him, as she always did, for his obvious calm handsomeness. Today, she noticed further that he looked grieved, distraught, and pale. Wondering at this, she observed him so intently that his long hazel eyes glanced aside and met hers in an intense gaze, grave and sad. She thought there was a question or an appeal, some meaning in his look, and she turned her slender neck and stared after him, so that two ladies following smiled at each other. Thierry kept his eyes fixed on her until he left the chapel, and a slow color crept into his cheek. When the last courtier had glittered away out of the low-arched door, Jacobia bent her head and rested her cheek against the top of the high prie-deux. Could her prayers have been shaped into words, they would have been such as these. O Mary, Empress of Heaven, O saints and angels, defend me from the devil and my own wicked heart. Shelter me in my weakness and arm me to victory. Incense still lingered in the air. It stole pleasantly to her nostrils. She raised her eyes timidly to the red light on the altar, then rose from her knees, clasping her breviary to her bosom, and turning, she saw Thierry standing inside the door watching her. She knew that he was waiting to speak to her, and she knew not why it gave her a sense of comfort and pleasure. Slowly she came down the aisle towards him, and as she approached, smiled. He took a step into the church. There was no answering smile on his face. "'Teach me to pray, I beseech you,' he said ardently. "'Let me kneel beside you.' "'I?' Alas, she answered, you do not know me. I know that if any one could lead a soul upwards, it would be you. Scarcely can I pray for myself, she answered. I am weak, unhappy, and alone. Sir, whatever your trouble, you must not come to me for aid. His dark eyes flashed softly. You, unhappy? I have ever thought of you as gay and careless as the roses. She gazed on him wistfully. Once I was. That day I saw you first. Do you remember, sir? I often recall it, because it seemed that after that I changed. She shuddered, and her gray eyes grew wet and mournful. It was your friend. Thierry's face hardened. My friend? The young scholar, she said quickly and fearfully, he, he is in Frankfurt now. You have seen him? She bowed her head. What does he want with me? He will not let me be in peace. He pursues me with horrible thoughts. He hates me. He will undo my soul. When did you meet him? asked Thierry in a low, fearful voice. Jacobia told him of the encounter in the forest. He marked that it was the day of the great tourney, 
the day when he had last seen Dirk, he remembered certain matters he had uttered concerning Jacobia. "'If he has been tampering with you,' he cried wrathfully, "'if he dares!' "'Then you know somewhat of him?' she interrupted in a half-horror. "'A. To my shame I do,' he answered. "'I know him for what he is. "'If you value your peace, your soul, do not heed him.' She drew away. "'But you, you, are, are you in league with him?' Thierry groaned and set his teeth. "'He holds me in a mesh of temptation.' He lures me into great wickedness. Jacobia moved still further back, shrinking from him into the gloom of the chapel. Oh, she said, who, who is he? Thierry lowered his eyes and frowned. You must not ask me. He fingered the base of the pilaster against the door. But he troubles me, she answered intensely. The thought of him is like someone clinging to my garments to drag me down. Thierry lifted his head sharply to gaze at her tall, slender figure, but lifted his eyes no higher than her clasped hands that lay over the breviary below her heart. How can he, or such as he, disturb you? What temptation can you be beguiled with? and as he saw the delicate fingers tremble on the ivory cover, his soul was hot and sore against Dirk. "'I will not speak of what might beguile me,' said Jacobia in a low voice. "'I dare not speak of it. Let it go. It is a great sin.' "'There is sin for me also,' murmured Thierry. "'But the prize seems almost worth it.' "'Worth it, you say?' she whispered. Worth it? Her tone made him wince. He could fancy Dirk at her shoulder, prompting her, and he lifted his head and answered strongly, You cannot care to know, and I dare not tell, what has put me in the power of this young scholar, nor what are the temptations with which he enmeshes me. But this you must hear. His hand was outspread on his bosom, pressing on his heart. His hazel eyes were dilated and intense. This, I should be his, utterly, wholly his, one with him in evil, if it were not for you and the thought of you. You are the Chatelaine of Martzburg, continued Thierry in a less steady voice, and you do not know me. It is not fit that you should, but twice you have been gentle with me, and if, and if you could so care for your sake, I would shake the clinging devils off. I would live good and humble, and scorn the tempting youth. What must I do to help you? answered Jacobia. Be what you are, that is all. Be noble, pure. Ah, sweet! That, seeing you, I can still believe in heaven and strive for it. She looked at him earnestly. Why, you are the only one to care that I should be noble and sweet, and it would make a difference to you? Her questioning voice fell wistfully. Ah, sir, were you to hear a wicked thing of me and know it true, 
Did I become a vile, a hideous creature? Would it make a difference? It would, for me, make the difference between hell and paradise. She flushed and trembled. Certes, you have heartened me. Nay, you must not set me in a shrine. But, but, oh, sir, honor me and I will be worthy of it. She raised an appealing face. On my knees, answered Thierry earnestly. I will do you worship. I am no knight to wear your colors boldly, but you shall win a fairer triumph than ever graced the jousts, for I will come back to God through you and live my days a repentant man because of you. Nay, each through the other, said Jacobia. I think I too had, ah, Jesu, fallen if someone had not cared. He paled with pain. What did he, that youth, tempt you with? No matter, she said faintly. It is over now. I will be equal to your thoughts of me, sir. I have no knight, nor have wished for one. But I will often think of you who have encouraged me in this my loneliness. Please God, he said, we both are free of devilry. Will you make that a pact with me, that I may think of you as far above it all as is the moon above the mire? Will you give me leave to think you always as innocent as I would have my saint? Your worship, sir, shall make me so, she answered gravely. Think no ill of me, and I will do no ill. He went on his knee and kissed the hem of her soft gown. You have saved me, he whispered, from everlasting doom. As he rose, Jacobia held out her hand and touched him gently on the sleeve. God be thanked, she said. He bent his head and left her. She drew from her bosom the crucifix that had been her companion in the forest and kissed it reverently, her heart more at ease than since the day when she first met Dirk Renswode. Returning to the great hall of the palace with quick resolve to return to Martzburg or to send for Sibylla forming in her mind, she encountered the Empress walking up and down the long chamber discontentedly. Isabeau, who affected a fondness for Jacobia, smiled on her indolently. But Jacobia, always a little overawed by her great loveliness, and, in her soul, disliking her, would have passed on. The Empress raised her hand. "'Nay, stay and talk to your poor deserted lady,' she said in her babyish voice. "'The Emperor is in his chamber writing Latin prayers on a day like this.' She kissed her hand to the sunshine and the flowers seen through the window. My dames are all abroad with their gallants, and I hazard what I have been doing. She held her left hand behind her and laughed in Jacobia's face. Seen thus in her over-gorgeous clothes, her childlike appearance and beauty giving her an air of fresh innocence, she was not unlike the little image of the Virgin often set above her altars. Guess, 
she cried again. Then, without waiting for an answer, catching butterflies in the garden. She showed her hand now, and held delicately before Jacobia's eyes a white net drawn tightly together full of very-colored butterflies. "'What is the use of them, poor souls?' asked Jacobia. The empress looked at her prisoners. "'Their wings are very lovely,' she said greedily. "'If I pulled them off, would they last? Sewn on silk, how they would shimmer!' "'Nay, they would fade,' answered Jacobia hastily. "'Ye have tried it?' demanded the empress. "'Nay, I could not be so cruel. I love such little gay creatures.' Reflection darkened Isabeau's gorgeous eyes. "'Well, I will take the wings off and see if they lose their brightness.' She surveyed the fluttering victims. "'Some are purple. A rare shade.' Jacobia's smooth brow gathered in a frown of distress. "'They are alive,' she said, "'and it is agreeable to them to live. "'Will you not let them free?' Isabel laughed, not at all babyish now. "'You need not watch me, dame. "'Your grace does not consider how gentle and helpless they are. "'Indeed,' Jacobia flushed in her eagerness, they have faces and little velvet jackets on their bodies. Isabeau frowned and turned away. It amuses you to thwart my pleasures, she answered. She suddenly flung the net at Jacobia. Take them and be gone. The Chatelaine of Martzburg, knowing something of the Empress, was surprised at this sudden yielding. Looking round, however, she learned the cause of it. The Margrave of East Flanders had entered the hall. She caught up the rescued butterflies and left the chamber, while the Empress sank into the window seat among the crimson cushions patterned with sprawling lions, pulled a white rose out of her belt, and set her teeth in the stem of it. "'Where is Malquire?' asked the Margrave, coming towards her. His immense size, augmented by his full, rich clothes, gave him the air of a golden giant. "'Writing Latin prayers?' she mocked. "'Were you Emperor of the West, Lord Balthasar? Would you do that?' He frowned. "'I am not such a holy man as Malquire.' Isabeau laughed. "'Were you my husband? Would you do that?' His fresh, fair face flushed rose color. "'This is among the things I may not even fancy.' She looked out of the window. Her dress was low and loosened about the shoulders, by cause of the heat, she said, but she loved to make a pageant of her beauty. Purposely she was silent, hoping Balthasar would speak, but he stood, without a word, leaning against the tapestry. "'Oh, God!' she said at last, without turning her head. "'I loathe Frankfurt!' His eyes glittered but he made no answer. Were I a man, I would not be so tame. Now he spoke. Princess, you know that I am sick for Rome, but what may we do when the emperor makes delays? Melchior should be a monk, his wife returned bitterly, since a German township serves him when he might rule half the world. Now she gave Balthasar her lovely face, 
and fixed on him her violet eyes. We of the East do not understand this diffidence. My father was an Agian groom who took the throne by strangling the life out of his master. He ruled strongly in Ravenna. I was born in the purple, nursed in the gold. I do not fathom your northern tardiness. The emperor will go to Rome, said the margrave in a troubled voice. He will cross the Alps this year, I think. Her white lids drooped. You love Malquar, therefore you bear with him. He lifted his head. You, too, must bear with him, since he is your lord, princess, he answered. How stern you are, Margrave! If I but turn a breath against Melchoir, and sometimes you wrong me, forgetting that I also am your friend. Her eyes were quick to flash over him, to mark how stiffly and awkwardly he stood, and could not look at her. My duty to the emperor, she said softly, and my love cannot blind me to his weakness now. Come, Lord Balthasar, to you also it is weakness. Even your loyalty must admit we lose the time. The Pope says, come. The King of the Lombards will acknowledge my Lord, his suzerain, and here we stay in Frankfurt, waiting for the winter to cut off the Alps. Certes, he is wrong, frowned the Margrave. Wrong. If I were he, I would be emperor in good sooth, and all the world should know that I ruled in Rome. She drew a long breath. Strange that we, his friend and his wife, cannot persuade him. The nobles are on our side also. Save Hugh of Rousselary, who is ever at his ear, answered Balthasar. He brings him to stay in Germany. The Lord of Rousselary, echoed the Empress. His daughter was your wife? I never saw her, he interrupted quickly, and she died. Her father seems, therefore, to hate me. And me also, I think, though why I do not know, she smiled. His daughter's dead. Dead? Oh, we are very sure that she is dead. Certes, she was as good as another, the Margrave spoke gloomily. Now I must wed again. The Empress stared at him. I did not think you considered that. I must. I am the Margrave now. Isabeau turned her head and fixed her eyes on the palace garden. There is no lady worthy of your rank, and at the same time free, she said. You have an heiress in your train, princess, Jacobia of Martzburg. I have thought of her. Can you think of her? She is near as tall as you, Margrave, and not fair. Oh, a gentle fool enough, but, but, she looked over her shoulder, am I not your lady? Eh, and ever will be, he answered, lifting his bright blue eyes. I wear your favor. I do battle for you. In the jousts you are my queen of love. I make my prayers in your name, and am your servant, princess. Well, you need not a wife, she bit her lips to keep them still. 
Certes, answered Balthasar wonderingly, a knight must have a wife besides a lady, since his lady is oft times the spouse of another, and his highest thought is to touch her gown. But a wife is to keep his castle and do his service. The empress twisted her fingers in and out her girdle. I had rather, she cried passionately, be wife than lady. Ye are both, he answered flushing, the emperor's wife and my lady. She gave him a curious glance. Sometimes I think you are a fool, yet maybe it is only that I am not used to the north. How you would show in Byzantium, my cold Margrave. And she leant across the gold and red cushions towards him. Certes, you shall have your long straight maiden. I think her heart is as chill as yours. He moved away from her. Ye shall not mock me, princess, he said fiercely. My heart is hot enough. Let me be. She laughed at him. Are you afraid of me? Why do you move away? Come back and I will recount you the praises of Jacobia of Mardsburg. He gave her a sullen look. No more of her. And yet your heart is hot enough. Not with the thought of her. God knows. But the empress pressed her hands together and slowly rose, looking past Balthasar at the door. Melchior, we speak of you, she said. The margrave turned. The emperor, velvet shod, was softly entering. He glanced gravely at his wife and smilingly at Balthasar. We speak of you, repeated Isabeau, dark-eyed and flushed, of you and Rome. Melchior of Brabant, third of his name, austere, reserved, proud, and cold, looked more like a knight of the church than king of Germany and emperor of the West. He was plainly habited, his dark hair cut close, his handsome, slightly haughty face composed and stern. Too earnest was he to be showily attractive, yet many men adored him, among them Balthasar of Courtrai, for in himself the emperor was both brave and lovable. "'Cannot you have done with Rome?' he asked sadly, while his large, intelligent eyes rested affectionately on the margrave. "'Is Frankfurt grown so distasteful?' "'Certes, no, Lord Melchior. It is the chance, the chance.' The emperor sank in a weary manner on to a seat. "'Hugh of Rousselary and I have spoken together, and we have agreed, Balthasar.' not to go to Rome. The empress stiffened and dropped her lids. The margrave turned swiftly to face his master, and all the color was dashed out of his fresh face. Melchior smiled gently. My friend, ye are an adventurer, and think of the glory to be gained. But I must think of my people, who need me here. The land is not fit to leave." It will need many men to hold Rome. We must drain the land of knights, wring money from the poor, tax the churches, leave Germany defenseless, a prey to the Franks, and this for the empty title of emperor. Balthasar's breast heaved. Is this your decision? 
the emperor answered gravely i do not think it god his wish that i should go to rome the margrave bent his head and was silent but isabeau flung her clear voice into the pause in constantinople a man such as you would not long fill a throne ere now you had been a blinded monk and i free to choose another husband the emperor rose from his seat the woman raves he said to the pale margrave begone balthasar the german left them when his heavy footfall had died into silence melchoir looked at his wife and his eyes flashed god forgive my father he said bitterly for tying me to this eastern she-cat i was meant for a man's mate she cried fiercely for a caesar's wife i would they had flung me to a footboy sooner than given me to thee thou trembling woman's soul thou hast repaid the injury answered the emperor sternly by the great unhappiness i have in thee my life is not sweet with thee nor easy i would thou hast less beauty and more gentleness i am gentle enough when i choose she mocked balthasar and the court think me a loving wife it is most true none save i know you for the thing you are heartless cruel fierce and hard she came swiftly across the floor to him have you any courage any blood in you will you go to rome to please your wanton ambition i will do nothing nor will i for any reason go to rome isabeau quivered like an infuriated animal i will talk no more of it said melchoir coldly and wearily too often do we waste ourselves in such words as these i am ashamed to call you lord she said hoarsely humbled before every woman in the kingdom who sees her husband brave at least while i know you coward hark to me my wife i am your master and the master of this land i will not be insulted nay nor flouted by your stinging tongue hold me in what contempt ye will you shall not voice it by st george no not if i have to take the whip to hold you dumb ho oh, a christian knight she jeered i loathe your church as i loathe you i am not isabeau but still morosia porfirogenita do not remind me thy father was a stableman and a murderer said melchoir nor that i caused thee to change a name the woman of thy line had made accursed would i could send thee back to ravenna for thou hast brought me naught but bitterness be careful breathed isabeau be careful stand out of my way he commanded for answer she loosened the heavy girdle round her waist he saw her purpose and caught her hands you shall not strike me the links of gold hung from her helpless fingers while she gazed at him with brilliant eyes would you have struck me yea across your mouth she answered now were you a man you would kill me he took the belt from her arm releasing her that you should trouble me he said wearily at this she stood aside to let him pass he turned to the door and as he lifted the tapestry flung down her belt 
the empress crept along the floor snatched it up and stood still panting before the passion had left her face the hangings were stirred again one of her chamberlains princess there is a young doctor below desires to see you constantine his name of frankfort college oh said isabeau a guilty color touched her whitened cheek i know nothing of him she added quickly pardon princess he says tis to decipher an old writing you have sent to him his words are when you see him you will remember the blood burnt more brightly still under the exquisite skin bring him here she said but even as the chamberlain moved aside the slender figure of dirk appeared in the doorway he looked at her smiling calmly his scholar's cap in his hand do you remember me he asked the empress moved her head in assent end of section 15 part 1 chapter 16 the quarrel Dirk Ranswode laid down the pen and pushed aside the parchment and lifted heavy eyes with a sigh of weariness. It was midday and very hot. The witch's red roses were beginning to shed their petals and disclose their yellow hearts, and the leaves of the great trees that shaded the house were curling and yellowing in the fierce sun. From his place at the table, Dirk could mark these signs of autumn without yet by the look in his eyes it seemed that he saw neither trees nor flowers but only some image evoked by his thoughts presently he picked up the quill bit the end of it frowned and laid it down then he started and looked round with some eagerness for a light sound broke the sleepy stillness the door opened and before his expectant gaze thierry appeared dirk flushed and smiled well met he said i have much to say to you and i am come because i also have much to say speak then he returned to his seat took his face between his two delicate hands and rested his elbows on the table i was writing my lecture for to-night Certes, I shall be glad of a diversion. There is no need to make an adieu, Thierry began, obviously with an effort. I am not going on with you. You are not going on, repeated Dirk. Well, your reasons. May God forgive me what I have done, cried Thierry in great agitation, but I will sin no more. I have resolved it, and ye cannot tempt me and all you swore to me demanded dirk his eyes narrowed but he remained composed no man is bound to bargains with the devil i have been weak and wicked but i mingle no more in your fiendish counsels this is for jacobia of bartsburg's sake it is for her sake because of her that i am here now to tell you i have done with it done with you Dirk dropped his hands on to the table. Thierry! Thierry! he cried wildly and sorrowfully. I have measured the temptation, said Thierry. I have thought of the game. 
the loss i have put it aside with god's help and hers i will not aid you in the way you asked me nor will i see it done and ye call that virtue cried dirk poor fool all it amounts to is that you alas love the chatelaine nay he answered hotly it is that having seen her i would not be vile you meditate a dastard thing the emperor is a noble knight ambrose of menthon was a holy monk retorted dirk who choked the pious words in his throat joris of thuringa was an innocent youth who sent him to a hideous death ay cried thierry fiercely but always with you to goad me on before the devil sent you across my way i had never touched sin save in dim thoughts but you with talk of friendship lured me from an honest man's company to poison me with forbidden knowledge to tempt me into hideous blasphemies and i will have no more of it yet you vowed comradeship with me said dirk is your loyalty of such quality thierry sprang violently from his chair and paced heavily up and down the room you blinded me i knew not what i did but now i know when i heard her speak and heard that you had dared to try to trap her to destruction dirk interrupted with a low laugh so she told you that but i warrant that she was dumb about the nature of her temptation that is no matter answered thierry now she is free of you as i shall be as you vowed to her you would be added dirk well go your way i thought you loved me a little but the first woman's face thierry stood still to front him i cannot love that which i fear dirk went swiftly very pale do you fear me thierry he asked wistfully eh ye know too much of satan's lore more than you ever taught me he shuddered uncontrollably there are things in this very house what do you mean what do you mean dirk rose in his place who is the woman whispered thierry fearfully there is a woman here in this house there are none save natalie and me answered dirk on the defensive his eyes dark and glowing there you lie to me the last time i was here i turned back swiftly on leaving but found the door bolted the lights out all save one in the little chamber next to this i watched at the window and saw a gorgeous room and a woman a winged woman you dream answered dirk in a low voice do you think i have enough power to raise such shapes i think twas some love of yours from hell whence you came my love is not in hell but on the earth answered dirk quietly yet shall we go together into the pit as for the woman it was a dream there is no gorgeous chamber there he crossed the room and flung open a little door in the wall see old natalie's closet full of herbs and charms thierry peered into an ill-lit apartment filled with shelves containing jars and bottles the enchantment that could bring the woman could change the room 
he muttered, unconvinced. Dirk gave a slow, strange look. Was she beautiful? Eh, but more beautiful than Jacobia of Martzburg? Thierry laughed. I cannot compare Satan's handmaiden with a lily from paradise. Dirk closed the closet door. Thierry, he said falteringly, do not leave me. You are the only thing in all the universe can move me to joy or pain. I love you utterly. Out on such affection that would steal my soul. You do not know how dear I hold you, insisted Dirk in a trembling voice. Come back to me, and I will let your lady be. She can scorn ye, defy ye, as I do now. Will she? Certes, I wonder. Will she? he cried. You will have none of me, you say. You reject me. But for how long? For ever, answered Thierry hoarsely. Or until Jacobia of Martzburg falls? Thierry swung round. That leaves it still forever. Maybe. However, only for a few poor weeks, your lily is very fragile, Thierry. So look to see it broken in the mud. If you harm her, cried Thierry fiercely, if you blast her with your hellish spells, nay, I will not. Of herself she shall come to ruin. When that is, I will return to you. So farewell for ever. Wait, Dirk called to him. What of this that you know of me? Thierry paused. So much I owe you that I should be silent. Since, if you speak, you bring to light your own history, smiled Dirk. But, about the Emperor? God helping me, I will prevent that. How will you prevent it? Dirk asked quietly. Would you betray me as a first offering to your outraged God? Thierry pressed his hand to his brow in a bewildered, troubled manner. No, no, not that. But I will take occasion to warn him, to warn some one of the Empress. Dirk hunched his shoulders scornfully. Ah, be gone. Ye are a foolish creature. Go and put them on their guard. Thierry flushed. Eh, I will, he answered hotly. I know one honest man about the court, Hugh of Rousselary. A quick change came over Dirk's face. The Lord of Rousselary, he said. I should remember him, certes. His daughter was Balthasar's wife, Ursula. Warn whom you will, say what you will. Save, if ye can, Melchoir of Brabant. Be gone. See, I seek not to detain you. One day you shall come back to me, when yon soft saint fails, and I shall be waiting for you. Till then, farewell. Their eyes met. Thierry's were the first to falter. He muttered something like a malediction on himself, lifted the latch, and strode away. Dirk had not been long alone when the door was pushed open, and Natalie crept in. The witch came to the table, took up the youth's passive hand, and fawned over it. 
let him go she said in an insinuating voice he is a fool why i have put no strain on him to stay dirk smiled faintly but he will return nay pleaded natalie forget him forget him repeated dirk mournfully but i love him natalie stroked the still slim fingers anxiously this affection will be your ruin she moaned dirk gazed past her at the autumn sky and the overblown red roses well if it be so he said pantingly it will be his ruin also he must go with me when i leave the world the world after all natalie he turned his strange gaze on the witch it does not matter if she hold him here so long as he is mine through eternity his lips flushed and quivered the long lashes drooped over his eyes then suddenly he smiled natalie he has good intentions he hopes to save the emperor the witch blinked up at him but is it too late certes i conveyed the potion to isabeau this morning and dirk's smile deepened end of section sixteen part one chapter seventeen the murder balthasar said the emperor in pity of his friend's sullen face i will send ye to rome to make treaty with the pope since it goes so heavily with you to stay in frankfort the margrave bit the ends of his yellow hair and made no answer the empress half lay along the seat against the wall on low stools near her sat her maidens sewing three of them embroidering between them a strip of scarlet silk it was the dining hall the table laid already with rudely magnificent covers nay be pleasant with me smiled the emperor he laid his arm affectionately round the margrave's huge shoulders certes since i took this resolution not to go to rome i have naught but sour looks from all save hugh balthasar's good-humoured face cleared ye are wrong my prince but god what i am not angered we can manage without rome he heroically stifled his sigh and who knows that ye may not change yet he added cheerfully isabeau looked at them as they paced up and down their arms about each other her husband seemed not to know of her presence but the margrave was hotly conscious of her eyes upon him and though he would not turn his upon her nevertheless she marked it and in a half-smiling way came and leant on the table that divided them surely we are late to-night said the emperor yea answered balthasar i do not love to wait he stopped to pour himself a tankard of amber wine and drank it at a draught isabeau watched him will not my lord also drink she asked the fingers of her right hand were hidden in a cluster of red roses with her left hand she raised a chaste flagon in which the sunlight burnt and sparkled as you please princess answered malquar and gazed towards the light indifferently you might have poured for me murmured the margrave in a half voice 
her hand came from the roses and touched a horn glass bound with silver it lingered there a moment then rose to her bosom balthasar absorbing her face did not notice the gesture another time she answered i will serve you balthasar of courtraigue she filled the glass until wine bubbled at the brim give it to my lord she said balthasar laughed uneasily their fingers touched upon the glass and a few drops were spilt take care cried the empress melchoir turned and took the goblet why did you say take care he asked between us we upset the wine said isabeau melchoir drank it has an ugly taste he said she laughed is it the cup-bearer perchance the emperor drank again then set it down i say it is strange taste it balthasar in an instant the empress intervened nay she caught up the glass with a movement swifter than the margraves since i poured the fault if fault there be is mine give it to me cried balthasar but she made a quick motion aside the glass slipped from her fingers and the wine was lost on the floor as balthasar stooped to pick up the goblet the emperor smiled i warn you of that flagon margrave the pages and varlets entered with the meats and set them on the table they who sat at the emperor's board came to take their places Thierry followed his master and fixed quick eyes on the emperor he knew that melchoir had been abroad all day at the hunt and could not have long returned hardly could their designs upon him be put in practice to-night after the supper he meant to speak to hugh of rousselary this as an earnest of his final severance with dirk as the beautiful shining crowd settled to their seats the young secretary whose place was behind his master's chair took occasion to note carefully the lord who was to receive his warning thierry marked the empress sitting languorously and stripping a red rose of its petals melchoir austere composed as always balthasar gay and noisy then he turned his gaze on hugh of rousselary that noble sat close to the emperor thierry had not so far studied his personal appearance though acquainted with his reputation there was something in the turn of his features the prominent chin dark clear eyes pale complexion and resolute set of the mouth that gradually teased thierry as he gazed the whole expression reminded him of another face seen under different circumstances whose he could not determine suddenly the lord of rousselary becoming aware of this scrutiny turned his singularly intent eyes in the direction of the young scholar at once thierry had it he placed the likeness in this manner had dirk ranswold often looked at him the resemblance was unmistakable if elusive this man's face was of necessity sterner darker older and more set he was of larger make moreover than dirk could ever be his nose was heavier his jaw more square 
yet the likeness once noticed could not be again overlooked it strangely discomposed thierry he felt he could not take his warning to one who had dirk's trick of the intense gaze and inscrutable set of the lips he considered if there were not someone else let him go straight away he thought to the emperor himself his reflections were interrupted by a little movement near the table a pause in the converse all eyes were turned to melchoir of brabant he leant back in his seat and stared before him as if he saw a sight of horror at the other end of the table he was quite pale his mouth open, his lips strained and purplish. The empress sprang up from beside him and caught his arm. Melchor, she shrieked. Jesus, he does not hear me. The emperor moved faintly, like one struggling hopelessly under water. Melchor, the margrave pushed back his chair and seized his friend's cold hand. Do you not hear us? Will you not speak? Balthasar, the emperor's voice came as if from depths of distance. I am bewitched. Isabeau shrieked and beat her hands together. Melchor sank forward, while his face glistened with drops of agony. He gave a low crying sound and fell across the table. With an instantaneous movement of fright and horror, the company rose from their seats and pressed towards the emperor. But the margrave shouted at them, Stand back! Would you stifle him? He is not dead, nor, God be thanked, dying! He lifted up the unconscious man and gazed eagerly into his face. As he did so, his own blanched, despite his brave words. Melchor's eyes and cheeks had fallen hollow. A ghastly hue overspread his features. His jaw dropped, and his lips were cracked, as if his breath burnt the blood. "'We must take him hence,' said Hugh of Rousselery, with authority. "'Help me, Margrave.' He forced his way to Balthasar's side. The empress had fallen to her husband's feet, a gleam of white and silver against the dark trappings of the throne." what shall i do she moaned what shall i do the lord of rousselary glanced at her fiercely cease to whine and bring hither a physician and a priest he commanded isabeau crouched away from him and her purple eyes blazed the margrave and hugh lifted the emperor between them there was a swaying confusion as chair and seats were pulled out lights swung higher and a passage forced through the bewildering crowd for the two nobles and their burden some flung open the door of the winding stairway that ascended to the emperor's bedchamber and slowly with difficulty melchoir of brabant was borne up the narrow steps isabeau rose to her feet and watched it she considered a moment then ran across the room and followed swiftly after the cumbrous procession it was now a quarter of an hour since the emperor had fainted and the hall was left empty only thierry remained staring about him with sick eyes he crossed to the emperor's seat where the gorgeous cushions were thrown to right and left in isabeau's place 
lay a single red rose, half stripped of its leaves, a great cluster of red roses on the floor beside it. This was confirmation. He did not think there was any other place in Frankfurt where grew such blooms. So he was too late. Dirk might well defy him, knowing that he would be too late. His resolution was very quickly taken. He would be utterly silent. Not by a word or a look would he betray what he knew, since it would be useless. What could save the emperor now? It was one thing to give warning of evil projected, another to reveal evil performed. Besides, he told himself, the empress and her faction would be at once in power, Dirk a high favorite. He backed fearfully from the red roses, glowing somberly by the empty throne, and reflected eagerly on how this affected him and Jacobia of Martzburg. To the man, dying miserably above, he gave no thought at all. The woman, who waited impatiently for her husband's death to put his friend in his place, he did not consider. Nor did the fate of the kingship trouble him. He pictured Dirk as triumphant, potent, the close ally of the wicked empress, and he shivered for his own treasured soul that he had just snatched from perdition. He knew he could not fight nor face Dirk triumphant, armed with success, and his outlook narrowed to the one idea. Let me get away. But where? Martzburg? Would the Chatelaine let him follow her? It was too near Baal. He clasped his hands over his hot brow, calling on Jacobia. As he dallied and trembled with his fears and terrors, one entered the hall from the little door leading to the emperor's chamber. Hugh of Rousselerie, holding a lamp. A feverish feeling of guilt made Thierry draw back. The lord of Rousselerie held up the lamp, glanced down and along the empty seats, then noticed the crimson flowers by Isabeau's chair and picked them up. As he raised his head, his gray eyes caught Thierry's glance. Ah, the queen's chamberlain's scrivener, he said. Do you chance to know how these roses came here? Nay, answered Thierry hastily. I could not know. They do not grow in the palace garden, remarked Hugh. He laid them on the throne and walked the length of the table, scrutinizing the dishes and goblets. In the flare of flambeaux and candles, there was no need for his lamp, but he continued to hold it aloft as if he hoped it held some special power. Suddenly he stopped, and called to Thierry in his quiet, commanding way. The young man obeyed unwillingly. Look at that, said Hugh of Rousselerie grimly. He pointed to two small marks in the table, black holes in the wood. Burns, said Thierry with pale lips, from the candles, Lord. Candles do not burn in such a fashion. As he spoke, Hugh came round the table and cast the lamplight over the shadowed floor. What is that? He bent down before the window. Thierry saw that he motioned to a great scar in the board, as if fire had been flung and had bitten into the wood before extinguished. 
the lord of Rousselary lifted a grim face. I tell you, the flames that made that mark are now burning the heart and blood out of Melchoir of Brabant. Do not say that. Do not speak so loud, cried Thierry desperately. It cannot be true. Hugh set his lamp upon the table. I am not afraid of the eastern witch, he said sternly. The man was my friend, and she has bewitched and poisoned him. Now, God hear me, and you, Scrivener, mark my vow, if I do not publish this before the land. A new hope rose in Thierry's heart. If this lord would denounce the empress before power was hers, if her guilt could be brought home before all men, yet through no means of his own, why, she and Dirk might be defeated yet. Well, he said hoarsely, make haste, lord, for when the breath is out of the emperor it is too late. She will have means to silence you, and even now be careful. She has many champions. Hugh of Rousselary smiled slowly. You speak wisely, Scrivener, and know, I think, something. Hereafter, I shall question you. Thierry made a gesture for silence. A heavy step sounded on the stair, and Balthasar, pallid but still magnificent, swept into the room. A great war-sword clattered after him. He wore a gorget and carried his helmet. His blue eyes were wild in his colorless face. He gave Hugh a look of some defiance. Melchoir is dying, he said, his tone rough with emotion, and I must go look after the soldiery, or some adventurer will seize the town. Dying, repeated Hugh, who is with him? The Empress. They have sent for the bishop. Until he come, none is to enter the chamber. By whose command? By the order of the Empress. Yet I will go. The soldier paused at the doorway. Well, ye were his friend. Belike she will let you in. He swung away with a chink of steel. Belike she will not, said Hugh, but I can make the endeavor. With no further glance at the shuddering young man who held himself rigid against the wall, Hugh of Rousselary ascended to the emperor's chamber. He found the anteroom crowded with courtiers and monks. The emperor's door was closed, and before it stood two black mutes brought by the empress from Greece. Hugh touched a black-robed brother on the arm. By what authority are we excluded from the emperor's deathbed? Several answered him. The queen, she claims to know as much of medicine as any of the physicians. She is in possession. Hugh shouldered his way through them. Certes, I must see him and her. But not one stepped forward to aid or encourage. Melchoir was beyond protecting his adherents. He was no longer emperor, but a man who might be reckoned with the dead. The empress and Balthasar of Courtreg had already seized the governance, and who dared interfere? The great nobles even held themselves in reserve and were silent. But Hugh of Rousselary's blood was up. He had always held Isabeau vile, nor had he any love for the margrave whose masterful hand he saw in this. 
since none of you will stand by me he cried speaking aloud to the throng i will by myself enter and by myself take the consequences he advanced to the door with his sword drawn and ready and the crowd drew back neither supporting nor preventing the slaves closed together and made a gesture warning him to retire he seized one by his gilt collar and swung him violently against the wall. Then, while the other crouched in fear, he opened the door and strode into the emperor's bedchamber. It was a low room, hung with gold and brown tapestry. The windows were shut, and the air faint. The bed stood against the wall, and the heavy, dark curtains looped back, revealed Melchor of Brabant, lying in his clothes on the coverlet with his throat bare and his eyes staring across the room. A silver lamp stood on a table by the window, and its faint radiance was the only light. On the steps of the bed stood Isabeau. Over her white dress she had flung a long scarlet cloak, and her pale bright hair had fallen on to her shoulders. At the sight of Hugh she caught hold of the bed hangings and gazed at him fiercely. He sheathed his sword as he came across the room. "'Princess, I must see the Emperor,' he said sternly. "'He will see no man. He knows none, nor can he speak,' she answered, her bearing prouder and more assured than he had ever known it. "'Get you gone, sir. I know not how ye forced an entry.' "'You have no power to keep the nobles from their lord,' he replied." nor will I take your bidding. I will have you put without the doors if you so disturb the dying. But Hugh of Rousselary advanced to the bed. Let me see him, he demanded. He speaks to me. The empress drew the curtain, further concealing the dying man. He speaks to none. Be gone. As she spoke, Hugh sprang lightly and suddenly on to the steps, pushed aside the slight figure of the empress and caught back the curtains. Melchor, he cried, and snatched up the emperor by the shoulders. He is dead, breathed the empress. With a slow step, she went to the table and seated herself beside the silver lamp. While she uttered sigh on sigh and clasped her hands over her eyes, then the hot stillness began to quiver with the distant sound of numerous bells. They were holding service for the dying in every church in Frankfurt. The emperor stirred in Hugh's arms. Without opening his eyes, he spoke. Pray for me, Balthazar. They did not slay me honorably. He raised his hands to his heart, to his lips, moaned and sank from Hugh's arm to the pillow. Kia apud dominum misericordia, et copiasa apud iam, he murmured. Iam redemptio, flushed Hugh. Amen, moaned Melchor of Brabant, and so died. For a moment the chamber was silent, save for the insistent bells, then Hugh turned his white face from the dead, and Isabeau shivered to her feet. Call in the others, murmured the empress, since he is dead. Ay, I will call in the others, thou eastern witch, and show them the man thou hast murdered. 
She stared at him a moment, her face like a mask of ivory set in the glittering hair. Murdered, she said at last. Murdered. He fingered his sword fiercely, and it shall be my duty to see you brought to the stake for this night's work. She gave a shriek and ran towards the door. Before she reached it, it was flung open, and Balthasar of Courtrai sprang into the room. You called? he panted, his eyes blazing on Hugh of Rousselerie. Yes, he is dead. Melchor is dead, and this lord says I slew him. Balthasar, answer for me. Certes, cried Hugh, a fitting one to speak for you, your accomplice. With a short sound of rage, the margrave dragged out his sword and struck the speaker a blow across the breast with the flat of it. So ho, he shouted, it pleases you to lie. He yelled to his men without, and the death chamber was filled with a clatter of arms that drowned the mournful peals of the bells. Take away this lord on my authority. Hugh drew his sword, only to have it wrenched away. The soldiers closed round him and swept their prisoner from the chamber, while Balthasar, flushed and furious, watched him dragged off. I always hated him, he said. Isabeau fell on her knees and kissed his mailed feet. Melchor is dead, and I have no champion save you. The margrave stooped and raised her, his face burning with blushes till it was like a great rose. Isabeau, Isabeau, he stammered. She struggled out of his arms. Nay, not now, she whispered in a stifled voice. Not now can I speak to you. But afterwards, my lord, my lord. She went to the bed and flung herself across the steps, her face hidden in her hands. Balthasar took off his helmet, crossed himself, and humbly bent his great head. Melchior IV lay stiffly on the lily-sewn coverlet, and without the great bells tolled and the monks' chant rose. De profunde. End of section 17 Part 1 Chapter 18 The Pursuit of Jacobia The Chatelaine of Martzburg sat in the best guest chamber of a wayside hostel that lay a few hours journeying from her home. So swiftly had she fled from Frankfurt that its last scenes were still before her eyes, like a gorgeous and disjointed pageant. The emperor stricken down at the feast, the brief flashing turmoil, Isabeau's peerless face that her own horrid thoughts colored with a sinister expression. Balthasar of Courtrègue bringing the city to his feet, Hugh of Rousselarie snatched away to a dungeon, and over it all the leaping red light of a hundred flambeaux. Presently, she passed into the little bedchamber and took up a mirror into which she gazed long and earnestly. Is it a wicked face? she answered herself. No, no. Is it a weak face? Alas! The wind rose higher, fluttered the lamp flame, and stirred the arras on the wall. 
and laying the mirror down, she returned to the outer chamber. Up and down walked Jacobia of Martzburg, clasping and unclasping her soft young hands, her grey eyes turning from right to left. She wished she had asked for a fire, and that she had kept one of the women to sleep with her. It was so lonely. She wanted to go to the door and call someone, but a curious heaviness in her limbs began to make movement irksome. She could no longer drag her steps, and with a sigh she sank into the frayed velvet chair by the fireplace. She tried to tell herself that she was free, that she was on her way to escape, but could not form the words on her lips, hardly the thought. Her head throbbed, and a cold sensation gripped her heart. She moved in the chair, only to feel as if held down in it. She struggled in vain to rise. Barbara, she whispered, and thought she was calling aloud. Her brain whirled with memories, with anticipations and vague expectations, tinged with fear like the sensations of a dream. She felt that she was sinking into soft, infolding darkness. The lamp flame changed into a five-pointed star that rested on a knight's helm. The sound of wind and rain became faint human cries. She whispered, as the dying emperor had done, I am bewitched. Then the knight, with the star glittering above his brow, came towards her and offered her a goblet. Sebastian, she cried, and sat up with a face of horror. The chamber was spinning about her. She saw the knight's long painted shield and his bare hand holding out the wine. His visor was down. She shrieked and laughed together and put the goblet aside. Someone spoke out of the mystery. The empress found happiness. Why not you? May not a woman die as easily as a man? She tried to remember her prayers, to find her crucifix, but the cold edge of the gold touched her lips, and she drank. The hot wine scorched her throat and filled her with strength. As she sprang up, the night star quivered back into the lamp flame. The vapors cleared from the room. She found herself staring at Dirk Renswode, who stood in the center of the room and smiled at her. Oh! she cried in a bewildered way, and put her hands to her forehead. Well, said Dirk, he held a rich gold goblet, empty, and his was the voice she had already heard. Why did you leave Frankfurt? Jacobia shuddered. I, I do not know. Her eyes were blank and dull. I think I was afraid. Lest you might do as Isabeau did? asked Dirk. What has happened to me? was all her answer. What of your steward? whispered Dirk. I have no steward. I am going alone to Martzburg. Dirk set the goblet beside the lamp. The while he watched her intently with frowning eyes. What of Sebastian? he repeated. Ye fled from him. But have ye ceased to think of him? No, said the chatelaine of Martzburg. No, day and night, what is God that he lets a man's face to come between me and him? The emperor is dead, said Dirk. 
is dead, she repeated. Isabeau knows how. Ah, she whispered, I, I think I knew it. Shall the Empress be happy, and you starve your heart to death? Jacobia sighed. Sebastian, Sebastian, she had the look of one walking in sleep. What is Sibylla to you? His wife, answered Jacobia in the same tone. His wife. The dead do not bind the living. Jacobia laughed. No, no, how cold it is here. Do you not feel the wind across the floor? Her fingers wandered aimlessly over her bosom. Sibylla is dead, you say. Nay, Sibylla might die. So easily. Jacobia laughed again. I Isabeau did it. She is young and fair, she said, and she could do it. Why not I? But I cannot bear to look on death. Her expressionless eyes turned on Dirk still in sightless fashion. A word, said Dirk, that is all your part. Send him ahead to Martzburg. Jacobia nodded aimlessly. Why not? Why not? Sibylla would be in bed, lying awake, listening to the wind as I have done, so often, and he would come up the steep, dark stairs. Oh, and she would raise her head. Dirk put in. Has the Chatelaine spoken? She would say, and he would make an end of it. Perhaps she would be glad to die, said Jacobia dreamily. I have thought that I should be glad to die. And Sebastian, said Dirk. Her strangely altered face lit and changed. Does he care for me? she asked piteously. Enough to make life and death of little moment, answered Dirk. Has he not followed you from Frankfurt? Followed me, murmured Jacobia. I thought he had forsaken me. Sebastian, said Dirk softly. He waved his little hand, and the steward appeared in the dark doorway of the inner room. He looked from one to the other swiftly, and his face was flushed and dangerous. Sebastian, said Jacobia. There was no change in voice nor countenance. He came across the room to her, speaking as he came. But a sudden fresh gust of wind without scattered his words. Have you followed me? she asked. Yea, he answered hoarsely, staring at her. He had not dreamed a living face could look so white as hers. No, nor dead face either. He dropped to one knee before her and took her limp hand. She bent forward and with her other hand touched his tumbling hair. Lord of Martzburg, and my lord, she said, and smiled sweetly. Do you know how much I love you, Sebastian? Why, you must ask the image of the Virgin. I have told her so often, and no one else, nay, no one else. Sebastian sprang to his feet. Oh, God, he cried, I am ashamed. Ye have bewitched her. She knows not what she says. Dirk turned on him fiercely. Did ye not curse me when ye thought she had escaped? Did I not swear to recover her for you? Is she not yours? St. Gabriel cannot save her now. If she had not said that, muttered Sebastian, 
he turned distracted eyes upon her standing with no change in her expression the tips of her fingers resting on the table her wide gray eyes gazing before her fool answered dirk and she did not love you what chance had you i left my fortunes to help you to this prize and i will not see you palter now lady speak to him ay speak to me cried sebastian earnestly tell me if it be your wish that i at all costs should become your husband tell me if it is your will that the woman in our way should go a slow passion stirred the calm of her face her eyes glittered yes she said yes jacobia he took her arm and drew her close to him look me in the face and repeat that to me think if it is worth hell to you and me she gazed up at him then hid her face on his sleeve ay hell she answered heavily go to martzburg to-night she cannot claim you when she is dead how i have striven not to hate her my lord my husband he put her from him into the worn old chair i will come back to you to-morrow the wind rushed between them and made the lamp flame leap wildly make haste cried dirk away the horse is below sebastian opened the door on to the dark stairway and went softly out now it is done murmured dirk in a swelling whisper and she is lost he snatched up the lamp and holding it aloft looked down at the drooping figure in the chair jacobia's head sank back against the tarnished velvet there was a smile on her white lips and her hand rested in her lap even with dirk's intent face bending over her and the full light pouring down on her she did not look up gold hair and gray eyes and her little feet murmured dirk one of god's own flowers what are you now jacobia moved in her seat is he gone she asked fearfully certes he has gone smiled dirk would you have him dally on such an errand jacobia rose swiftly and stood a moment listening to the unhappy wind i thought he was here she said under her breath i thought that he had come at last he came said dirk the chatelaine looked swiftly round at him there was a dawning knowledge in her eyes who are you she demanded and her voice had lost its calm what has happened do you not remember me smiled dirk jacobia staggered back why she stammered he was here down at my feet and we spoke about sibylla and now said dirk he is gone to free you of sibylla as you bid him as i bid him at this moment he rides to martzburg on this service of yours and i must be gone to frankfort where my fortunes wait for you these words should you meet again one thierry a pretty scholar do not prate to him of god and judgment nor try to act the saint let him alone he is no matter of yours and maybe some woman cares for him as ye care for sebastian 
ay, and will hold him, though she have not yellow hair. You are the devil, she shrieked. I have delivered myself unto the devil. She beat her hands together and fell towards his feet. Dirk stepped close and peered curiously into her unconscious face. Why, she is not so fair, he murmured, and grief will spoil her bloom, and twas only her face he loved. He extinguished the lamp and smiled into the darkness. He drew the curtain away from the deep-set window, and the moon, riding the storm clouds like a silver-armored Amazon, cast a ghastly light over the huddled figure of Jacobia of Martzburg, and threw her shadow dark and trailing across the cold floor. Dirk left the chamber and the hostel unseen and unheard. The wind made too great a clamor for stray sounds to tell. Out in the wild, wet night he paused a moment to get his bearings, then turned towards the shed where he and Sebastian had left their horses. There were the Chatelaine's horses asleep in their stalls. Here was his own, but the place beside it where Sebastian's steed had waited was empty. Dirk, shivering a little in the tempest, unfastened his horse and was prepared to depart when a near sound arrested him. Someone was moving in the straw at the back of the shed. Dirk listened, his hand on the bridle, till a moonbeam striking across his shoulder revealed a cloaked figure rising from the ground. The stranger got to his feet. I have but taken shelter here, sir, he said, deeming it too late to rouse the hostel. Thierry, cried Dirk, and laughed excitedly. Now this is strange. The figure came forward. Thierry, yes, have you followed me? He exclaimed wildly, and his face showed drawn and wan in the silver light. I left Frankfurt to escape you. What fiend's trick has brought you here? Are you afraid of me, Thierry? Dirk asked mournfully. Certes, there is no need. But Thierry cried out at him with the fierceness of one at bay. Be gone! I want none of you, nor of your kind. I know how the emperor died, and I fled from a city where such as you came to power, ay, even as Jacobia of Martzburg did. I am come after her. And where think you to find her? asked Dirk. By now she is at Baal. Are ye not afraid to go to Baal? Thierry trembled and stepped back into the shadows of the shed. I want to save my soul. No, I am not afraid. If need be, I will confess. Dirk laughed. At the shrine of Jacobia of Martzburg? Look to it she be not trampled in the mire by then. You lie. You malign her, cried the other in strong agitation. But Dirk turned on him with imperious sternness. I did not leave Frankfurt on a fool's errand. I was triumphant. At the high tide of my fortunes, my foot on Isabeau's neck. I had good reason to have left this alone. Come with me to Martzburg and see my work, and know the saint you worship. Is the Chatelaine there? If not yet, she will be soon. Take one of these horses, he added. I know not your meaning, answered Thierry fearfully, but my road was to Martzburg. I mean to pray, Jacobia. 
who left without a word to me to give me some small place in her service. Belike she will, mocked Dirk. Impatiently and feverishly Thierry unfastened and prepared himself a mount. If ye have evil designs on her, he cried, be very sure ye will be defeated, for her strength is as the strength of angels. Dirk delicately guided his steed out of the shed. The moon had at last conquered the cloud battalions, and a clear cold light revealed the square, dark shape of the hostel, the flapping sign, the bare pine trees, and the long glimmer of the road. Dirk's eyes turned to the blank window of the room where Jacobia lay, and he smiled wickedly. The night has cleared, he said, as Thierry, leading one of the Chatelaine's horses, came out of the stable, and we should reach Martsburg before the dawn. End of section 18 Part 1 Chapter 19 Sibylla Sebastian paused on the steep, dark stairs and listened. Castle Martsburg was utterly silent. He knew that there were one or two servants only within the walls, and that they slept at a distance. He knew that his cautious entry by the donjon door had made no sound, yet on every other step or so he stood still and listened. He had procured a light. It fluttered in danger of extinction in the draughty stairway, and he had to shield it with his hand. Once, when he stopped, he took from his belt the keys that had gained him admission and slipped them into the bosom of his doublet. Hanging at his waist, they made a little jingling sound as he moved. When he gained the great hall, he opened the door as softly and slowly as if he did not know emptiness alone awaited him the other side. He entered, and his little light only served to show the expanses of gloom. It was very cold. He could hear the rain falling in a thin stream from the lips of the gargoyles without. He remembered that same sound on the night the two students took shelter, the night when the deed he was about to do had by a devil, in a whisper, been first put into his head. He crossed to the hearth, and set the lamp in the niche by the chimney-piece. He wished there was a fire. Certainly it was cold. The dim rays of the lamp showed the ashes on the hearth, the cushions in the window-seat, and something that, even in that dullness, shone with fiery hue. Sebastian looked at it in a half-horror. It was Sibylla's red lily, finished and glowing from a samite cushion. By the side of it slept Jacobia's little grey cat. The steward, gazing in curiously intent fashion, recalled the fact that he had never conversed with his wife, and never liked her. He could not tell of one sharp word between them. Yet, had she said she hated him, he would have felt no surprise. He wondered, in case he had ever loved her, would he have been here to-night on this errand? Lord of Martsburg lord of as fine a domain as any in the empire, with the chance of the imperial crown itself. Nay, had he loved his wife, it would have made no difference. What sorry fool, even, would let a woman interfere with a great destiny, lord of Martsburg? 
With little reflection on the inevitable for his wife, he fell to considering Jacobia. Until tonight she had been a cipher to him, that she favoured him a mere voucher for his crime, for the procuring of this or that for him, a fact to be accepted and used, but that she should pray about him, speak as she had, that was another matter, and for the first time in his cold life he was both moved and ashamed. His thin dark face flushed, he looked askance at the red lily, and took the light from its niche. The shadows seemed to gather and throng out of the silence, bearing down on him and urging him forward. He found the little door by the fireplace open, and ascended the steep stone stairs to his wife's room. Here there was not even the drip of the rain, or the wail of the wind to disturb the stillness. He had taken off his boots, and his silk-clad feet made no sound, but he could not hush the catch of his breath and the steady thump of his heart. When he reached her room, he paused again, and again listened. Nothing. How could there be? Had he not come so softly even the little cat had slept on undisturbed? He opened the door and stepped in. It was a small, low chamber— the windows were unshrouded, and fitful moonlight played upon the floor. Sebastian looked at once towards the bed that stood to his left. It was hung with dark arras, now drawn back from the pillows. Sibylla was asleep. Her thick, heavy hair lay outspread under her cheek. Her flesh and the bedclothes were turned to one dazzling whiteness by the moon. Worked into the coverlet that had slipped half to the polished floor were great wreaths of purple roses, showing dim yet gorgeous. Her shoes stood on the bedsteps. Her clothes were flung over a chair. Nearby, a crucifix hung against the wall, with her breviary on a shelf beneath. The passing storm clouds cast luminous shadows across the chamber, but they were becoming fainter. The tempest was dying away. Sebastian put the lamp on a low coffer inside the door and advanced to the bed. A large dusky mirror hung beside the window, and in it he could see his wife again, reflected dimly in her ivory whiteness with the dark lines of her hair and brows. He came to the bedside so that his shadow was flung across her sleeping face. Sibylla, he said. Her regular breathing did not change. Sibylla! Now she stirred. He heard her fetch a sigh, as one who wakens reluctantly from soft dreams. Do you not hear me speak? Sibylla! From the bewildering glooms of the bed he heard her silk bedclothes rustle and slip. The moon came forth again and revealed her sitting up, wide awake now and staring at him. So you have come home, Sebastian, she said. Why did you rouse me? He looked at her in silence. She shook back her hair from her eyes. "'What is it?' she asked softly. "'The emperor died,' said Sebastian. "'I know. What is that to me? Bring the light, Sebastian. I cannot see your face.' "'There is no need. The emperor had not time to pray, and I would not deal so with you. Therefore I woke you.' "'Sebastian!' By my mistress's commands you must die tonight, and by my desire I shall be lord of Martzburg, and there is no other way. 
She put her hand to her long throat. I wondered if you would ever say this to me. I did not think so, for it did not enter my mind that she could give commands. Then you knew? Sibylla smiled. Before ever you did, Sebastian. And I have so thought of it, in these long days when I have been alone. It seemed that I must sew it even into my embroidering. Jacobia loves Sebastian. He gripped the bedpost. I am not here to talk of that, answered Sebastian. Nor have we long. The dawn is not far off. Sibylla rose, letting her long feet on the bedstep. So I must die, she said. Must die. Certes, I have not lived so ill that I should fear to die, nor so pleasantly that I should yearn to live. It will be a poor thing in you to kill me, but no shame to me to be slain, my lord. As she stood now against the shadowed curtains, her hair caught the lamplight and flashed into red gold about her colorless face. Sebastian looked at her with hatred and some terror, but she smiled strangely at him. You never knew me, Sebastian, but I am very well acquainted with you, and I do scorn you so utterly that I am sorry for the Chatelaine. She and I will manage that, answered Sebastian fiercely, and if you seek to divert or delay me by this talk, it is useless, for I am resolved, nor will I be moved. She moved from the bed in the long linen garment that she wore, slim and childish to see. She took a wrap of gold-colored silk from a chair and put it about her. The man gazed at her the while with sullen eyes. She glanced at the crucifix. I have nothing to say. God knows it all. I am ready. I do not want your soul, he cried. Sibylla smiled. I made confession yesterday. How cold it is for this time of year. I do not shiver for fear, my lord. Make haste, breathed Sebastian. His wife raised her face. How long have we been wed? she asked. Let that be. He paled and bit his lip. Three years. Nay, not three years. When I am dead, give my embroideries to Jacobia. They are in these coffers. I have finished the red lily. I was sewing it when the two scholars came. That night she first knew, and you first knew, but I had known a long while. Sebastian caught up the lamp. Be silent, or speak to God, he said. She came gently across the floor, holding the yellow silk at her breast. What are you going to do with me? she whispered. Strangle me? Nay, they would see that afterwards. Sebastian went to a little door that opened beside the bed and pulled aside the arras. That leads to the battlements, she said. He pointed to the dark steps. Go up, Sibylla. He held the lamp above his haggard face, and the light of it fell over the narrow, winding stone steps. She looked at them and ascended. Sebastian followed, closing the door after him. In a few moments they were out on the donjon roof. The vast stretch of sky was clear now and paling for the dawn. Faint, pale clouds clustered round the dying moon, and the scattered stars pulsed wearily. Below them lay the dark masses of the other portions of the castle, and beside them rose the straining pole and wind-tattered banner of Jacobia of Martzburg. Sibylla leant against the battlements, her hair fluttering over her face. 
"'How cold it is!' she said in a trembling voice. "'Make haste, my lord!' He was shuddering, too, in the keen, insistent wind. "'Will you not pray?' he asked again. "'No,' she answered, and looked at him vacantly. "'If I shriek, would anyone hear me? "'Will it be more horrible than I thought? "'Make haste, make haste, or I shall be afraid.' She crouched against the stone, shivering violently. Sebastian put the lamp upon the ground. "'Take care it does not go out,' she said, and laughed. <laughs> "'You would not like to find your way back in the dark. "'The little cat will be sorry for me.' She broke off to watch what he was doing. A portion of the tower projected. Here the wall was of a man's height and pierced with arblast holes. Through there Sibylla had often looked and seen the country below framed in the stone like a picture in a letter of an aura. So small it seemed, and yet clear and brightly colored. Beneath the wall was a paving stone, raised at will by an iron ring. When lifted, it revealed a sheer open drop the entire height of the donjon, through which stones and fire could be hurled in time of siege upon the assailants in the courtyard below. But Jacobia had always shuddered at it, nor had there been occasion to open it for many years. Sibylla saw her husband strain at the ring, and bend over the hole and step forward. Must it be that way? Oh, hey, Sue! Hey, Sue! Shall I not be afraid? She clasped her hands and fixed her eyes on the figure of Sebastian, as he raised the slab and revealed the black aperture. Quickly he stepped back as stone rang on stone. So, he said, I shall not touch you, and it will be swiftly over. Walk across, Sibylla. She closed her eyes and drew a long breath. Have you not the courage? he cried violently. Then I must hurl you from the battlements. It shall not look like murder. She turned her face to the beautiful, brightening sky. My soul is not afraid, but how my body shrinks. I do not think I can do it. He made a movement towards her. At that, she gathered herself. No, you shall not touch me. Across the donjon roof, she walked with a firm step. Farewell, Sebastian. May God assoil me and thee. She put her hands to her face and moaned as her foot touched the edge of the hole. No shriek nor cry disturbed the serenity of the night. She made no last effort to save herself, but disappeared silently to the blackness of her death. Sebastian listened to the strange, indefinite sound of it, and drops of terror gathered on his brow. Then all was silent again, save for the monotonous flap of the banner. Lord of Martzburg, he muttered to steady himself. Lord of Martzburg. He dropped the stone into place, picked up the lantern, and returned down the close, cold stairs. Her room. On the pillow, the mark where her head had lain. Her clothes over the coffer. Well, he hated her no less than he had ever done. To the last, she had shamed him. Why had he been so long? Too long. Soon, someone would be stirring, and he must be far from Martzburg before they found Sibylla. He crept from the chamber with the same unnecessary stealth he had observed in entering, 
and in a cautious manner descended the stairs to the great hall. The pale glow of a dreary dawn filled the great hall as he entered it. The gray cat was still asleep, and the shining silks of the red lily shone like the hair of the strange woman who had worked it patiently into the samite. He tiptoed across the hall, descended the wider stairs, and made his way to the first chamber of the donjon. Carefully he returned the lamp to the niche where he had found it, wondering, as he extinguished it, if any would note that it had been burnt that night. Carefully he drew on his great muddy boots and crept out by the little postern door into the court. So sheltered was the castle, and situated in so peaceful a place, that when the chatelaine was not within the walls, the huge outer gates that required many men to close them stood open on to the hillside. Beyond them Sebastian saw his patient horse, fastened to the ring of the bell-chain, and beyond him the clear grey-blue hills and trees. His road lay open, yet he closed the door slowly behind him and hesitated. He strove with a desire to go and look at her. He knew just how she had fallen. When he had first come to Martzburg, the hideous hole in the battlements exercised a great fascination over him. He had often flung down stones, clods of grass, and even once a book, that he might hear the hollow whistling sound and imagine a furious enemy below. Afterwards he had noticed these things, and how they struck the bottom of the shaft, lying where she would be now. He desired to see her, yet loathed the thought of it. There was his horse, there the open road, and Jacobia waiting a few miles away. Yet he must linger while the accusing daylight gathered about him. While the rising sun discovered him, he must dally with the precious moments, bite the ends of his black hair, frown and stare at the round tower of the donjon the other side of which she lay. At last he crossed the rough cobbles, skirted the keep, and stood still, looking at her. Yes, he had pictured her, yet he saw her more distinctly than he had imagined he would in this grey light. Her hair and her cloak seemed to be wrapped close about her. One hand still clung to her face. Her feet showed bare and beautiful. Sebastian crept nearer. He wanted to see her face, and if her eyes were open, to be certain. Also, if that dark red that lay spread on the ground was all her scattered locks, the light was treacherous. He was stooping to touch her when the quick sound of an approaching horseman made him draw back and glance round. But before he could even tell himself it were well to fly, they were upon him. Two horsemen, finely mounted, the foremost, Dirk Renswode, bareheaded, a rich color in his cheek and a sparkle in his eye. He reined up the slim brown horse. So, it is done, he cried, leaning from the saddle towards Sebastian. The steward stepped back. Whom have you with you? he asked in a shaking voice. A friend of mine, and a suitor to the Chatelaine, of which folly you and I shall cure him. Thierry pressed forward, the hoofs of his striving horse making musical clatter on the cobbles. The steward, he cried, and... 
His voice sank. He turned burning eyes on Dirk. The steward's wife that was, smiled the youth. But certes, you must do him worship now. He will be Lord of Martsburg. Sebastian was staring at Sibylla. You tell too much, he muttered. Nay, my friend is one with me, and I can answer for his silence. Dirk patted the horse's neck and laughed again, laughter with a high, triumphant note in it. Thierry swung round on him in a desperate, bitter fierceness. Why have you brought me here? Where is the Chatelaine? By God, his saints, that woman has been murdered! Dirk turned in the saddle and faced him. A. And by Jacobia of Martzburg's commands. Thierry laughed aloud. The lie is dead as you give it being, he answered, nor can all your devilry make it live. Sebastian, said Dirk, has not this woman come to her death by the Chatelaine's commands? He pointed to Sibylla. You know it, since in your presence she bade me hither, answered Sebastian heavily. Dirk's voice rose, clear and musical. You see, your piece of uprightness thought highly of her steward, and that she might endow him with her hand, his wife must die. Peace, peace, cried Sebastian fiercely, and Thierry rose in his saddle. It is a lie, he repeated wildly. If tis not a lie, God has turned his face from me, and I am lost indeed. If tis no lie, cried Dirk exultingly, you are mine. Did ye not swear it? And she be this thing you name her? answered Thierry passionately. Then the devil is cunning indeed, and I his servant. But if you speak false, I will kill you at her feet. And by that will I abide, smiled Dirk. Sebastian, you shall return with us to give this news to your mistress. Is she not here? cried Thierry. Dirk pointed to the silver-plated harness. You ride her horse. See her arms upon his breast? Sweet fool, we left her behind in the hostel, waiting the steward's return. Always ye trap and deceive me, exclaimed Thierry hotly. Let us be gone, said Sebastian. He looked at Dirk as if at his master. Is it not time for us to be gone? It was full daylight now, though the sun had not yet risen above the hills. The lofty walls and high towers of the huge gray castle blocked up the sky and threw into the gloom the three in their shadow. Hark, said Dirk, and lifted his finger delicately. A white horse appeared against the cold, misty background of the gray country. A woman was in the saddle, Jacobia of Martsburg. She paused, peered up at the high little windows in the donjon, then turned her gaze on the silent three. Now can the Chatelaine speak for herself, breathed Dirk. Thierry gave a great sigh, his eyes fixed with a painful intensity on the approaching lady, but she did not seem to see either of them. Sebastian, she cried, and drew rein gazing at him. Where is your wife? Her words rang on the cold, clear air like strokes of a bell. Sibylla died last night, answered the steward, but I did not, and you should not have come. Jacobia shaded her brows with her gloved hand and stared past the speaker. 
What is that on the ground? she cried. Sibylla! He has slain Sibylla! But, sirs, she looked round her distractedly, ye must not blame him. He saw my wish. From your own lips! cried Thierry. Who are you who speak? she demanded haughtily. I sent him to slay Sibylla. She interrupted herself with a hideous shriek. Sebastian, ye are stepping in her blood! And letting go of the reins, she sank from the saddle. The steward caught her, and as she slipped from his hold to her knees, her unconscious head came near to the stiff white feet of the dead. Her yellow hair, cried Dirk, let us leave her to her steward. You and I have another way. May God curse her as he has me, said Thierry in an agony, for she has slain my hope of heaven. You will not leave me, called Sebastian. What shall I say? What shall I do? Lie, and lie again, answered Dirk with a wild air. Wed the dame and damn her people. Let fly your authority and break her heart as quickly as you may. Amen to that, added Thierry. And now to Frankfurt, cried Dirk, exultant. They set their horses to a furious pace and galloped out of Castle Martzburg. End of section 19 Part 1, Chapter 20, Hugh of Rousselary Dirk took off his riding coat and listened with a smile to the quick step of Thierry overhead. He was again in the long, low chamber looking out on the witch's garden, and nothing was changed save that the roses bloomed no longer on the bare thorny bushes. "'So you have brought him back,' said Natalie, caressing the youth's soft sleeve, "'pulled his saint out of her shrine and given her over to the demons?' Dirk turned his head. A beautiful look was in his eyes. "'Yea, I have brought him back,' he said musingly. "'You have done a foolish thing,' grumbled the witch. "'He will ruin you yet. Beware, for even now you hold him against his will.' I marked his face as he went into the chamber. Dirk seated himself with a sigh. In this matter I am not to be moved, and now some food, for I am so weary that I can scarcely think. Natalie, the toll it has been, the rough roads, the delays, the long hours in the saddle, but it was worth it. The witch set the table with a rich service of ivory and silver. "'Worth leaving your fortunes at the crisis. "'Ye left Frankfurt the day after the Emperor died "'and have been away two months. "'Isabeau thinks you dead.' "'Dirk frowned. "'No matter. "'Tomorrow she shall know me living. "'Martzburg is far away, and the weather delayed us, "'but it had to be. "'Now I am free to work my own advancement.' "'He drank eagerly of the wine put before him and began to eat.' "'Ye have heard,' asked Natalie, "'that Balthasar of Courtraig has been elected emperor?' "'Yea,' smiled Dirk, "'and is to marry Isabeau within the year. "'We knew it, did we not? "'Next spring they will go to Rome "'to receive the imperial crown.' "'I shall be with them,' said Dirk. "'Well, it is good to rest. "'What a thick fool Balthasar is,' he smiled, "'and his eyes sparkled. The empress is a clever woman, answered the witch. 
She came here once to know whither you had gone. I told her, for the jest, that you were dead. At that she must think her secret dead with you, yet she gave no sign of joy nor relief, nor any hint of what her business was. She is never betrayed by her puppet's face, an iron-hearted fiend, the empress. They say, though, that she is a fool for Balthasar, a dog at his heels, until she change. Belike, you will be her next fancy, said Natalie. The crystals always foretell a throne for you. Dirk laughed. I do not mean to share my honors with any woman, he answered. Pile up the fire, Natalie. Certes, it is cold. He pushed back his chair with a half-sigh on his lips, and turned contented eyes on the glowing hearth Natalie replenished. And none has thought evil of Melchor's death? he asked curiously. Eh, there was Hugh of Rousselerie. Dirk sat up. The Lord of Rousselerie? Certes, the night Melchor died, he flung murderous in the Empress's face. Dirk showed a grave, alert face. I never heard of that. Nay, answered the witch with some malice. Ye were too well engaged in parting that boy from his love. It is a pretty jest. Certainly she is a clever woman. She enlists Balthasar as her champion. He becomes enraged, furious, and Hugh is cast into the dungeons for his pains. The witch laughed softly. <laughs> he would not retract. His case swayed to and fro, but Balthasar and the Empress always hated him. He had never a chance— Dirk rose and pressed his clasped hands to his temple. What do you say? Never a chance? He is to die tonight at sunset. He must not die, he on the scaffold? I, as you say, was following that boy and his love while this was happening? The witch fell back against the wall, while overhead the restless tread of Thierry sounded. Dirk dashed from the room and out into the quiet street. For a second he paused. It was late afternoon. He had perhaps an hour or an hour and a half. Clenching his hands, he drew a deep breath and turned in the direction of the palace at a steady run. By reason of the snow clouds and bitter cold, there were few abroad to notice the slim figure running swiftly and lightly. Those who were about made their way in the direction of the marketplace, where the lord of Rousselerie was presently to meet his death. Dirk arrived at the palace, one hand over his heart, stinging him with the pain of his great speed. He demanded the empress. None among the guards knew either him or his name, but at his imperious insistence they sent word by a page to Isabeau, that the young doctor Constantine had a desire to see her. The boy returned, and Dirk was admitted instantly, smiling gloomily to think with what feelings Isabeau would look on him. So far all had been swiftly accomplished. He was conducted to her private chamber, and brought face to face with her while he still panted from his running. Until the page had gone, neither spoke. Then Dirk said quickly, I returned to Frankfurt today. Isabeau was agitated to fear by his sudden appearance. Where have you been? she asked, 
I thought you dead. I have no time for speech with you now. You owe me something, do you not? Well, I am here to ask part payment. The Empress winced. Well, what? I had no wish to be ungrateful. Twas you avoided me. She crossed to the hearth and fixed her superb eyes intently on the youth. Hugh of Rousselaerie is to die this evening, he said. Yea, answered Isabeau, and her childish loveliness darkened. For a while, Dirk was silent. He showed suddenly frail and ill. On his face was an expression of emotion, mastered and held back. He must not die, he said at last, and lifted his eyes, shadowed with fatigue. That is what I demand of you, his pardon, now and at once. We have but little time. Isabeau surveyed him curiously and fearfully. You ask too much, she replied in a low tone. Do you know why this man is to die? For speaking the truth, he said with a sudden sneer. The empress flushed and clutched the embroidery on her bodice. You of all men should know why he must be silenced, she retorted bitterly. What is your reason for asking his life? Dirk's mouth took on an ugly curl. My reason is no matter. It is my will. Have I made you so much my master? she muttered. The young man answered impatiently, You will give me his pardon and make haste, for I must ride with it to the marketplace. I think I will not. I am not so afraid of you, and I hate this man. My secret is your secret, after all. Dirk gave a wan smile. I can blast you as I blasted Melchior of Brabant, Isabeau, and do you think I have any fear of what you can say? But he leaned towards her. Suppose I go with what I know to Balthasar. The name humbled the empress like a whip held over her. So I am helpless, she muttered, loathing him. The pardon, insisted Dirk. Sound the bell and write me a pardon. Still, she hesitated. It was a hard thing to lose her vengeance against a dangerous enemy. Choose another reward, she pleaded. Of what value can this man's life be to you? You seek to put me off until it be too late, cried Dirk hoarsely. He stepped forward and seized the handbell on the table. Now, and you show yourself obstinate, I go straight from here to Balthasar and tell him of the poisoning of Melchior. Instinct and desire rose in Isabeau to defy him with everything in her possession, from her guards to her nails. She shuddered with suppressed wrath and pressed her little clenched hands against the wall. Her chamberlain entered. Write out a pardon for the Lord of Rousselaerie, commanded Dirk, and haste as you love your place. When the man had gone, Isabeau turned with an ill-conceived savagery. What will they think? What will Balthasar think? That must be your business, said Dirk wearily. And Hugh himself? flashed the empress. The youth colored painfully. Let him be sent to his castle in Flanders, he said, with averted face. He must not remain here. So much you give in, cried Isabeau. I do not understand you. 
he responded with a wild look. No one will ever understand me, Isabeau. The chamberlain returned, and in a shaking hand the empress took the parchment and the reed pen, while Dirk waved the man's dismissal. Sign, he cried to her. Isabeau set the parchment on the table and looked out at the gathering clouds. The lord of Rousselerie must have already left the prison. She dallied with the pen, then took a little dagger from her hair and sharpened it. Dirk read her purpose in her lovely evil eyes and snatched the lingering right hand into his own long fingers. The empress drew together and looked up at him bitterly and darkly, but Dirk's breath stirred the ringlets that touched her cheek. His cool grip guided her reluctant pen. She shivered with fear and defiance. She wrote her name. Dirk flung her hand aside with a great sigh of relief. Do not try to foil me again, Morosia Porphyrogenitus, he cried, and caught up the parchment, his hat, and cloak. She watched him leave the room, heard the heavy door close behind him, and she writhed with rage, thrusting with an uncontrollable gesture of passion the dagger into the table. It quivered in the wood and then broke under her hand. With an ugly cry she ran to the window, flung it open, and cast the handle out. When it rattled on the cobbled yard, Dirk was already there. He marked it fall, knew the gold and red flash, and smiled. Showing the parchment signed by the Empress, he had commanded the swiftest horse in the stables. The marketplace lay at the other end of the town, and the hour for the execution was close at hand, but the white horse he rode was fresh and strong. The thick gray clouds had obscured the sunset and covered the sky. A few trembling flakes of snow fell. A bitter wind blew between the high, narrow houses. Here and there, a light sparkling in a window emphasized the colorless cold without. Dirk urged the steed till he rocked in the saddle. He passed the high walls of the college, galloped over the bridge that crossed the sullen waters of the main. "'swept by the open doors of St. Wolfram, "'then had to draw rein, "'for the narrow street began to be choked with people. "'He pulled his hat over his eyes "'and flung his cloak across the lower half of his face. "'With one hand he dragged on the bridle, "'with the other waved the parchment. "'A pardon!' he cried. "'A pardon! Make way!' "'They drew aside before the plunging steed. "'Some answered him. "'It is no pardon!' He wears not the empress's livery. One seized his bridle. Dirk leant from the saddle and dashed the parchment into the fellow's face. The horse snorted and plunging cleared away and gained the marketplace. Here the press was enormous. Men, women, and children were gathered close round the mounted soldiers who guarded the scaffold. The armor, yellow and blue uniforms, and bright feathers of the horsemen showed vividly against the gray houses and grayer sky. On the scaffold were two dark, graceful figures, a man kneeling with his long throat bare, and a man standing with a double-edged sword in his hands. A pardon, shrieked Dirk, in the name of the emperor. He was wedged in the crowd, who made bewildered movements but could not give place to him. The soldiers did not or would not hear. Dirk rose desperately in his stirrups, 
As he did so, the hat and cloak fell back, and his head and shoulders were revealed clearly above the swaying mass. Hugh of Rousselerie heard the cry, looked across the crowd, and his eyes met the eyes of Dirk Renswode. A pardon! cried Dirk hoarsely. He saw the condemned man's lips move. The sword fell. A woman screamed, said the monk on the scaffold, and proclaimed a pardon. And he pointed to the commotion gathered about Dirk, while the executioner displayed to the crowd the serene head of Hugh of Rousselerie. Nay, it was not a woman, one of the soldiers answered the monk. T'was this youth. Dirk forced to the foot of the scaffold. Let me through, he said in a terrible voice. The guard parted, and seeing the parchment in his hand, let him mount the steps. You bring a pardon, whispered the monk. I am too late, said Dirk. He stood among the hurrying blood that stained the platform, and his face was hard. Dogs! And this an end for a lord of Rousselerie, he cried, and clasped his hand on a straining breast. Could you not have waited a little, but a few moments more? The snow was falling fast. It lay on Dirk's shoulders and on his smooth hair. The monk drew the parchment from his passive hand and read it in a whisper to the officer. They both looked askance at the young man. Give me his head, said Dirk. The executioner had placed it at a corner of the scaffold. He left off wiping his sword and brought it forward. Dirk watched without fear or repulsion and took Hugh's head in his slim, fair hands. How heavy it is, he whispered. The quick distortion of death had left the proud features. Dirk held the face close to his own, with no heed to the blood that trickled down his doublet. Priest and captain standing apart noticed a horrible likeness between the dead and the living, but would not speak of it. Churl, said Dirk, gazing into the half-closed gray eyes that resembled so his own. He spoke as he saw me. What did he say? The headsman polished the mighty blade. Not to do with you, or with any, he answered. The words had no meaning. Certes. What were they? whispered the youth. Have you come for me, Ursula? Then he said again, Ursula. A quiver ran through Dirk's frame. She shall repent this, the eastern witch he said wildly. May the devil snatch you all to bitter judgment. He turned to the captain with the head held against his breast. What are you going to do with this? His wife has asked for his head and his body, that he may be buried befitting his estate. His wife, echoed Dirk. Then slowly, Ay, he had a wife. And a son, sir? The child is dead. Dirk set the head down gently by the body. And his lands, he asked. They go, sir, by favor of the empress, to Balthasar of Courtraig, who married, as you may know, this lord's heiress, Ursula, dead now many years. The snow had scattered the crowd. The soldiers were impatient to be gone. Sir, said the officer, will you return with me to the palace? 
and we will tell the empress how this mischance arose and how you came too late nay replied dirk fiercely take that good news alone he turned and descended the scaffold steps in a proud gloomy manner one of the soldiers held his horse he mounted in silence and rode away they who watched saw the thick snowflakes blot out the solitary figure and shuddered with no cause they understood. End of section 20